Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with Telus. This is being brought to you live and recorded live on August 4th, 2021. The time right now is 1037 Pacific Daylight Time. I have been gone a while. I'm sure you have realized that by now, if you are a regular listener to this show, I took a trip, which was about two and a half weeks long, starting on July 15th. And that was the reason for my absence. And that was also the reason why we had kind of an oddball, different type of show on July 24th, where I was barely involved. That was Brandon's video show. It aired on YouTube. You can also find the audio version of it in the archives, and you can also find it on uh, YouTube. And that was done kind of as a little thing to keep you guys engaged while I wasn't here. I had about five minutes to appear. I actually came on from a hotel, but I was with the family, and I did not have any time to dedicate to that show. So I thank Brandon and Trader Ruski and everybody else who appeared on that show and gave you guys some content while I was not present. Otherwise, you would have had about three weeks plus without any kind of Poker Fraud Alert radio content. So that was great that Brandon did that. We discussed it before I left, and that was Brandon's idea. And I said, that's great. Thank you, Brandon. And uh, nice to have him filling in for me when I was gone. He probably will be here tonight. He is aware that radio is tonight. He's probably sleeping right now or busy with something. He usually comes on in the second half of the show. This will probably be a long show because we have a lot to cover. You may wonder, am I going to cover things that Brandon covered on the show? Well, somewhat, because I didn't get to give my take. So, like, for example, Lane Flack's passing, I'm going to give my take on it, but uh, maybe it'll be a bit shorter of a segment than it would be otherwise had this just happened. But I do want to give my take on Lane Flack, of course, and uh, I'm just going to go through the topics that I feel I want to cover. After this long period of absence, we haven't had a show since July 13th. Today is August 4th. Been about three weeks. And we'll get through what I feel we need to get through. And then we will go back to a regular schedule. Some of you have wondered, are we going to start doing a lot more video shows? The answer is not really. But if you like the video show, it's not completely going away. Every so often, we will probably do one of these and... We will probably do some when I am around, so it won't just be a substitute for me being here. There will be times when we just have that instead of the regular show, but it won't be that often. So if you like the show the way it is, if you like the audio show that's very long and you don't have to watch anything and you don't have to worry about uh, what's happening on the screen, then you'll be happy because that's going to be the vast majority of shows we do, and it will be once a week again and we shouldn't have any kind of other uh, skipped weeks unless things happen that make it to where I cannot uh, be available for it. But I don't see any in the foreseeable future, including maybe the World Series, unfortunately, which we'll get to later today. So I missed being here. I missed doing the show. Whenever I come back from a long absence, I always am really eager to do radio again. When I do it weekly, I have different attitudes about it, sometimes I'm really eager to do that show, and sometimes I feel like it's almost a burden. Like, I don't really feel like it that night, but people are counting on me. People are expecting me to be there. I'm not forced to be there. I have no boss, and this doesn't make money, and we don't have any kind of paid sponsors. So I can skip it if I want. But uh, I know the listeners who have been here many years, 
I know they expect it and they count on it and I don't want to let them down. So I try to be here whether I'm in the mood or not. Sometimes I'm very much in the mood. Sometimes I'm somewhat in the mood. Sometimes I'm not in the mood. Sometimes I'm not in the mood, but I get in the mood when I'm doing it. Sounds like I'm talking about sex, but I'm not. I promise you. Well, maybe that too. But anyway, we are back. This will be a normal show other than the fact that we're going to be catching up on uh, weeks of material. I'm trying to cover more recent material than material from back in mid-July. In fact, that'll be most of the show is recent stuff because I know a lot of you don't want to hear stuff that's weeks old. Just because I wasn't here to talk about it doesn't mean that we should be talking that much about it. So this will be a more recent event-heavy show, but we will cover some things that happened during my absence. I will talk some about my trip and I'll tell you where I went. I'll tell you some notable things that happened. Then we'll get on with the rest of the content of the show. We have a free roll tonight. We have a free roll, $51. It began at 10.30 p.m. Pacific time. You have until 10.55 p.m. to get in there on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. 26 for first, 15 for second, 10 for third. 26 for first, 15 for second, 10 for third. I will send this to you by Zelle, Cash App, Bank Transfer, Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, or other methods you might be able to think of to receive money. After you win, please PM me on the forum, Dan Space Druff, Dan Space Druff on the forum. If you don't want to do that, you can email me, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com, or text me, 775-372-8355. But it's more likely I will remember to pay you if you send it via the forum, because that's the way most people do it. And when I send out the batches, sometimes I have trouble finding the old texts and emails asking it to be paid, because I get a lot of texts and emails. So it's better you do it on the forum, but... You don't have to do it on the forum. So 26, 15, and 10 are the prizes this week. And uh, because I didn't announce the show much in advance, we didn't get donations. That's my fault. So I went and took money from other people. I reached into their wallet and stole money from them. Not really, but I forfeited. Well, I, I took away money that they were awarded and did not claim. You have six months to claim your prize. If you don't, I may or may not take it for future free rolls. So Kush Strain, I took $15 from a previous win of his, Mulva, 26 from him, and Limitless, $10 from him. So thank you. I mean, these are still donations, even though they're involuntary. They're still donations. So thank you, guys. It's your money. And that's what comprises our pool this week. If you want to call the show, the phone number, as always, is 775-FRAUD-55. 775-372-8355 is that number. I have a surprise maybe coming, by the way. I'm trying to acquire some uh, more interesting phone numbers. Not that Fraud 55 is a bad number, but I'm going to try to get another alternate number to the show. That'll be cool, but I don't want to reveal too much until I'm successful. So far, I have not been successful, but I'm trying. And I'll let you guys know more later if I am successful, or I'll, I guess I'll even tell you if I'm not successful, what I was trying to do. 702-430-1808 is not a very interesting sounding number, but that is the Mount Charleston line. It's an interesting number because it's an old 70s rotary phone which sits on top of Mount Charleston in a cabin that forwards to me wherever I go. The phone does, not the cabin. Mount Charleston is about 45 minutes from Vegas. If you go to Vegas this summer and you're roasting and you want to get away from the heat, you want to be outdoors without having the... 110 degree sun over your head, just go to Mount Charleston. It's about 30 to 35 degrees cooler than Vegas, and it's only about 45 minutes away by car. And they owe me money, that Chamber of Commerce, for all the promotion I've done to them. 
But the number is 702-430-1808, 702-430-1808. If you want to text me, it is the main phone number, 775-372-8355. You can text me before, after, or during the show. If you text me during the show, I may read your text on the air unless you say, do not read on air when you text me. Or unless it's really obvious. Like if we've been having a conversation and it's continuing during radio, I won't read it. But other than that, I may read it. So make sure to say that if you text me during the show. But you can also text me before or after the show. You don't have to be shy. In fact, if you have comments about the show, even if it's criticism, even if you think the show sucked or there's certain segments you don't want to hear again, you can let me know. I may not uh, take action. I may disagree with your comments and decide I'm not going to change anything. But I really do consider all comments. And what happens if I hear enough of the same thing, or even if one person says something and it causes me to rethink my position, then I may change something in the show. So you'd be surprised how much impact your comments can make. Or if you really like something, tell me too. Uh, I always like when we have a segment and we get positive commentary on it. I, I don't want you sending positive commentary if you don't mean it. Because when you send positive commentary, that basically makes it to where I don't change things. At least I don't change the things you're commenting positively on. So when I get positive commentary, then I know what people like as well. And without that, I just have to guess. And sometimes I have a feeling. When the show's over, sometimes I think, okay, this went well, this didn't go well, I like this, I didn't like this. I'll sometimes go back and listen to parts of the show, and uh, I'll decide if I liked or disliked certain things. I don't listen to the whole long show again, but I will listen to segments to see how I feel about it and what I want to do in the future. I'm doing this show for you guys. I want you guys to enjoy the show because if you don't then there's no point in me doing it so it's really for the listener not for me to hear myself talk i can do that by myself without doing all this broadcasting the call to listen line is a very simple thing you just call up and listen to the show it works during the show it also works before or after the show where we play streaming reruns it just streams random reruns in the past nine and a half years of poker fraud alert radio but it can also be used to listen live. It does not require a smartphone or an app or a data plan or a computer or the internet or even a good cell phone connection. All you need is any phone that can complete a call, one bar of cell phone service, and it will never buffer and never freeze. I guarantee you that. The call to listen line, the number is 605-313-0736, 605-313-0736, or the alternate one, 641-741-1095. If you have T-Mobile, it will cost you one cent a minute. Any other provider, to my knowledge, it'll be free, but of course, I make no promises. But as far as I know, it's free with every other provider, provided you can call those areas of the United States without any kind of toll, which most people can these days. And people have asked me, do you mind if I just fall asleep to it or leave it on for hours and hours? And my answer is, no, go ahead, do what you want. We have many incoming lines, more than we will ever need. So you will never make it busy. You won't be running on my bill. Don't worry about that. Use it to your heart's content. Actually, before the agenda, I just want to tell you that we have a chat room. As always, you need a validated form account to get in there. You should only bother going in the chat room if you were listening live. And, oh, I forgot to mention the different forms of archives we have. If you don't catch the show live, you can hear it through iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartMedia, Bullhorn, which actually has its own call to listen line as well, but it's also an app, and the TuneIn app, which can be used to listen live or the archives, 
We have both there. You can also download the MP3 or listen to the MP3 of the show. That's a very easy way to listen because it doesn't need any kind of external player just uh, or any kind of app. You just click on the MP3 file. So all these ways are listed if you go to the radio tab of PokerFraudAlert.com. Just scroll down. You'll see all the little, little icons of different ways to listen. Just click on the one you want, and it'll take you to the right place. It's very easy. If there's another way you want to listen to the show, let me know, and if it doesn't cost me too much, I will get it done. I want it to be easy to listen, not difficult. I don't want to make it a task to be able to listen to the show. Remember, Amazon Alexa is also a way to listen to the archives. Just say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio Podcast. Make sure you say podcast at the end. Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio Podcast. Say it very clearly and slowly so it understands, and then it will play. And if you want to go back to previous episodes, you say next and if you want to go back forward, you say previous. It's backwards. And somehow Jeff Bezos makes a lot of money despite being backwards like that. I don't quite understand. But he makes enough money to uh, fly into space and to give his ex-wife $36 million and still be a uh, hundred billionaire. So good for him. Okay, here is the agenda. I'll talk about my Colorado trip. I will give you a Mike Possel update. There's uh, one more thing that has happened since uh, we last reported. It's actually a fairly big thing, and in fact, there's articles about it around the web if you'd like to read about it, but I'll tell you in detail when we get to that segment. We have an interview tonight with Ryan Feldman, who just has started a new live streaming poker show from Hustler Casino in Southern California. When I talk about a live streaming poker show, I mean where people are playing poker live and you get to see their whole cards on a 15-minute delay. Uh, You're probably familiar with Live at the Bike. That was where Ryan Feldman previously worked, and he was a very instrumental figure on Live at the Bike, and he was done dirty by the bike. I think he was screwed over by them, and he definitely thinks that, and he's going to talk about that, and he's going to talk about his new show at The Hustler, and The Hustler is another Southern California casino. Uh, Neither The Hustler nor The Bike are in Los Angeles City. Los Angeles City doesn't have any casinos, but uh, there's a lot of LA area casinos, of course, Commerce is the biggest one. The Bike uh, is, is another very big one. But Hustler is a medium-sized casino. It was the first casino I ever played Texas Hold'em at. It was uh, 20 years ago I did that. And now Hustler has its own live streaming poker show, and Ryan Feldman is in charge of it. So we're going to have him on both to talk about uh, what happened to The Bike, and he'll talk about his new show, which just started this week. Bart Hansen's involved with that new show, so I'm happy for Bart that he is involved with that. And also, we'll ask Ryan about how PayPal screwed him. Now, he's not part of the lawsuit that Eric Benzamokin is bringing on behalf of uh, many plaintiffs, including uh, Mike Matisau and formerly Chris Moneymaker, who uh, got paid back but is helping recruit people. But uh, he was a victim of PayPal, and we'll talk about that too. So, interesting guy. He's uh, been around in poker for a long time, and I've wanted to have him on the show for a while. We've always gotten along well, and... uh, Figured this was good timing when he's starting his Hustler show. We're going to have him on uh, pretty soon, near the beginning of the show. But uh, we'll do a few topics before that, because he's just finishing up with his work tonight. The new Russian owners of 2 Plus 2 have already made some controversial changes to the forum rules. Yes, 2 Plus 2 was bought, if you missed the last show. It was bought by Russians. Russians living in Canada. And they have some very different ideas about how to run 2 plus 2 than Mason Malmuth did. And I'm enjoying 
watching all the controversy unfold. And I think I'm going to return there soon. And I'm going to be honest. Part of the reason I'm going to return there is just to piss off Mason. I don't mind being part of it. I, I like some of the users there. I even like some of the mods at 2 Plus 2. I know a lot of people hate the mods. And I don't like all the mods. But there's actually some mods there I like. But Mason, I think, is a complete dick. And... I want to come back and <laughs> either I want them to ban me and uh, the controversy springing from that or and I don't think they will or I want Mason to be frustrated that there I am right there in his face. So I'm going to come back to 2 plus 2 soon. We'll see what happens. But that's not what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about uh, the, the controversial changes in the forum. In case you're wondering, I don't have a fake account there. I do not have any account on 2 plus 2 at the moment. And if I come back, I will be myself. I'm not going to be a fake. Prison sentences are being handed down in a matter that has nothing to do with poker or gambling, but I found really, really interesting. And it it has kind of a peripheral association with PayPal, which we've been talking about a lot recently, because it involves eBay. eBay had a very shocking scandal that is not being talked about very much, where a couple that ran a small e-commerce newsletter was harassed and cyber-stalked and stalked in real life by eBay security at the directions uh, at the direction of the higher-ups in eBay, including the CEO. Yeah. I'm shocked this isn't a bigger scandal. This happened in 2019, and there's already prison sentences being handed down for it. These aren't just allegations anymore. There are people actually going to prison for this. Several have pleaded guilty, and others are on trial for it, or will be on trial very shortly. And sentences are going to be handed down throughout 2021. The first one just came down. That's how I got my attention. Actually, it was brought to my attention by a listener, so I thank that person. Very interesting story. I scoured the web to read all I could about it, and I'm going to bring it to you. I think you'll find it interesting, too, even though it doesn't have anything to do with poker or gambling. Once in a while, it'll bring something like that to your attention. Lane Flack passed away last month. I'm sure you heard about it already, unless you've been in a hole. Lane Flack, a very well-known old-school poker figure, semi-old-school poker figure. And, of course, there were a lot of of very, very emotional, positive uh, remembrances given of Lane Flack. Mike Mattisau did an emergency podcast and got Helmuth on there, and people talked about what a great guy Lane Flack was and how much they miss him and how tragic this is and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm going to give you my thoughts on Lane Flack, and I'll do that when we get to that segment. I'm not going to give them right now, but I will say that when somebody passes away, I don't believe in whitewashing their life. If it's a friend or a relative, yeah, sure, I'm not going to kick them while they're down. But if it's somebody who is mostly a stranger to me, as Lane Flack was, we knew who each other were, but uh, we weren't friends. We weren't enemies either. Uh, I'm going to be honest about uh, Lane Flack. And I, I have mixed feelings about him. I'll tell you that right now. People like to come out when somebody dies in poker and make them seem like the most wonderful person who ever lived, and uh, I can't do that. I can't and won't do that, because I want to be straight with you on this show. And I wouldn't expect people to do that for me. I would expect my friends and family to do this for me, but people who uh, are neutral towards me, or even ones who dislike me, I wouldn't expect them to change their opinion just because I'm six feet under. 
Brandon Adams and Phil Galfond are having their heads up challenge. This is part of the Galfond challenge, which we've seen Phil Galfond play other people. So far, Galfond has not lost yet. We had a little bit of controversy during their heads up challenge. And it's kind of funny because neither Brandon Adams nor Phil Galfond are very uh, personally aggressive guys. I'm not talking about uh, their poker play. I'm talking about their personalities. These are not guys who get in your face, who uh, start outright controversy, who talk trash. These are both very mild-mannered, polite guys. A lot of people like Brandon Adams. A lot of people like uh, Philip Galfond. And you put them together, and they have a disagreement. It's interesting to watch the way it plays out. So I'll tell you what the disagreement was about and how it was resolved. And the match is still going on, by the way. Phil Helmuth. Who knew that he was a great heads-up player? But Phil Helmuth continues to mow down the competition. He now has a streak of eight wins. He's 8-0 and in his heads-up matches. He's going to have a tough one coming up, though. Tom Dwan is going to be playing him later this month. So we'll talk about that. And we will talk a bit about why Phil Helmuth is winning so much. Is he just getting really lucky, or is Phil Helmuth actually a good heads-up, no-limit cash player? You wouldn't have expected that of him, but maybe he is. The Delta variant of COVID has forced mask-wearing back in Vegas due to an order by Governor Steve Sisolak and also is now threatening the World Series of Poker, which is scheduled for this fall. So I will tell you what I think about the World Series chances of even existing at all this year. I will tell you whether I think I'm going to go to the World Series and what that depends on. And I'll make some various commentary on the Delta variant in general. And in fact, uh, Maybe during this segment, maybe during a separate segment, I'm going to do a coronavirus discussion on mask mandates in general. In fact, it'll probably be during that segment because I have some strong feelings about the recent mask mandates that we're seeing in a lot of places around the country. And I'll tell you what I feel should be done about the Delta variant. And I will tell you that uh, as I felt most of the way with COVID, I don't think either party's rhetoric in the U.S. has been correct about uh, COVID or the Delta variant. I think that uh, both sides are making a lot of stupid mistakes, and it's just causing more people to die. The gambling movie The Card Counter is coming this fall. I just heard of this movie. It was just announced recently, at least to the general public, by a trailer. Probably you could have found something about it a while ago, but no one knew to look. But I found a trailer for it, and I'm going to play you that trailer, which... You know, when I play a trailer, I really do wish for that moment we have a video show. You'll just have to listen to it. I'll have to describe to you what's happening there. But you can go, of course, watch this aside from the show and then come back to the segment if you really want to see the trailer. It's called The Card Counter. And I'll tell you how I feel about that upcoming movie. I am a card counter. I am a blackjack card counter. I haven't done it actively in quite some time, but I still can do it. And I'm also a poker player. And this movie is about a card-counting poker player. But it may have some confused writing and it may be a fail, so we'll discuss it. There hasn't been a good gambling movie, in my opinion, since Rounders. I thought that uh, Seven Days to Vegas that Vince Van Patten did was... uh, It was okay. It was decent, but it wasn't great. But at least it was decent. The rest of them weren't even decent. Addicted gambler and NHL player Evander Kane is accused of betting on his own hockey games in what is looking to be a pretty bad scandal. It makes uh, Pete Rose look like an angel. So we'll talk about that. 
Rio Las Vegas had a bizarre shutdown of reservations for the first 11 days of August. If you don't believe me, go try to book right now. Go to Caesars.com and try to book the Rio. You won't be able to until like August 12th, I think. So we'll discuss why that might be happening. This was actually discovered by Brandon and brought to me. So we're going to discuss this. Hopefully Brandon's on when we can do that topic since it was his discovery. And then uh, we'll have whatever other Vegas topics he wants to bring and possible updates and calls involving Sharif, who is still on the hook, would you believe? He didn't disappear. We'll see if we can resume that. It's amazing that this keeps going. I guess the guy just feels kind of committed. Desert Runner. Remember the uh, controversial forum uh, poster? He texted me, Druff, you blew it by forgetting your new tactical flashlight on your Colorado trip. Yeah, I did. I totally meant to bring the flashlight, but I did not bring the flashlight. And Desert Runner was very disappointed with me because he loves flashlights. And I told him I was going to bring it, and I did not bring it. And he was sad when I got back and told him I did not bring it. But uh, I will remember next time to bring my flashlight. (laughs) 775-372-8355 is the number if you wish to text me. Okay, we're going to get going with all of our topics here. And let's get right into the Colorado trip. So I decided to take a family vacation to Colorado. And I decided this in April. That's when I booked everything was April. I had not been on a family trip in two years, except for a short trip to Lake Tahoe for New Year's 2020. That was end of 2019, very early 2020 in Tahoe, but that was a few days. I don't really count that as a trip. The last real trip I had was two years ago when we went to Maine and uh, went to Eastern Canada. That was a nice trip, but it's been two years. Of course, COVID is what kept me from traveling last year. So this was our summer trip. And planning a summer trip for 2021 was tricky because I knew there were certain things I wanted to avoid. I knew that a lot of people were in the exact same boat I was, and that was they were cooped up for 2020, they did not take a summer vacation, they really wanted to take their family on a summer vacation, and they were looking at the summer of 21 as the time that they could finally take their summer vacation and finally get away from home for a while. So I knew there was going to be a lot of travel happening. So that immediately counted out places that are going to have a ton of people. So I wasn't going to go to the Grand Canyon. I wasn't going to go to Yosemite. I wasn't going to go to Yellowstone. I wasn't going to go to any major tourist attraction. Major meaning something that people from outside the country think about going to in the U.S. I wanted to go to... uh, smaller things, not necessarily unknown things. I mean, that too, but it didn't have to be super obscure, but it had to be obscure enough to where it wouldn't be the first thing people would think about going to for a summer vacation. The goal was not to avoid all people. The goal was to avoid massive crowds. So I was looking at a place I could go that didn't require a long flight. I didn't want to go to the East Coast because you have to wear a mask on the plane. I don't want to be in a mask for five hours each way on the plane. So I didn't want that either. Benjamin didn't like that either, though he's going to be stuck wearing one at school soon. It's going to be 
tough on him. But uh, I didn't want to do the long mask flight. I definitely didn't want to leave the country, both for the long mask flight and just in case something happened, like the Delta variant, which I, of course, didn't think of back in April, but I knew it was a possibility that something like that would occur. And I didn't want any kind of quarantine situation. I didn't want it to where I'd have to quarantine two weeks either at the destination, which would be a disaster, and I'd have to cancel the trip, or back at home if I was coming from a hotspot. So I just I wanted something that was not going to be difficult if COVID ramped up somewhat. So I chose Colorado. Colorado ticked a lot of those boxes. It was not a long flight. It was a two and a half hour flight to Denver. In fact, it was a one-way flight because I drove all the way back to Southern California from Denver. It was a one-way road trip. So it involved one two-and-a-half-hour flight at the beginning of the trip. There is nothing in Colorado that is a major tourist attraction. I mean, sure, you have Rocky Mountain National Park, and you have Pikes Peak, and you have Aspen, and these are all somewhat big tourist destinations, but they're not huge tourist destinations. It's not the first thing on people's minds. It's not even the second thing on people's minds when they think of where to go. So I thought that was a good place to go. I also hadn't been there in a while, so I wasn't repeating very much. I was in Colorado eight years ago, but only briefly. We did go to the top of Pikes Peak, but Benjamin was pretty young then back in 2013, so he was a toddler, doesn't remember it, so for him it's new to go back there. I've only been to Pikes Peak twice in my life, uh, once when I was a kid and once in 2013. But really, aside from Pikes Peak and, and something else in Colorado Springs called Garden of the Gods, I had not been to anything in Colorado since I was 12 years old. So it was almost new to me. I remembered some of the things, but it was nice to see all of this again as an adult. So I could go to a lot of these uh, natural sites there without uh, feeling like I'm repeating something I just did in the last few years. Also, speaking of natural sites, there there is a lot to see and do outdoors in Colorado, which is perfect during the times of COVID. So again, number one, being that Benjamin isn't vaccinated, I didn't want him spending a ton of time indoors. And number two, just in case there was a variant that was a problem, I didn't want to spend a lot of time indoors. And this is again, before there was awareness of Delta, but I always thought that this might happen. This wasn't out of the realm of possibility at all. In fact, it was likely to happen. So I wanted something where most of the stuff we'd be doing would be outside and COVID safe. So Colorado was the perfect choice for all of this. I also found that at the time I booked in April, nothing was all that expensive. I'm not saying it was dirt cheap and I got a wonderful deal, but I didn't get gouged. I wasn't paying obscene money. I was mostly paying typical summertime travel rates, not 2021 way jacked up summertime travel rates. I mean like the travel rates I would have paid in the summer of 2018 or 2019. So I didn't pay anything that was inflated. And you may wonder, how did I do that? How did I pay less? Well, number one, again, Colorado isn't a major destination. But number two, back in April, when I did this, like mid-April, most people weren't quite thinking about summer travel yet because people were just getting vaccinated. They were just getting used to being vaccinated. Most people were not fully vaccinated yet. Most people were kind of in between the first and second shot around the time I did it. In fact, that's where I was. I was in between the first and second shot when I did it. So most people weren't quite in the mode yet of thinking, okay, let's think about traveling now. Most people kind of 
got to that shortly after that, after they returned to life and thought, oh, okay, yeah, let's, let's do a trip now. So I got a little bit ahead of the crowd there. I'm not saying I was the first one to book. I'm saying I got ahead of the crowd to where everything wasn't full yet and nothing was close to full yet. And therefore, the prices hadn't been jacked up. And I monitored the prices after I booked and most of them shot up a good deal from when I booked it. A few of them went down for some reason, but uh, most of them went up and some of them went way up. So I did a good job booking the trip when I did. Also, I'm a Los Angeles Dodgers fan. And right in their division is a team that they play often. That is the Colorado Rockies. So I looked, might the Dodgers be in Colorado during the summer? And indeed they were. Indeed, the Dodgers were going to be playing the Rockies right after the All-Star break, which also happened to be in Denver, the All-Star game. I didn't go to the All-Star game, but I came just days after the All-Star game. And Denver, the Dodgers are going to be staying there after the All-Star game and playing a series there of three games. So I actually built the trip around that. I built the trip around flying to Denver, going to a Dodgers game with Ben the next day, and then traveling around Colorado, and then driving all the way back to L.A. And I covered a lot of Colorado. I went to a lot of places. The Dodgers game was fun. The Dodgers ended up winning. The Colorado Rockies are not a very good team, by the way. Something that really surprised me, I don't want to do a lot of baseball talk here because I know a lot of you are not baseball fans, but something that really surprised me was how many Dodger fans there were in Coors Field at the stadium where the Rockies play. You expect this in San Diego, which is very close to L.A. You expect this in Phoenix, which has a lot of former L.A. residents living there, and also the Diamondbacks didn't come to exist until the late 90s. But the Rockies are not all that close. I mean, it's more than a 1,000 miles from L.A., and there's not a lot of L.A. transplants there. There's some, but there's not a whole lot. And the Rockies had a, a substantial fan base that, uh, when I'd watched them on TV, seemed to be cheering for the team. You didn't hear a lot of cheering for the Dodgers when you'd watched the Dodgers play in Colorado. And this dates back to when the Rockies began in 1993. So I did not expect a lot of Dodger fans around me. I expected some, but not a whole lot. I wasn't afraid to wear my Dodgers gear there because it's not like a big rival. It's not like going to San Francisco and wearing Dodgers gear. So I wasn't afraid to wear the Dodgers gear, and I did, and Benjamin did. But what surprised me was the day of the game, walking around downtown Colorado, there were tons of Dodgers fans who clearly were tourists, people like me that actually uh, probably built a trip around uh, going to Colorado to watch the Dodgers. It's interesting how many there were. And there were also a number of fans that must live in the area. There was a lot of Dodger blue in the stands, and in fact, there was more cheering for the Dodgers than the Rockies at the game. And that was shocking. That was really shocking. In fact, during the Take Me Out to the Ball game, the seventh inning stretch where you sing Take Me Out to the Ball game, the part that goes root, root, root for the home team, the name of the team is always substituted. So at Dodger Stadium, you say root, root, root for the Dodgers. Well, it was root, root, root for the Dodgers is what you heard at Coors Field instead of root, root, root for the Rockies. <laughs> That's how many Dodgers fans there were there. There was much more cheering when the Dodgers did something good than when the Rockies did something good. There's more cheering for Dodgers players coming up to bat or being announced than Rockies players. Now, yes, the Dodgers are a much better team this year. So maybe a lot of the Rockies fans have given up and stopped coming. But wow, I could not believe it. It was really like uh, Dodger Stadium of the Rocky Mountains. But anyway, it's very uh, interesting to see the Dodgers in another stadium. I haven't done that in a long time. And that was enjoyable. Ben enjoyed it. 
Weather could have been a little bit better. It was hot and humid. Strangely enough, it was hot and humid also at Dodger Stadium back in June. And usually L.A. is not humid in June, but it happened to be when we we went in June. So very similar weather both games in L.A. and in uh, Colorado, except in Colorado that's much more common. But it didn't rain, which is good, because there was a lot of rain on this trip. There was a ton of rain in Colorado, especially in the afternoon and evening. I think we got more than usual, but I think it's also pretty common there, and I didn't realize that. So most days of the trip, there were some pretty heavy thunderstorms to where there was a lot of lightning and it was dangerous to be outside, which then would shut down whatever we were doing for the day, unless it was going to go away soon because you didn't want to be out because of the lightning. So that was, that was something we battled the whole way. Fortunately, not the day of the game, but there's a lot of afternoon thunderstorms in Colorado, afternoon and evening thunderstorms. So we, we dodged a bullet there with the game, but boy, there was a lot of rain. And fortunately, we were able to work around it, and we saw just about everything we meant to see. There was one glacier that we didn't get to go to because of uh, thunderstorms coming in and basically not going away, so that day was kind of wasted. But other than that, we saw everything we wanted to see. I was kind of ruined that I was kind of afraid that the projected rain was going to ruin our time in Aspen. Because when I was driving to Aspen, there was like a major storm. It wasn't just thunderstorms. It was like a big storm. Entire sky was gray. There wasn't even lightning for that one. It was just, just constant heavy rain driving to Aspen and th- throughout that entire day and night. So I, I thought, okay, uh, let's see if this goes away tomorrow. I looked, and the next day was supposed to have it too. So it looked like it was going to be constant rain the next day too, and, and Aspen was going to be ruined. But uh, to my delight, it broke up. It never rained that day. So the funny thing is the one day it was forecasted to have rain throughout the day, it actually did not rain at all. And we had other days where there was forecasted no rain and there was a lot of rain. So that's another thing I noticed is that in L.A., I've noticed that they're very good at forecasting the weather. It's very predictable in L.A. as far as the weather report. So if it says it's going to rain in L.A., it's probably going to rain. If it says it's going to be hot, it's going to be hot. If it says it's going to be cool, it's going to be cool. It's very unusual in L.A. that you have weather that seriously deviates from the weather report. But in Colorado, that was not true. Colorado, as I said, we had a day which was forecast to be raining all day, and it didn't rain at all in Aspen. And then we also had days that uh, just had surprise rain that showed up that stayed around for a while. So we battled with that. Uh, Something else we battled with was a lot of hotel issues. Some of these were just kind of weird and bad luck, where we just happened to get into rooms with fluke problems we'd never seen before. And some of this is probably attributable to the fact that it's hard to hire good help these days. People don't want to work, especially at uh, lower-end jobs, so they have to take who they can get. And if they have bad employees, it's harder to fire them, which is a big deal now. Whereas before, when there's someone looking to to replace the bad employees, you're happy to let the bad employees go. When there's no one behind to take the jobs of the employees you fire, then if you got a terrible employee, you, you consider keeping them, unfortunately. So... I don't know for sure if that was the case, but we saw a lot of service issues this trip that were probably at least somewhat attributable to that. Uh, A lot of hotel fail, uh, a lot of dumb things happening, the restaurants, very slow service throughout the entire state. Very rare to have a fast meal in Colorado or even an average speed meal. Everything was just dragging, which also kind of wasted time. But uh, these are all attributable to the times that it's hard to find good help these days, unfortunately. Uh, Now, I'm making it sound like this was all negative and we had just fail after fail and I was miserable, and that's not true. 
I always find it easier and more entertaining and more interesting to talk about the bad things than the good. Because, you know, what's there to say about the good? Did we see very nice scenery? Yes. Uh, were some of these things very interesting? Yes. Uh, did we see a lot of different sites throughout Colorado? Yes. Am I happy I went? Yes. That's not very exciting for the listener. Like, <laughs> you know, especially on a show where I can't show you anything. So I can describe a beautiful mountain I was looking at, at elevation 12,000 feet, these snow-capped uh, mountains, but um, it's not very interesting for radio. So it's more interesting to talk about uh, weird things that have happened or bad things that have happened or just things I've noticed that are unusual. One of the weird things that happened, and this is right at the beginning of the trip at the Denver Hotel, was we had a toilet that was bubbling. You may wonder what I mean by bubbling. I mean that randomly, every so often, probably once every 45 minutes to an hour, but not like on that time frame. It could really just be any time, like randomly, but averaging maybe once every 45 minutes to an hour, you'd hear like a bubbling sound. And it was coming from the toilet. The toilet was just randomly bubbling. Not after you flush it, just it would bubble. And it wasn't related to the nearby rooms flushing. It wasn't about the upstairs or downstairs room flushing. It wasn't about the nearby rooms flushing because a maintenance man came and tried to flush the toilets and had me watch to see if it brings it on, and it didn't bring it on. So we never completely figured out what brought it on. At the end, we suspected maybe the air conditioning was bringing it on, believe it or not, because sometimes the air conditioning drainage goes into the same pipes as, as, as the regular plumbing, and that can cause issues. In fact, even in my own house, when there's a drain clog, it can cause uh, leaking through the ceiling of the air conditioning. So uh, th- it's not too hard to believe maybe it was the air conditioner doing it, but we didn't conclude that for sure. That was just a theory that we kind of came up with towards the end. Anyway, the toilet would just randomly bubble, and it was worse than just bubbling because it would bubble and then kind of shoot up a little bit. Not like a geyser shooting to the ceiling, but it would kind of splash up. So if you're sitting on the toilet, then the toilet water goes up your ass there, which obviously is very unpleasant, especially in a public toilet or semi-public toilet because it's a hotel room. So uh, this was very bothersome, especially to my girlfriend, because she didn't want to sit on the toilet because at any time it can bubble up like that with no warning. And you don't even know when it's going to happen. We never solved this. We stayed there for two nights, and it just wasn't worth putting out the effort to solve it for them because we were not there long enough. And also by the time we kind of realized that we had everything unpacked, it just was too much of a pain in the ass to change rooms. So uh, they did give me somewhat of a break off the bill because of this, and they acknowledged it was happening, but they claimed that they hadn't heard of it before, which is surprising. But what a weird problem to have a toilet that just randomly bubbles like that. <laughs> and we, I watched it. I, I saw it happen a few times, and you watch the toilet water move, and it's like, and you see bubbling, and then it splashes up. Never seen that in my life. Another weird thing. Later in the trip, we were in a room where... Starting around 10-something p.m., we started hearing a very low, and I don't mean low in volume, I mean low in pitch, a very low bass-type sound and vibration that my girlfriend described as being in your soul. And it did kind of feel like it was going to your soul. It's like, and it would fill the area where the beds were. If you walked around the room, interestingly enough, you couldn't hear it on the extreme sides of the room. You could walk by the window, you wouldn't hear it. You could walk by the door, you wouldn't hear it. But by the beds, it was very noticeable. And it would get louder, it would get softer, it would disappear for a minute or two, but then it would come back. I put my ear to the wall, and I couldn't hear it through the wall. So we don't know what was causing it. But it was 
persistent. So we looked up reviews of the property. We actually found reviews complaining about that exact sound. Not a whole lot of them, but we found some about a month old complaining about the sound. One of the reviews actually was very detailed, and the person claimed to know the cause of it. The person claimed that it was the ceiling, or not the ceiling, the rooftop exhaust fan that had an issue, and that the hotel had a fight with a vendor that installed that fan, and that uh, the vendor wasn't paid, and the vendor was not going to come back and fix the issue unless he was paid, and they're in, the, in like a stalemate about it. In the meantime, uh, some of the rooms there under that exhaust fan are experiencing this problem. Now, that may or may not be true. That's what a reviewer on the internet wrote a month prior to our issue, but they definitely described the exact problem we were having. So uh, this wasn't a new thing they weren't aware of, and the staff was very cagey about it. They, it was clear they knew. They're, I'm, they're, I'm like, have you heard of this? They're like, uh, no. I said, no one's told you? Well, we've kind of heard a few rumors that, that this is happening here, but we haven't really caught it happening. Like, It was very weird. Instead, of, It's either, yes, we've heard about this, or no, we've never heard about this ever. It's a, Instead, it's like, well, we kind of heard about it, but we don't really know that much about it. It's like, what kind of answer is that? This is a very unusual problem. I, I've stayed in hundreds of hotels in my life. And I've never seen anything like this. This wasn't just noise. This wasn't just uh, sound coming from another room. This was a weird, low, vibrating bass-type sound that is persistent. And it's something you can tolerate fine for a few minutes. But imagine sitting there for hours with that going on in your room when you're trying to sleep. And of all things, it happened to be uh, worst right by where the beds were. So we eventually switched rooms in the middle of the night, which is very unpleasant. And uh, when I asked the manager the next day to give me something for all this happening, especially since they've known about it for a month, obviously, and uh, nothing was done, she told me that she's going to give me uh, 500 points, which is worth $3. (laughs) That's what she offered me as compensation for this. $3. $3 in points, not even three real dollars. She was very obnoxious and nasty with me about it. Let me tell you, there were some uh, reports made because uh, this was a hotel that was independently owned but associated with a uh, a larger brand. And I made a com- it's a franchise, and I I made a complaint to the larger brand, which is investigating this. And in the meantime, the brand itself actually gave me a credit. So pretty bad. It's one thing if this just happens and they learn about it for the first time. It's another thing to neglect this for a month when they're aware of it and keep giving out these rooms. Because in my opinion, from kind of walking around investigating the whole thing, it appears to me this only affected a few rooms and we were lucky enough to get those rooms. And instead of taking those rooms out of service, they were greedy and wanted to keep selling those rooms during high season and collecting the money for them. And we were fortunate enough to get them. So there were some other problems there I won't get into, but uh, a lot of strange things. Another weird thing, then I'll move on here, but another weird thing that happened on this trip was I got a suite in one of the places and it was one of the four best rooms in the house. It wasn't a huge hotel, but there were four of the largest suites on the property, all pretty much the same, and I got one of them. So you'd think those would be the four best rooms on the property and they'd also have a good location, right? You'd think they wouldn't put them in a terrible spot nobody wants to be. Well, would you believe that they actually put this suite this uh it was supposed to be the best room on property with a common wall to the elevator i don't mean it was near an elevator i mean the wall of the bedroom actually was the same wall of the elevator shaft so all night you hear ding ding 
ding, through the wall. How'd they build a hotel like that? (laughs) I mean, I, I guess you can have a room there, but you don't put the suite there. You don't put one of the most expensive rooms in the place there. That was a terrible design. Now, I can't blame the manager for that because uh, the manager didn't build a hotel, but that uh, that was unpleasant, too. At least that manager, though, I, I got something back for that as well, but at least she was nice about it and uh, she was understanding. But that, that was something I'd never seen before. I, I've had rooms that are noisy and are in bad spots, and I put a lot of effort, by the way, into not getting put in a bad spot. But who saw that coming? Actually, I couldn't control that one because... Uh, as I said, there were four of these rooms in the hotel, and the other three were previously checked into the day before. So this was the last one. So this was the only one available that day. But I had no idea. Obviously, I wouldn't have booked it if I knew that problem existed. But uh, that's the type of thing. I don't know. They should disclose it or something, because that's something you just don't expect. You don't expect when you get the most expensive suite in the place that you're going to have a common wall with the elevator. <laughs> so weird things happening on this trip involving the hotels other than that uh there weren't any kind of uh, bad incidents the rental car was fine i had an suv worked out it felt like playing tetris with all the stuff you have a 16-day trip you have a lot of stuff to bring and you have uh, a number of people there so barely squeezed everything in did a lot of packing and unpacking which i don't miss because i went to a lot of places where did i go we went to Denver, we went to Colorado Springs, we went to Canyon City, that's C-A-N-O-N City, Canyon City is how it's pronounced, and there's a very interesting suspension bridge there in Gondola that uh, you should check out if you ever go there, it's south of Colorado Springs. We went to Blackhawk, which is a casino town with a number of Indian casinos, including a Caesars property, though I did not stay at the Caesars property. Oh, that's another weird thing I should tell you before we end this. Blackhawk, uh, we went to the Monarch, which is a new hotel, a tall new hotel in Blackhawk. Very modern, very nice. I have a lot of good things to say about it. It even has a cool beverage station where just any time, and you don't even have to stay there, just any time if you're in Blackhawk uh, in, in the Monarch, you can just walk up and uh, fill up your own cups of soda or coffee. Complimentary, just whenever you feel like it. It's one thing to ask the drink girl to bring you a soda, but, I mean, you can just walk up and, and, and take it to your heart's content, which I've never seen before at a casino. That was cool, but uh, that's not a hotel feature. That was a casino feature, but the the property was, like, really modern. Uh, I, I liked the rooms, so I have a lot of good things to say about the Monarch, except, except the food situation in Blackhawk and the Monarch itself is horrendous horrendous the monarch has over 500 rooms and there was no food option for us i mean when i say for us i mean for anybody except the buffet and a steakhouse a very expensive steakhouse which is open only like a few hours a day that's it there was a coffee shop type place but it was temporarily closed for renovation which i know that was just bad timing but even if that were open that would only be three options there's no food court. There's no quick options. There's no Starbucks. There's, there's nothing to get quick food. There's no other restaurants. This is a pretty big hotel. Over 500 rooms. It's a, with a casino attached to it. And that's all they have. But then you go next door to the aisle 
which is a Caesars property now. Similar there. They they do have a kind of one fast food type place there, but that's it. They they have very few options. And and what options exist in the town are very poorly rated. You look at all the restaurants in Blackhawk on Yelp or on Google Reviews or TripAdvisor. It's like two stars, two and a half stars, one star, one and a half stars. I mean, horrendous reviews for the food, which I'm sure are not inaccurate. So the food is bad and there are very few options, especially considering the size of the town. And there's no fast food places there. It's not like you can go down the street to a Wendy's or a Burger King or a Sonic or a McDonald's. You can't even get that. None of that exists there, period. There's no fast food in the entire place. There's, As I said, there's one place like sort like pseudo fast food inside an aisle. But that's not open 24 hours, by the way. It's open to like 10 or 11. So boy, is the food lacking there. We had a real hard time getting food there. And uh, I ended up just going over to Isle, which is across the street, and doing takeout from that like pseudo fast food place and paying with my rewards credits. And that had a massive line because there's very few food options, so everybody's going there. So at a massive line, the only reason I didn't stand on it is because fortunately they had a diamond line, and there were like no diamonds there except me, so I always got to the front of the line. So that was nice. So that's one thing you should think about if you have a diamond or a higher card at Caesars. But boy, I could not believe how bad the food choices were in Blackhawk. Very few, and what there was was terrible. I didn't want to try. Like, if a place is rated two stars on Yelp with a ton of reviews, if it's a restaurant, it's, it's terrible. Without fail, it's usually terrible. The only exception would be something like a, a known fast food brand like, like Subway or McDonald's. If you see like a three-star, two-and-a-half-star review of that, it usually doesn't mean that much. You kind of know what to expect in one of those places. There are some variants in those type of places, especially if it has bad ownership, but you generally know what to expect of those type of brands. But any kind of regular restaurant that doesn't have at least three and a half stars is going to be awful. In fact, I don't even like the three and a half star restaurants. Those tend to be pretty bad too. But sometimes some okay restaurants can get a bum rap on the online reviews and get three and a half stars. But if you see two and a half, two, it's, it's always terrible. So I didn't want to try them. Not like they were cheap either. So boy, was the food situation in Blackhawk terrible. Someone told me that they think it's because Blackhawk recently expanded. Like the Monarch is brand new. So there's a lot of new expansion in Blackhawk, and it looks like the town's just not ready for it. Another disappointing thing in Blackhawk was uh, they supposedly had a very good 30-60 limit hold'em game with a half kill that I was looking forward to play, and I brought money to play it, and it didn't exist. There was an interest list. It never got going. I was even willing to play 510 no limit, and that couldn't get going. So there was nothing higher than like 2-5 at any of the area casinos there in Blackhawk. So I, I didn't even bother playing. That was disappointing because I was looking forward to play a little poker and just uh, didn't end up doing it because it didn't exist. I even tried to get a 3060 going, started an interest list when there wasn't one. Just just never happened. So that was kind of disappointing, but... I think some of these poker rooms are having a hard time getting action again post-COVID. Oh, I want to finish where I, where I went. Uh, so it was Blackhawk. Then I went to uh, Rocky Mountain National Park, which I recommend. Very interesting. Very uh, nice drive you can make through the park. You should go uh, make reservations to get into the park. Otherwise, you have to wait till 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. for part of it to get into if you don't have reservations. But you still can get in after those time if you want. 
if you don't have reservations. But uh, very interesting drive. Colorado is one of the rare states that you can drive at altitudes like 12,000 feet. And Pikes Peak, of course, is 14,000-something feet. But even aside from Pikes Peak, there's a lot of roads within Rocky Mountain National Park that go over 12,000. And you just don't see that anywhere else in the country except for Hawaii. So it's pretty unique to be driving at that type of altitude and and looking at the mountain scenery uh, that way. It's it's a lot different than being on the ground and looking up at mountains. So that's a very interesting drive there through uh, Rocky Mountain National Park and... and, uh, we got out and explored in some places. Uh, Aspen, if you go up near uh, Independence Pass, which is uh, west of Aspen, directly west of it, there's uh, some nice things to see there. There's actually an ice cave we went to in As- uh, near Aspen uh, towards Independence Pass. We did a hike at Independence Pass, which is over 12,000 feet. That was pretty challenging because of the thin air up there. We also went to... Uh, Montrose and saw the Black Canyon of the Gunnison. That's a national park with some very uh, steep cliffs. It's pretty interesting to see. Most people don't go do it. You should go see it. Uh, it's not uh, too far out of the way, especially if you're going to uh, Telluride in Durango. So we passed through Telluride and stopped there. Took the gondola, free gondola up there. We went to Durango and we went to uh, Mesa Verde National Park where you get to see some uh, cliffside uh, dwellings that the Native Americans once built. And a lot of it pretty well preserved or uh, recreated, partially recreated where the preservation wasn't possible. So that's uh, a cool thing to see. I remember seeing that as a kid. And then we went to northern Arizona and saw a pretty uh, obscure place that most people don't know about called uh, Vermilion Cliffs and Lee's Ferry. You should Google that. Pretty scenic area. Uh, it's not developed at all. There's very little over there. There's like a few motels and uh, two restaurants. But uh, if you get a chance to be over there, I would uh, recommend uh, checking that out. And uh, that was on the way to the north rim of the Grand Canyon, where we almost got struck by lightning. A thunderstorm, which uh, moved in very, very quickly. A lot quicker than I expected. We saw it in the distance, but boy, it came fast. And we rushed to the parking lot to get back to the car, to safety. But uh, we weren't quite in time. And as we got to the parking lot, back from the trail, we were off the trail at this point, but we were back from the parking lot. And I heard the loudest thunder I've ever heard because it was right overhead. In fact, it was so loud, it didn't come off as normal thunder. You know how normal thunder kind of sounds like... uh, it doesn't sound crackly. It sounds like just one consistent sound. This was crackly like over your head. I, when I heard that with how loud it was and how crackly it was, I knew it was right there. And before I could even process it, a big bolt of lightning came right down very, you know, fairly close to us. Not close enough to harm us, but fairly close to us. So you see this bolt of lightning come down really close by. And that super loud thunder, that definitely gets your attention. So we sprinted at that point the remainder of the way to the car and jumped in the car, and we were safe. But, boy, that was uh, that was close. I was uh, on, on that trail when the storm rapidly got closer and then it got windy. I'm like, oh, shit. Once the wind started, I knew there was bad news when it went from calm to, like, 
windy very quickly, I knew it was time to get out. <laughs> so, just a little bit slow on that. We're too deep in the trail, and uh, fortunately the lightning didn't hit us. Again, I don't know what it hit. I don't know exactly how far it was from us, but it was it was very close. It was very close, and I've never heard thunder that loud and that crackly before. It was clearly like right overhead, and the, the lightning bolt, I've never seen one so close either. So that was a new experience I don't want to have again. If you have any questions about uh, recommendations or anti-recommendations, things to avoid for uh, a Colorado trip of your own, let me know. I'll be happy to tell you. You can text me at 775-372-8355. We left on July 15th. We came back on July 31st. Final stop was in Las Vegas. And then we went back. Stopped in Vegas because it happened to be on the way. All right, so moving on. I will do this topic, and then we'll call Ryan Feldman. This next topic, uh, talk about an update regarding Mike Possel. Always have updates with Mike Possel. It's an ongoing situation. As you guys know, in October of last year, I was sued for $330 million by Mike Possel for defamation. And that suit has now been dismissed. In fact, Postle dismissed it on his own, but not before we filed an anti-slap motion, which would require Mike Postle to pay me my attorney's fees if I prevailed. And indeed, indeed, I prevailed, mostly because he dropped the case, but we were probably going to prevail anyway, as did uh, Veronica Brill, the whistleblower of the whole thing and a co-defendant. So... The two of us were the ones who had the anti-slap motions. Uh, I was represented by attorney Eric Benzamokin, and uh, Veronica was represented by uh, celebrity free speech attorney Mark Randazza. So the latest update to this it has to do with collection, because Mike Postle owes me and Veronica both about $27,000, uh, slightly more to Veronica, but roughly about twenty-seven k for each of us for our attorney's fees. And that was ruled by the court. The problem is collection. Mike Postle has not paid me a penny. He has not paid a penny to Veronica. And it didn't look like that he was intending to pay anything. Of course, we made our demands for payment. And uh, those went ignored, as we expected them to. So, uh, fortunately, my attorney, Eric Benzamokin, has a specialty in bankruptcy. And you may say, well, what does bankruptcy have to do with this? Well, I learned something new every time Eric does something involving this case. Because he didn't even tell me that this was an option when we were discussing the case, but then he told me that this was an option, and uh, we're doing it. And that is to put Mike Possel into involuntary Chapter 7 bankruptcy. Here's how it works. You may wonder, why would we want to do that at first? thought you may say, wait a minute, wouldn't that make it easier for him to dodge the debt if he could uh, declare himself bankrupt? Well, not quite. And obviously, uh, Eric would never do anything that would uh, harm our ability to collect. But uh, if there's ever someone you should trust regarding bankruptcy issues, it would be Eric because he does bankruptcies all the time for clients. That's uh, a lot of his practice has been bankruptcy recently. He's told me uh, about... Uh, all the bankruptcy cases he's done. He didn't give me details, but you know he's told me that he's done a lot of them, and that was before he ended up representing me, which is in our conversations about what type of work he's been doing recently. So 
when he said that bankruptcy is going to be brought into this, I thought, okay, well, I've got a real expert here. And indeed, he came up with what looks like a good idea. So the point of putting or attempting to put Mike Postle under uh, Chapter 7 bankruptcy is to force him to declare his assets and possibly have a trustee appointed by the court to liquidate whatever assets he has. So basically, he's forced to deal with what he owes us. It becomes a lot tougher for him than if we do nothing and just wait for him to pay us, which probably will never happen if we just wait for him to do it. So we filed, and uh, when I say we, uh, I mean Eric did it on my behalf and Mark Randazza did it on Veronica's behalf. And this was done at the same time and they uh, cooperated in their uh, doing this because it's basically the same thing. So the attorneys got together and basically did this jointly for each of their clients. And this filing gives Postle 21 days, which is until August 12th, because this is filed in July. So he has about another week from today. He has till August 12th to answer our claim for the money. If he does not answer, then the Chapter 7 petition will be granted automatically. Yeah, Chapter 7 is the form of bankruptcy that is straight liquidation. That's not reorganization. It's straight liquidation. So then we can attach liens against any assets that he's found to own. Now, I am not sure about the home he has in uh, Antelope, California. He may not own that home. In fact, I think he doesn't. So that may not be uh, very useful. But uh, there can be other assets. Anything that can be considered assets can be liquidated and we can get the money from it. So this would include any kind of vehicle, any furniture, any collectibles. He is said to own uh, baseball cards. So I don't know for sure if he owns baseball cards, but I'm hearing rumors from a lot of people that he owns some expensive baseball cards. And uh, those could be liquidated. Basically, anything that of value that could be liquidated, uh, he could be forced to have to sell or to surrender to us to sell to pay the debt. It also could reveal if he has attempted to hide any assets. So they can check if he's transferred anything to third parties in order to avoid having to surrender it to us. And this, these transfers could actually be undone if it turned out that Postle had made these transfers for that purpose. These would be determined by the courts. What would happen is that uh, if he either doesn't file an objection or if he challenges our petition for the involuntary bankruptcy and loses, then the court will appoint a Chapter 7 trustee. That trustee would then attempt to identify all of Postle's assets and uh, would be able to legally seize and liquidate those assets for payment. Eric Benzamokin made a statement to Cards Chat, an article by Haley Hintz. He made the statement... Uh, Mr. Postle owes valid judgments to both Mr. Wattellis and Ms. Brill. He has gone on record about a documentary being made about this whole affair and upon information and belief has other assets such as sports memorabilia that could be used to satisfy his debts. Basically, if Postle is hiding assets or has 
put his money into baseball cards that he thinks we'll never find or anything like that, uh, it's going to be a lot harder for him to get away with this if this is what's going on. Basically, the court is going to uh, be very closely examining what he does and does not have. And he also could end up uh, perjuring himself if he lies about it. So it becomes a lot tougher to hide from debt at that point. So that's our latest attempt. And again, this is happening both by me and by Veronica Brill through our attorneys. And anyone who might be feeling sorry for Postle here, again, I gave him a way out of this. At the beginning, we told Mike Postle that we are going to be doing this. And we said, Mike, drop me out of it. You don't have to drop the whole case. You can continue against every one of the defendants except me, and we will drop our whole opposition to this. We will not go after you for any fees. We'll just pretend this whole thing never happened, basically. I wasn't going to agree to shut up about anything. I wasn't going to agree to stop talking, but I, I was going to agree to not go after him legally for any fees incurred in responding to his lawsuit. That, that was the offer. Drop me out with prejudice so we can't refile. And then I would not interfere in anything else going on. That would be up to the other defendants to do whatever they want themselves. That was the offer to him. So even if he felt his lawsuit had merit, then he could have proceeded with it. Just not against me, because I really had no part in any of this. I came late. I've explained this before. I should never have been sued. Regardless of whether Mike thinks that I harmed him in some way, or he feels he was harmed by these people, if he looks at it, if he looks at the facts, I did not have any kind of significant part, or even semi-significant part, in this entire matter, other than commenting on the side of what was already happening, already going on, what was already a huge story before I said or wrote one thing. If I was never born, he'd be in the exact same spot with the exact same reputation, with the exact same number of people knowing about the story. So I was not a whistleblower. I was not one of the people blowing up the story. I came late into the whole thing. Of course, I'm going to talk about it. I talk about all kinds of accused frauds and scams and scandals in poker. I talk about any kind of significant poker news on this show. I've done it for nine and a half years. I did it for decades before that. And uh, that's always been what I've done with everything and everyone. So he wasn't special. That's all I was doing, was commenting on a story and giving my opinion. And I got sued for it. And... Even if he feels the others wronged him, which I don't believe they did, but even if he feels the others did, even if he feels the others ruined his reputation, I did not. And I gave him the chance through my attorney. We made it very clear that I had no real part in this. So regardless of how he felt about what happened with all these other people, that I was not someone who should have been sued. I should not have been dragged into this. And he said, no. He said, nope, we're going forward. Still happening. You're still part of it. Tough luck. Well, okay. So we had to respond. We had to do what we had to do. There's no sneakiness. Everything was straightforward. We did exactly what we said we were going to do from the start. Right from the start, we said, an anti-slap is coming. You're going to owe the fees if you lose. We told him right then. Because I believe in being honest and straightforward even when someone hits me with a frivolous suit. I believe in telling them what's going to come if they don't drop it. And then doing what we say we're going to do. And that's exactly what we did. So anyone critical of this, anyone thinking we're being too hard on him or that uh, 
We're kicking him while he's down. Keep that in mind. We did everything we could to avoid this from coming to this spot. I did not want to go after Mike Postle's assets and try to collect money from him. I, I didn't want to collect attorney's fees from him. I, I didn't want any of that. I wanted to be out. I wanted to be done. I didn't want to be censored. I wanted to be able to say what I wanted, but I, w- I was not interested in, in uh, having a court battle with him. He forced it on me. So I defended myself. And I defended myself with a good attorney. You have to make sure when you bring a case like this in a state like California or Nevada that your case is very strong or this can happen. And it did. Because the case was not strong. It was incredibly weak. Okay, so we're going to call up Mr. Ryan Feldman, who I, I really hope answers the damn phone. <laughs> I, I have no reason to believe he won't. It's just, you know, you know our luck. You know we uh, never have what we expect on this show. And uh, we're going to talk to Mr. Feldman about a number of things. Ryan Feldman was a, a very instrumental figure in Live at the Bike. If you've ever watched that over the years, Ryan Feldman had a big part in it. Ryan Feldman brought a lot of people into that game. He was uh, the producer of Life at the Bike. When you'd see interesting players on Life at the Bike and wondered how they got there, who contacted them, who brought them into the game, who put these games together, a lot of this stuff behind the scenes was Ryan Feldman. And he he did a great job there. Uh, A lot of what Live at the Bike was was thanks to him. I, I felt he was treated very poorly by the bike, which we'll let him say. But he was uh, fired by the bike last year, partially due to COVID. But the the whole thing was done in a very uh, callous manner. And also, it looked like they just didn't appreciate at all his contributions. And it looked like they broke some promises to him. I'll let him explain it. And the good news is that Ryan moved on. And basically, he's starting a similar show this week. It's already started, in fact, uh, at The Hustler, which is close to the bike. So The Hustler, which opened in, uh, I think, the year 2000, the first place I ever played poker. Ryan now has a show there, and he's promising that a lot of the people you like to see on these L.A. area poker streams, like Live at the Bike, that uh, they would be there, including uh, Garrett Adelstein. Or Adel, yeah, Adelstein. I'm always forgetting if it's Adelstein or Adelman. It is Adelstein. Bart Hansen will be involved. A lot of the uh, people who you knew from Live at the Bike, both behind the scenes and on that stream, will be part of the Hustler game. So we're going to talk to him about three things. Number one, what happened at the bike. Number two, the new Hustler show. And number three, his incident with PayPal. Basically, he got cheated by PayPal, too. So we've got a lot to talk about with him. And this is good timing to have him on. So let's call him up. He said to call him any time after 11, and then he goes to sleep at 1. So I feel uh, it's near midnight now. So I think it's a good time to call him. He's a surprising phone number with an area code I wouldn't expect. I'm not going to give it out, but not what I'd expect. Hello? Ryan Feldman, welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Hey, what's going on? So I'm glad to have you on the show. I've I've meant to have you on here for a while, and uh, happens to be a good timing now with with everything uh, going on with your your new show at Hustler, and uh, with with everything going on with PayPal, and so there's a lot to talk to you about here. 
Uh, I, I was surprised by your phone number. Of course, I'm not going to give it out on the air, but I was surprised by the area code of your phone number, which is not a Southern California area code. Yeah. No, I'm from the Philly area originally, so I've kept my same phone number since I was a kid. So, yeah. yeah I'm from, from Philly. Yeah, I recognize that area code. I go, wait a minute. That's, that is not uh, what I would yeah. have expected to call you. I've always thought of you as an L.A. guy. Anyway. Uh, uh, just moved out here in like 2014. I didn't know that. I, th- I thought you were out here a lot yeah. longer. Okay, so I, I gave a bit of an introduction about you prior to calling you, and uh, I was explaining a bit of your background, but uh, I don't want to tell your story. So uh, let's let's start out with uh, how, how did you get involved with Live at the Bike in the first place? Um, I'll tell you. I'm, I'm sending out a tweet so I can promote this. We're live right now, right? Yes. Yeah, okay, I'm just going to uh, give you guys a little... Okay, well, no, thank you. I appreciate it. Anything uh, you ask listeners? Live, now, tune in. All right, just so I don't forget. Um, so how did it, So you said, how did I start with Live the Bike? Yes. Um, so, okay, well, I'll tell the whole story. Um, since you guys like to have uh, long shows and, and uh, get all the stories out there, right? Yes. So, uh, um, okay, so my background, I originally worked in sports media. And uh, I took a job at ESPN as a researcher uh, in the stats and information department, working with talent, coming up with like the graphics you see on the air, like cool stats and, and different things like that. And um, I, I moved up to Connecticut in 2011 to work there. Um, and then 2014, I transferred out to LA to work on NBA Countdown. And uh, I was always an East Coast guy. And I was like, you know what? That sounds like fun, living in L.A., working on NBA Countdown. You know, I was always a basketball guy. I worked in college basketball and then, and then NBA. And uh, so I took a job out in L.A. Now, I always played a lot of poker, liked poker a lot, became more and more into it as the years went on. And by the time I moved out to L.A., I was like, oh, man, this is great. Like, now I'll be, you know, real close to a bunch of casinos, card rooms. I could play a lot. Because when I was in Connecticut, like, it's just – you know, if you know Connecticut at all and where ESPN is, there's just, you know, it's a normal suburban area, but it's not like anything exciting. And so people tend to just be really into work there. And, you know, just like, especially at the beginning, my first year or two, I just, you know, loved the job at the beginning and it got progressively not as exciting. But, uh, you know, I just was working. Like, even when I went home, I'd be like coming up with ideas and putting projects together and things like that. And, um, but then, you know, I, I would get bored on my off days because, you know, everyone's schedules all over the place, you know, I didn't have the same off days as other friends. And so, um, I just started getting, like, I, I took some time off of poker when I first moved out there and then I started getting back into it. And eventually every single time I was off for my two off days, I would drive up to Foxwoods. Um, and I would stay overnight there in the hotel. I get like free rooms and I would just stay there for like two nights. And I literally just play every single minute that I was awake on my off days and then I would just drive back to, to Bristol and go to work, you know, and just look forward to my off days to go play poker again. And that was like my thing, you know, and that was the first time I started playing five ten, started playing some bigger games. So when I moved to LA, I got to play more often because I was, it was closer to the casino. And then also, um, I just had like, I could, I made my hours more and more free time. And, you know, there was like only one manager there. I kind of like wouldn't work full shifts. I would just start taking off like early, just getting my work done quickly and just going to play, you know, and I got more and more into poker. It was a lot of fun. So eventually I got to 2016. I had done two full NBA seasons, 
to the NBA finals. You know, we got to, we traveled and Warriors Cavs finals and all that super fun. And, you know, that year I just got less into it. Um, if you remember like ESPN had a bunch of layoffs starting back then and, you know, some of the great managers got laid off and just the, the whole like workflow there changed. It wasn't as fun. The atmosphere wasn't as fun. It got more corporate. I was more into poker and I was just like, you know what? I just, this isn't fun anymore. Like I just want to leave and do something else, even though I love sports. And I was, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I was like, you know what? I want to try to be like a professional poker player and just see if I can make it or not. And I was, I was swinging hard when I was playing, you know, outside of work. Like I would sometimes go on sick runs and win a lot, but then, you know, I, I knew that like, you know, my, my swings could be volatile, but I, I just really wanted to play. And uh, I remember I was out at the world series that summer and I was thinking about quitting when I got back and I saw my friends and they were going to play the main event. And I was just like, man, you know what? I just, you know, this is fun. Like, I just want to do this. So I I quit ESPN and I just was like, I'm just going to try to play for a few months and see what happens. And worst case, I have a good resume and I could just go find, you know, some other work in the industry. Right. Uh, you're still with me, right? Yeah, oh, yeah, I'm sure. listening. No, in fact, what yeah. you just said, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, no, it, just it reminds me of it r- reminds me of my story actually because uh, I had a regular job when I finally became a, a pro poker player back in 2003, and that was my feeling too. Like I'm going to try to see if this works out, and if it doesn't, then I can just go back to uh, a similar job that I had before. So I, I tried it for six months, yeah. saw, saw what would happen. Yeah, exactly. I kind of just, you know, I, I guess I've always just been very into like, I want to do what I want, you know? And, and I just, I'm very determined and I believe I'm going to be successful, whatever I do. But like, I don't want to do something that I'm not enjoying. So it just it goes back forever. Like I, I, I always wanted to work in sports media, you know, first in like broadcasting. And then I kind of went into research or journalism and then research. But, you know, even when I was younger, like in my twenties and I was like living at home, like a couple the the first few years after college, I was like, you know, I wasn't making any money really. And I, but I could have just went and did different things and, you know, got a real job, but I was like, no, I would just want to work in basketball. So I had like a million different jobs where they're all related to basketball. I work, I got into journalism because I was like, Oh, well, you know, I want to be on TV, but so, you know, or radio journalism seems like a, a good way to get into that. Like a Stephen A. Smith, you know? And so I got, I ended up, I started my own college basketball NBA draft website. So this is back like 2007 when I graduated college. And then I started using that to get a bunch of journalism jobs. So I worked in newspapers, I worked for websites and I had all these different like freelance jobs and I would just travel and like basically break even just covering stuff and, and running a website just so that I can meet people in the industry and just go to basketball games, which was cool to me and like cover games, you know, I get to like talk to basketball players and become friends with them and things like that. Like one time I went to Vegas to cover the team USA training camp, the select team, because I was just like, I want to go to Vegas. Let me try to get a media credential and just go get to see like the team USA practice and interview them. And I just did that because I could, you know, and ended up, you know, meeting all these cool NBA players. And so anyway, so I always wanted to do what I wanted and everything was basketball related. I coached basketball. I ran a basketball league in the summer. You know, I did some broadcasting and, um, uh, you know, eventually I learned about research and did an internship at CBS sports and ended up getting a job at ESPN. So I, even when like I wasn't making any money and I would play poker for fun on the side and I would just lose my money and I was like basically broke a lot. I would just, still be like, no, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to figure out a way. And then finally I got the ESPN job and I'm like, okay, now I have a full-time job. 
then I started playing poker, you know, then every, so when I, when I left ESPN to play poker, you know, it, it's scary leaving something that's like a dream job, basically something that I could just stay there for 20 years and move up slowly. And maybe, you know, it's like, Oh, maybe in a, one day I'll make a hundred K or 125 K a year, you know? And, but it's like, is that, you know, I'm just never going to be happy enough and wealthy doing that, you know? And there just really wasn't like an upward mobility plan for me in what I was doing. Like there just wasn't, you know, it was like, okay, maybe if I'm lucky, I can become a producer. But there just wasn't really like, man, like I'm on the upward trajectory to be like a CEO. Like it just wasn't that. And I'm like, do I want to do this forever? You know, so um, I just took a risk and I was like, I'm going to go play poker. And and I, I was like scared to tell my parents at first. But when I told them, I told them like how I just kind of wanted to follow my dreams and try it. And You know, if I wait too long to see if I can make it in poker, then like I'd be too old. And, you know, I kind of like gave them the whole speech and they were like, you know what? You're right. Like you're young, just go do it and see what happens. Like you're, you'll be successful in whatever you do. And so I did it. And then, you know, I didn't really do so well um, at first, but then after a couple of months, this is when live of the bike came about. It's like, everything just happens for a reason and everything I've done really, if we really talk about the whole, you know, plan which, or the whole, uh, you know, career path, which we can. Um, so Nicole Jurgens, who was the producer back then, um, one of the owners of Live of the Bike back then. And so I had known her and I had played on the show a few times. I had commentated a few times, like kind of just volunteered to, to commentate and had known her and the girl that ran it before her as well. Um, and uh, so, you know, I had already, they, the show knew me and I saw her put like a tweet out or something like that where she said that she was stepping down and because she just, for whatever reason, you know, and uh, so I immediately, I jumped on that and I was like, Oh my God, this is perfect. That, now, hold on. Uh, what, what, year, what year was this in? When did this happen? 2016. Okay. So this was like maybe September, October, somewhere in that range, 2016. Okay. This is September. I want to say, and I'm like, Oh my God. Cause I had left ESPN in June, July, June, basically. Right. And so, um, you know, and, and I wasn't doing that well for those next like three months like I just started losing and I kind of was just like, didn't know what to do and was trying to figure it out. And then this came about and I'm like, Oh my God, this is perfect. I have to get this, you know? And so, um, I was like, this is poker. This is like what I'm passionate about right now. Like, I, like producing a show, organizing lineups. Like this sounds amazing. Like I have so many ideas. I would love to like have my own show. I'd love to commentate. Like, this is just great. I need this, you know? And I had all these ideas in my head of like how to improve the show. So I was like, what do I do? So I asked her, I was like, Hey, like, how's this work? You know? And she's like, well, it's ownership and sell it, blah, blah, blah. She told me to get in contact with Evelyn, who is the, the like founder and um, biggest shareholder in the company. I met with Evelyn. We talked, you know, I gave her my ideas and um, she was like, you know, this is good. She's like, how about this? So then she got back to me. She's like, how about this? Why? Um, how about we give you, and I, my, one of my ideas was just, you need higher stakes games, like these small games, great but like you're never going to build it into something big you have you have to like and i was like i feel confident in the, some of the players i know and just like my ability to organize things and and, and all that 
I was like, I think I can make this happen. Like, yeah, I want to do it. You know what? It's, fun, it's funny you mentioned that because Live of the Mike, it, it predated you, your involvement with it by a long time. I remember it probably about 10 years before yeah. you were there. But uh, it, right. it was mostly like just low stakes games on there. And um, so people knew it was there, but I, I saw less interest in it than when the higher stakes games got going in the later years. Right. And uh, right, yeah, exactly. so that's, that's good like, that you like brought I, that to them. I remembered them. one game from like the the year or two before that, before I came involved, there was like one big game they did randomly where it was like Jennifer Tilly and a bunch of pros. If you remember like Jake Schindler maybe, or like, um, who was it? Uh, I can't even remember. There was like a bunch of like sick, sick pros who like did a game with Jennifer Tilly. Oh, uh, Tom Marchese. I remember had Kings against, folded Kings against Jennifer Tilly's aces. And they did one game, and I thought it was a super cool. Like Justin Schwartz was in that game, and I was like, "Man, this is like this is a really cool lineup. Like, why don't they do this all the time? Like, this is how you grow something big. Like, yeah, it's great to have your local guys, but if you also have something with big names and and big money on the table, people will watch. And like, I think I can make this happen. You know, maybe not like you know, I didn't think at that time like every week, but I was like." you know, once a month or something. And so she's like, all right, well, how about this? She was like, you know, why don't I give you like two days and two dates in like a month, you just plan whatever you want to plan. And like you produce those shows and we'll just see how it goes. So I, I still remember the dates. I'm pretty sure it was November 28th, 29th or November 29th, 30th, 2016. I did a 2550 no limit. And then the next day, a 2550 PLO. The no limit went amazing. Um, I don't remember exactly everyone was, that was in it, but I believe it was like Ryan Fee, I think, maybe Alec Torelli, and like you know a bunch of local guys, and you know it was like a, a cool game, and it went really well. The next day, the PLO game didn't go so well; I had people cancel. It was just like all pros basically, but it it was still pretty cool. Um, and so I produced them, and it was good. And so then, you know. Um, after that, I talked back to them again and they're like, Hey, like, you know, we, we think this is going to work, but like, uh, let's have you organize, like, just take over. We'll just pay you, you know, like a monthly fee to just be like the guy who organizes the games. Cause they're in like a transition period right now. And Nicole was out. They didn't know what to do. It was just like, you know, there was nobody that could pr- like produce and like run games. Right. So, um, they, they just kind of were like, we'll pay you for this month to just like be the guy who organizes, you get the players in there, start the game. Like, okay, cool. So I did that. And then like a few weeks later, um, they got back to me and they're like, okay, we want to offer you the, the equity, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so they gave me like a price that was like super cheap. And, you know, I bought the equity off Nicole and, um, I, I made her, like, I just had to give her payments and, and then, um, you know, I, took over and that was it and so, then, so let me let me understand just, this correctly so you you bought a piece of live of the bike from nicole yeah correct yeah okay and and yeah, for the I, listener I, by I, the I, way I, just let me let, let me just uh clarify to the listener there's a lot of confusion that a lot of people believe that live of the bike and the bike are the same thing that live of the bike is, is no, just they're owned by the bike different. it's a company called company called joker gaming yeah, or at least it was or is. So, yeah. so you had you had a piece. You, you said a percent. I, I didn't hear that because I was talking. It was I was fifteen. I ended up getting like five percent much later. I got up to twenty at some point, but it was, okay. it was fifteen in the beginning. Okay, so okay, go, and, go on. So I was like the third. There was like only three of us at that time. Actually, no, sorry, there was four of us. Um, at that time, and I was the lowest, I believe, or maybe tied for lowest. I'm not sure, but the other one was Lyman, and so um you know, 
he was still there then, but then like two months in or a month, a month in was when everything like fell apart. And so we were doing really good for that like first month when I took over and he was like supportive, but he really wasn't doing much in the show. He was kind of just commentating a little bit here and there, but you know, they, they kind of, he kind of got into like, I, I got the feeling that like the other two owners who were more like passive um, kind of, um, and he was like kind of the face of it, you know, they, they kind of were like, I, I, f- I felt like they were kind of uh, um, annoyed by like some of his antics, but they were like kind of scared to do anything about it. And then once I came in and they saw my ability, like I, I immediately, before I even was an official owner, I booked that Doug Polk week. If you remember back then. And yeah. So I remember that, that well. Yes. Thing. That was like a month into me being an owner. And so that once I did that, they were like, Oh my God, like Ryan's a real deal. Like he's going to really elevate us. And so that's when they got the courage to like basically stand up to, to Lyman and, and like, you know, that's when things kind of fell apart. And I don't even know. It was weird because I ended up getting like blamed for it by him. But like, I really had not much to do with it. It was really like, just whatever it does. It's just a whole other discussion. But, but, you know, so anyway, so I, so then from then on, like everything was good. Like I was, uh, that's when we started crushing it. Like really once that Doug Polk week came, um, I mean, it was just like, we had so many eyes and everyone was talking about it and, you know, it was just amazing. I mean, uh, that was really like, I'm pretty sure that was like the first real stream that Doug played on. Like Doug was first starting to get big then, if I remember correctly. And that was like, um, I don't even know. Was that before upswing started? Maybe it was like a few months after upswing started or something, but that was like when he, he first started being on like a TV shows and streams and, and um yeah i mean it got really big that week and the games that we did we did some big some cool games i remember we had that really cool hand with like him and alex torelli that was like so epic back then you know and uh, you know back then i'm like oh my god a 25 50 or 5100 game like this is sick you know and um yeah i mean just from then on out like it just kept going and i was like man like so then like a couple months after that is when i was like you know what i think we can do a big game every single week like and when i just started i was like all right let's just do it and I just somehow was able to do a big game every single Friday after that. When I took over, we only had, I think we were doing like, they had just went to like three days a week the year before. And then I made it four days a week. And yeah. And and how did uh, Garrett get involved? So I knew Garrett um, from like early on when I moved to LA. I actually told this story on DGIS podcast recently. So it's funny. So this is like probably a few months into me living in LA. I'm playing 510 at Commerce late at night, like three in the morning. Okay. Cause I would just go play there like after ESPN, after work, I'd go like play all night or whatever. So I'm playing there one night and, you know, Garrett and, you know, DGAF, they're really good friends back then. And uh, they come and sit down at this table I'm playing. Okay. And they're just like drunk and loud and obnoxious and funny. I didn't know who they were. And uh, everybody um, at the table, I could tell thought that they were like fish because they were just like going nuts. They're super action. They're laughing you know, having a good time, raising huge, but like real quick, I was like, I realized I was like, no, these guys are pros. They're just like playing smaller than they usually are. They're just like dogging around, you know? And uh, that's when I met them for the first time. And then, you know, I, I never like really played with Garrett, but I would like see him, you know, playing 10, 20, 20, 40, whatever in the big part of commerce whenever I was there. And I kind of just like, we bonded right then and kind of just became friendly and stuff. I remember I went to his house one time with them and like just you know on a sunday to hang out and watch football and you know so we were kind of like friendly ish but not like like we hung out like once or twice but like we were friendly and then you know when i 
I started doing live of the bike and started doing the big games, I texted him early on and I was like, Hey man, just letting you know, I'm doing these Friday games, you know, would love to have you. And I, I kind of just knew from like knowing who he was and like everyone in LA kind of like talked about him. Like we would just be like, Oh my God, that's that guy Garrett that plays really big. Like he's super sick. Like he's crazy. You know, like everyone kind of like knew he was like this, this like unicorn, you know? And so, um, I was, I just had the feeling, I was like, this guy would be great for the stream. I could tell like, he's funny. He's a good personality. He plays deep. He's action. Like I just knew he'd be great for the stream. And I tried to get him in. I would like texted him one time and he's just like, yeah, I appreciate it. He was like, but you know, I don't really know if I want to like, uh, um, show my whole cards. Like, I don't know if it's a good idea for me, you know? And I'm just like, okay, no worries. Whatever. We didn't talk for a few months. Then I booked that, that game with Helmuth, or there was two different games. There was an Antonio game and a Helmuth game. And that was like after Doug Polk week, that was like six months later. That got us like the next, that was the next step of like a lot of notoriety. Right. And so uh, that was in August, late August. And so everyone was talking about that. And like a few days before that Antonio game, that was going to be like a 5,100. The lineup was sick. and Antonio was in it. And I remember he texted me. He's like, Hey man, like I would love to play, you know, um, if you have a seat. And I was like, Oh my God. And I was like, and like literally someone had just canceled or no. First he told me, he was like, Hey, you know, if you have a seat opens up during the show, I'll be down the street. Like I'll come. And then like uh, two days before it, um, someone canceled and I'm like, Oh my God, I got to get him in, you know? And, uh, so I, I gave the seat to him and, and he came and played and that was it. And he got hooked after that and he became a regular every week. Like everyone loved him instantly that first show. That was, that was kind of it. And we've just, kind of been pretty close and you know like friends plus business associates like kind of combined you know like we you know we 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 we, hang, we talk we laugh we hang out all of that but we also like have a really good relationship and understanding about like how to be mutually beneficial and yeah yeah you know how to put good games together but also you know he knows that he's very valuable to our show is our you know when i was doing that as well so that was like 2017 right uh correct yeah okay so uh I know that, unfortunately, with Live at the Bike, despite all of these stories seeming uh, very happy and positive, it did not have a very happy and positive ending for you. And uh, so, so let's let's hear about what happened there. And, and I know it involved both Live at the Bike and the bike itself, kind of a t- two separate things. So uh, why don't you tell us about the way the whole thing fell apart? I mean, it's a complicated, long story, but uh, let me see. So um, let's see what I want to say. Um so everything was going great. And then, um, we brought in, um, when Lyman's shares kind of expired, so to speak with the deal we had, we had to sell to somebody and we brought in two new owners and we had five owners now instead of three. And when it was just three of us, they kind of like believed in what I was doing and they let me do my thing and they saw the success in it. And like, you know, I was kind of just doing everything like the type of person I am when I'm like passionate about something and I believe in what I'm doing, I just like to do it all. You know, I don't mind working. It's like what I'm doing right now with the new show. I don't mind work putting all the work in, you know, like if I have to delegate certain things that make sense, obviously I will. But like the things that I believe that I'm the best at, like I just want to do them because I'm just willing to like do whatever it takes to be successful. That's just my mentality. It's how it's always been. You know, I don't, I don't like rest. I, I just put every ounce of soul. I, I prioritize career over everything, you know, like literally, you know, other things that I, you know, I could you know, be married with kids by now if I like put my time and energy into it earlier in my life. But like, I just always prioritize career. It's just like, I have goals. I'm very goal oriented, you know? And, um, so, um, once we got to five owners instead of three, um, 
things just changed. It, it, more cooks in the kitchen. People had more voice to say. And, and I'll just say that like, you know, uh, one or maybe both of those owners to a degree, like kind of, ex- they were poker players and they expected to be in games, like because they're owners. And I just, I cared a lot about my lineups just being super soft and fun. And I wanted to stick to that formula. I didn't want to change it, you know? And so they wanted to play all the time. And I was just like, no, like you can't like, like I'm not going to change what I'm doing. Like we are successful right now for a reason. We've elevated this company to a household name for a reason because I, because I'm doing the right thing. And, um, and like, one or both of them like didn't like that. And so we got kind of like heated and there's just a lot of things and people talking behind people's backs and making up lies and spreading shit and just stuff like that. It just kind of made the whole situation toxic. And, but in the midst of that, I still kept on going on and like we were as successful as ever did those million dollar cash games and we were crushing and, and we did all those and we had like by far the most income we had and our subscriptions were up like a ton and we're crushing it. Then we got to a certain point where I just got too frustrated. And I was like, man, like there's so many things I want to do. And like, they're just, they just don't appreciate what I'm doing. And I just felt unappreciated. I felt whether it was true or not, I just felt unappreciated. I felt like, you know, they just didn't want to step up and work harder and and anything. And and they just were constantly like, you know, I just felt like whatever I want to do, like I should be able to do it. I shouldn't have to get into arguments and them say like, no, I don't want to do this or I don't want to work an extra shift or whatever. And I was just like, dude, like every, like, you know, if I'm doing all this work and it's working and we're so successful then every other owner should be like, what can I do to help you? Like, I'll put in all the work, you know, like let's do this as a team. And it wasn't that way. They just like watched me do my thing and like weren't willing to do anything to help basically. And that was frustrating. And so, you know, we had arguments back and forth and, you know, I like little demands or whatever. And, and, you know, they just were like, no. And so I was like, all right, well then, you know, so at the same time, I had friends in my ear that were just like, hey, like, why are you even dealing with this? Like, you could go be successful, whatever you want to do. If you walk away, like, you can go get a show at another casino and, like, you can crush it. And I was just like, man, that's that's a good point. But, like, that's scary. Like, I'm, like, at the peak of my career right now. Like, how do I just walk away? Like, that's crazy. Like, what if it just doesn't work? And people will just – and people in my, you know, in my camp that were just like, dude, like, you're – like you're going to be successful no matter what, like it's going to work out. Like just do what, you know, what you need to do. Like if you're not happy, you can't stay. Like you have to be happy. I, I understand that. Happy. And uh, this was in like 2019 or so when this was happening. Um, yeah. This was like early 2019. It was like March 2019. Okay. Yeah. And and I understand so, that, you know, it, it was something which has a creative element to it, like like this show did. Uh, I, I know it's it's different than uh, creative like uh, TV where you're, you're writing scripts or something, but the, the, there is a creative element where you're uh, coming up with ideas for it and uh, and and you want it to look and feel a certain way. And uh, if if everybody's not on board with your vision, especially if people come later and and yeah, exactly, don't, don't want to be exactly. in the same vision, then it can be very tough. And then that always is going to end with with somebody leaving. And that's why sometimes it is very important for. Uh, someone to have creative control if everything's going well. Now, of course, they have to trust the person who has the creative control, but uh, there's been a lot of exactly. things that have broken down of, in, in many forms of entertainment where the person with uh, create a person who was running it beforehand gets interfered with in some way 
and doesn't have full creative control, and then the whole thing uh, goes to crap. I've seen this many times. I've seen this with TV series. I've seen this uh, just all over the place in, in forms of entertainment. And uh, so I can understand why this became an issue. I actually didn't know this until you just said this right now on the show. Yeah, I mean, we didn't really, I never really went public and talked about it or whatever because I really just wasn't sure about my next steps or how long it was going to take. And I kind of just didn't feel like it was necessary. And I was like, well, if they say something, then I'll say something. But like, if not, then I'll just, you know, just try to, you know, make a smooth transition into my next thing and just announce it then. And then it kind of took longer. But yeah, I mean, that's really what it was. Like I had all the creative control early on. And then later I kind of, it changed and I, it became frustrating because I saw our success and I was just like, what, like, you know, for there'd be owners who would, you know, be making more money because that's how it works. Like the, whatever equity you have, you get that percentage of the profit every month. And I, I didn't have one of the most at all. <clears throat> I had one of the least. And I was like, that's not fair if I'm putting in the most hours and doing the work and <clears throat> having arguably the most impact. And so I was like, something's got to change. And, you know, <clears throat> people didn't want to step up and like even work more, like w- even though they were making like double or triple what they did at the beginning. And I'm like, that's crazy, you know? And so it's just a lot of animosity and different arguments about stupid things. And it got frustrating. And, you know, I, I just, I didn't enjoy it as much anymore. And I, even though we were crushing and I felt like I was unappreciated and I, I just had a different view on business than, than they did really like than any of the other four. Like my bit, my view on business was just like completely different. And I'm not saying that like, I know everything or that I'm like the best business person in the world. Like obviously like not, but you know, I, I'm stubborn and I believed in, in what I was doing. And I just didn't think that I could ever be as successful as I wanted to, if I stayed there and if nothing changed. And so I tried to get something to give, uh, you know, I tried to get something to, to change, like something had to give, you know, and, and they just weren't willing to do anything different. And, you know, I was just like, all right, well, if you guys think that you can be successful without me, then we'll see what happens. And I just made a, another huge leap, just like I did when I left ESPN. And I was like, I'm going to take a huge chance. People aren't going to understand it. You know, I explained to my parents again and they're like, well, you got to be happy and do whatever you think is right. And, and so, um, yeah, I mean, I had a lot of support from people that I trusted and I was just like, you know what, screw it, I'm walking away. And they didn't, couldn't believe it that I actually walked away because they were kind of trying to call my bluff. Uh, and then it kind of just got toxic after that. And, uh, you know, as soon as I, I walked away and left, you know, I started, I started thinking about my next steps and what I can do. And, um, that's when I started talking to, to Nick Rattucci, who I was always really good friends with. And I knew he's a great business person and I knew that he wanted to be involved in this business. And so we started talking about, well, how can we make this happen? Yeah. Uh, before we get to that, uh, what happened to the twenty percent you owned of uh, Live of the Bike? Did you sell it back to them, or ha- how did you uh, dispose yeah, of that? Yeah, it was like uh, there's like a process with their operating agreement or whatever, so it took a few months. But um, eventually, I like sold it at, like a huge discount because I just wanted to get out, and um, I just you know they tried to get me to sign like a NDA or not NDA, sorry, a, um, non-compete and i was like hell no yeah you know? so i just was like i'm just gonna sell it at like whatever they'll buy it at and like you know i, I knew that i could have made a ton more money if i waited a few months to like have the leverage but i just wanted to get out and like start planning my new next steps because you know i wanted what if i did like it ended up being a long time after that but i was like if i have something opportunity in a competing business like i didn't know if i would right away or not i was like i want to just do it right away i don't want to wait you know i just don't want to sit here and do nothing yeah. 
so so, so, so you didn't you, so. so you didn't agree with to anything when you left aside from giving up a twenty percent. You didn't agree to uh, non disclosure, obviously non compete. So you just you just sold it and, and basically were free to do what you wanted. Yeah, that's. I mean, I don't remember exactly all the details of every single, but yeah, it was basically a very simple contract and just uh, okay. Here's the you know here it is. It's yours. Like yeah, and just like we're not going to say anything disparaging about each other publicly or like whatever. Um, but I, I kept working at the bike after that because um, you know while I was playing my next step, I, I stayed. I was I was a prop player as well there. That was like part of the deal. Like because I was there all the time. Like the bike let me be a prop, but there was, I had a lot of freedom where I could just kind of play when I wanted. And, um, so I would play like before the show or after the show or whatever. But, um, but like I, they let me play no limit, even though almost all their other props were limit. Um, just cause I kind of like had a good deal with the bike. And then afterwards they let me keep doing that. And then, um, but then, you know, once I, once like right after the live of the bike thing, once we kind of separated, we were like working on selling the equity, I was like, all right, I'm going to take a break for the summer. And I said, you know, I told the bike cause they wanted me to stay and they were trying to work something out with me. And I was like, well, if you want me to stay, like I'm not gonna come back as a prop, like, but I'll come back and organize games. Like I can be like a JRB type where like I organize private ish games, like in the private public games, basically in the casino off camera. So that's what I did. I came back after the summer, I started doing that. And then, um, you know, we had some really sick games. Like a lot of the players that were playing on the show, once they slowly realized that I wasn't involved anymore, they, a lot of them stopped playing the show much and were playing my games. And so it became another weird thing where like I was now competing with the other owners of the show and they were kind of, it was kind of a weird, uncomfortable feeling. Where yeah, that is weird. So, so you were bringing the, the, a lot of the same players to the bike, but not live at the bike. <laughs> yeah. So it was kind of funny, but you know, I wasn't like, I didn't, yeah, players just wanted to play my games. Like some of them play both, some whatever. I mean, just I mean, I mean, they were still were coming to the casino one way or the other. You know, actually, I was to be honest, these players started playing in the casino more than they did before, because now I had game. We had games like essentially every day of the week. You know, I would organize games a couple of days a week, and they had the show. You know, a few days a week. So like a lot of the guys started playing two, three days a week instead of playing one day a week. So it actually like was probably a net positive. It definitely was a net positive for the casino. They were making a lot of rake. I saw the numbers for my games. And they had promised me, like, all right, like, they were like, we're going to work out a thing. We're going to make you a host. You're going to get this. You're going to get this bonus structure, whatever, blah, blah, blah. They literally promised all, all this stuff, and I just kept working because of that and kept putting all these games together. And I really wasn't even playing much in the, too much in the games. Like, I would just get up for players even if I was losing. I just kind of wanted to, like, build something special. I didn't care if I was losing out by not playing in good games or whatever. I just kind of wanted to let everyone else play. I just wanted to be known. I always just want to be, even when I'm doing the show, and even now, like, I just like to be known as the guy who puts together the good games, the best games, and like, hey, you want to play good games in LA? You, like, go to Riot. Like, I just like being that guy, you know? And so I would put these games together, and um, and um, I was, you know, it was really benefiting the casino. Like, they had just built this brand-new high-stakes room with, like, five tables. It was super sick. Um, they just built it. And like right, right before that. And, um, I like, they had like no games in there and I helped build it up and, um, they promised me all this stuff. You're going to get this, you're going to get this. And I like literally never got it. I just kept getting paid like a prop. And after a few months they were like, uh, yeah, sorry. We know we promised, but like, we just can't anymore. And I'm like, what? And they're like, yeah, if you want to go work another casino or something, it's all good. Like we understand if you want to stay here and prop, you can, if you want to stay here and keep hosting, you can, but you know, do whatever you want. And I'm like, Oh my God. Uh, so so, so before said, we, like, before really we get to the rest of this, with... I'm sorry, before we get to the rest of this here, uh, was this before or after uh, COVID when this happened? 
this is before this is right before so this is like a few months before like this was so when they finally told me like no um that was like january and then um, of 2020 right i had been like uh yeah and i had been casually talking with nick i started talking to a couple of casinos like in, in 2019 um but um nothing really came about it we thought maybe a couple were close um we you know trying to get a show and then like kind of stopped for a couple months and and i just had always said all right well if nothing happens by you know whatever the before the summer that year i was going to leave the bike anyway and um, figure something else out and then like january they told me like sorry we can't do anything so that's when me and nick really picked it up and started really talking to casinos and trying to figure it out and then march hit covid and then we're like oh my god now we're not going to get now nothing's going to happen because the casinos are closed so then i then i was like all right now what do we do and so now i had to like totally change my approach and wasn't sure when or if it would ever happen and then kind of in june of may or june of that year the gm of hustler reached out to me and was like like because i posted something on twitter about how i wasn't with the bike anymore and he's like hey we've been trying to do streaming like i didn't know you weren't working there anymore like let's do something and then that's that's kind of when it all happened okay i was wondering how that got going i i did see what you posted on twitter around that time in the spring of last year when you got some like cold yeah. Uh, letter from yeah. the bike, basically, uh, yeah, almost I mean, like a form letter like a that they were letting you go because of COVID. Yeah, it, like basically, like I said, I was leaving anyway. I was never going back there anyway. And you know, people think I, I see people in the chat or whatever. People think that I got laid off by Live at the Bike because they think Live at the Bike. Like, no, I walked away from Live at the Bike the year before. I just didn't. We didn't announce it because I was trying to work out other deals and I just didn't feel the need to announce it yet and whatever. And they didn't want to, cause they probably knew that it would be like bad press for them to say that I wasn't with them anymore. Cause they knew that I was like the heart and soul of it or whatever. And, um, anyway, so yeah, so I left live at the bike, which is separate from the bike. I worked at the bike for another year or roughly or a little less or whatever as a, as a host and a prop. And then I COVID hit, I was gone from there. I was never going back anyway, but I was just kind of, they got that letter in the mail. They basically treated me like the other props, like, Hey, we're laying you off. I was just surprised that nobody from the bike had the like audacity to like call me and just be like, Hey, you know, we appreciate everything you did for us. Just letting you know, we're laying off all the props. I'm sorry. Like, blah, blah, blah. you know what I mean? Like just, just out of principle, just be like, like a lot of people said, I built that place up to, where they never had high six games. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't understand that, right? Because uh, you you meant more to them than the, the typical just prop who, who could yeah. more understand getting a letter like that. So yes, when right. when you have some sort of relationship with them, you do expect to just be told, uh, like like by yeah. at least by a phone call, uh, say, hey, here's the reason we can't continue with you, not just a, a cold uh, form letter you're getting. So I, I saw that I was pretty appalled by that yeah, too, I not even knowing the full story. I just, I'm just like, like, like yeah. Yeah, like I knew, I knew you had enough of an association with them that, I'm like, I'm very surprised that this is the way it finally ends. That like that type of letter that that seemed pretty cold to me without even knowing all the details. So I, I understand why you were annoyed by that, but I also understand that this wasn't a a major event that you, it was pretty much set in stone. You were going anyway. It was just the way that they. Uh, uh, threw you out the door. It's, it's kind of like a, a relationship which you know is almost over, and then uh, you know the, the girls just send you a text message of "Hey, we're breaking up." Yeah. Bye. You know, like <laughs> they don't even call you. So, uh, like a long relationship, like it's it's sort of like that. I understand. So, 
uh, so the guy from the hustler, the GM of the hustler, calls you, and and that's when you you come up with the uh, agreement for this uh, new show. Yeah, I mean, it happened really quick. Like right away, me and Nick were like, "Oh my god, we had a good feeling about this." We talked to him on the phone for a while. It was good. We we just he just his name's Sean Yapel, and he's amazing. And um, we uh, you know he had been there for like maybe a year or so. Um, at that point, he had worked up Northern California before that. And, um, yeah, we met with him like right after that and right away we're like, he's like, yeah, like basically the way he was talking, he was just like, yeah, we're going to do this. Like the other meetings, we had had a bunch of meetings with, with like every other casino in, in LA and just like other things that have happened in my life, you know, a lot of things are too good to be true. You know, I, I just, when we got, like, we had a good feeling like, wow, this sounds like it's real. Nick's like, I think this is legit but i was like let's let's just calm down until it's like you know and even like when we got to like months later when we were actually like it was done deal like he told us a done deal i still was like let's not celebrate till we actually sign the contract then i'll celebrate you know because like i just have been through this whole thing so many times in my life where things just fall apart last second you know so um yeah it came together pretty quick and over the next few months we just started planning all the details and you know they he would go like i never got to meet larry flint um, God rest his soul, you know, obviously passed away a few months after that, but he's the one that signed off on the whole thing and had the vision and he's the one that really wanted it. And now his wife's kind of carrying his legacy. Um, oh, really? See, I, I didn't know that either. So Larry Flint, uh, you're saying it was his idea to, to bring all this over there. Yeah. So, so Larry Flint, like one of the last things before he passed that he, that, that he cared about was this. And he had been talking to Sean even before I ever met Sean. And, um, you know, they talked about like, Oh, it'd be cool to get like a live stream poker show. And, uh, they kind of explored the option, but it just never, they just didn't know how to do it. And Sean didn't have contacts for anything like, you know, getting high stakes games or anything in LA yet. Cause he had only been in LA for like less than a year. So, you know, when he saw my tweet, he reached out and he'd been following me on Twitter. He knew who I was and he was, it clicked for him. He's like, Oh my God, this is perfect. And yeah. So, so he would, you know, we would talk and then he would go to Larry and whatever. And Larry was just like, yeah, let's do it. Like, and so we presented, so we, you know, um, early on the process, we, we had like a, a guy that, um, that works for Nick, um, who's like amazing at just everything, coordinating production and construction and everything. And just putting, seeing the whole project over for us. And, uh, his name's Clint and he, uh, with his team of people put together um, like blueprints of like a bunch of, cause we kind of just early on talked about, okay, what do we want this to look like? You know? And, and a lot of it was just like, well, what does Larry Flint want it to look like? Because like, we just want to do whatever he wants because we're going to make this show work no matter what, but what does he want? Because we want him to sign off on this and we want, what do we want? We, we just want to do it, you know? And so he was like, Oh, we, we want to do like a stage. And we kind of just mapped out how it would look. And we put together, I think, like eight or ten different options with different prices and different things involved of, like, how the stage setup, you know, which is what we went with for the, for the instead of a room, um, would look like. And he picked the most expensive one, like the nicest one. Like, he was like, let's just get the best one. And so it was pretty awesome. Like, that's what we have now is like this, if you've seen the pictures, it's like a stage with a crown and it led lights and a padded wall in the back and wheelchair ramp and it's just really cool so they built that whole, the casino paid for that part of it they built that whole thing and then we paid for like the equipment and control room and production equipment 
you know, everything else, but, but they, you know, but they, they put a, then they, they pay, you know, they, anything else we needed, like they would, they signed off on, like, they're just amazing. Like I could never imagine any other casino, like anywhere, like even Vegas casinos, I could never imagine a casino and their management being this great in terms of like supporting something and like just putting all the resources and time and energy and effort and marketing and money into it. Like, uh, it's just it's just impossible for any casino to be as supportive. Literally, like this was their idea. They literally get this. They put up like I don't know the exact amount. I can look it up, but it's at least twelve billboards around LA to promote our show with our players' faces on them. Like you would just be driving in wherever West Hollywood or Carson or whatever, and like there's just a massive billboard with Hustler Casino Live on it, and like we did a photo shoot with our players on it. It's just, it's great. We did, they put billboards in front of all the casinos too. <laughs> like it's crazy. They, they, they filmed a professional commercial. It's, it's insane. Yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't know that they uh, had uh, billboards and stuff like that. I didn't know they were doing that much promotion. That's, that's great that they're doing this. And the, and the hustlers paying for all this for the promotion for that stuff. Yeah. Like they put a lot into it. I mean, wow. that was just all their idea. They wanted to do it. Like, oh, great. You know, obviously all the, our own stuff we're doing, the, Again, building the show, the equipment, the social media, you know, whatever, uh, you know, anything involved with commentators, staff, that's all us. But yeah, the billboards, they did that. Hmm. Stage, they did that. So, yeah, and, and this is it's, on it's uh, five amazing. It's on five days a week on YouTube? Yes, Monday through Friday. Somehow, uh, I get, just got done the second day today. I'm like, man, I can't believe I'm going to be. It's like so exhausting. I'm like, this is going to be my life now. Five days a week, like be there you know yeah, I'm sure a lot. as it goes on uh, i won't have to be there quite as early in the day to set stuff up but right now i'm going in like 11 a.m to get it ready mm. this week because you know i want to be over prepared so right now we're looking at like 11 12 hour days like 12 hour days you know five days a week it's like it's 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 a lot but you know it's it's the when you look back at the result and you look at like what you did and what it looks like and you see all the like positive feedback it's worth it like no matter how much work it is you know it's just like man it's pretty cool that that we did this now this started on uh, august 3rd so you've only had two episodes so far right correct yeah and and i see that uh, antonio is coming on friday for a uh, 5100 game. yeah yeah it's pretty exciting i mean you know i've always had like a vision in my head as we've gotten closer of like what i want the first week of games to be and i knew it had to be like something really special but, like, you never know who you're going to be able to get or what games you're going to get. And, you know, the, the first game we did yesterday, Tuesday, was just, like, the sickest lineup of just, like, crazy people. Like, it was just great action and just, you know, it was just – it's like the game where people watch and like, oh, my God, I want to be in that game. How do I get in that game? And then today was a smaller game where it's more of, like, a normal game people can relate to. And, you know, it was, like, action but not as, like, crazy, crazy, just kind of a cool group. And then tomorrow we have a 1020 with some more like, you know, a mix of crazy people and some like, it's just, you know, a, a good, another good like recreational game. And then, yeah, we, we, I was, you know, we were lucky enough to be able to get a really, really sick lineup for literally first week. Like, like this is a game that would be a special one-off, like couple times in a year type, type lineup. And this is my, the very first game we're doing. So like, I can't even imagine what I'm going to be able to do on a weekly basis going forward. Now I know, it's not going to be this special every week. Like, that's just unrealistic. But, you know, if I can get anywhere close to this on a semi-regular basis, then we're going to just 
our show's going to go through the roof, in my opinion. So, I mean, yeah, we were able to, you know, me and Nick both know Antonio very well. Um, and Nick specifically, he's, he's close with Antonio. And, you know, we reached out a couple of times and we're like, Hey man, like I can, we can put together a really like, sick, good game for you. Like, would you be down to play? And he wasn't sure at first and then kind of just kept talking to him and he was like, all right, let's do it. And, and so this is, uh, is this, uh, at 5 PM every day or is it at different times? What, what time can people yeah, expect to yeah, see yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, 5 PM Pacific every single day. It's consistent. That's one of the biggest, most important things that we, that I believe in is like you, you, you pick, you do every day and you pick the same start time and that builds consistency. And that's how you build something is by people not having to look at a schedule and they just know that same place, same time, 5 PM every day, five to 10 minimum 10 o'clock, you know, five hour show every day. It's, it's there. Is, and, uh, that's how you build a, uh, that's how you build a little family. Is this going to be uh, no limit hold'em only, or is it going to be PLO? Is there going to be limit games, mixed games? What, what are the plans of that? Okay. So Tuesday through Friday are no limit games. Monday, we're going to do a lot of PLO. It'll be, uh, mostly plo or half half like we have five ten plo this monday the first few mondays will probably all be plo and then um occasionally if for some reason somebody's in town or whatever and i can get a um like a another 25 50 or 50 100 game we might have that on a monday um or occasionally we might um this isn't something we we like are going to plan for necessarily but let's say we let's say I, like we're able to just like organize a really sick game on a saturday um because we'll have like these games that, you know people just want to play sometimes you know me and nick just put games together all the time like we even before we had the show during rehearsals and even before that at hustler we're just organizing games and so we had all these saturday games tuesday games and just a lot of people that are in our group of players just want to play and put together some fun lineups even though they're not for show and so um if we get a game together on a saturday randomly once in a while and if it's a group that you know, oh, this would be a sick show, then what we might do is we might just record it and air it on, say, that Monday or whatever the next day is that makes sense. Um, so occasionally we might do that. So Mondays, you know, will be different things, but it's going to be mostly PLO, and the other days are no limit. Um, but we will be flexible. Like, if there's something that comes up, we'll change things around. It's no big deal. No plans for mixed games. Uh, you know, it's possible we could do it down the road at some point. Um uh, I know there's a lot of, it's like a cult following of, you know, mixed game players out there, but it's not exactly the best thing for, for poker streams. Um, no, I know that I, I'm a, I'm a limit player myself mostly. So yeah, I, I know it's yeah, not the most exciting thing to watch. Games, it's just not great for, for viewership. So, you know, no limit is, is what people want to watch mostly. Obviously there's people out there that are like, Oh, you know, Alan Kessler's like, Oh, put together a Badoogie and, you know, <laughs> do seven draw game. Like, okay, great. So you and your, you know, and your friends can watch, but you know, the other 30,000 poker fans out there want to see high stakes, no limit near mid stakes, no limit. So, yeah. So we're, the, the plan mostly is like, you know, nine, you know, 80, 80% no limit or so. So 90% no limit. So, um, yeah, that's the plan. You know, we're just going to put together some sick, juicy games on Tuesdays, Thursdays, uh, high stakes games on Fridays and then, um, PLO on Mondays and then Wednesdays, like smaller games where any normal person can play. You know, and then the Friday games, you know, we have Andy playing this week too. Andy, who, if you watch, you know, streams and, you know, and, and you, you know, LA poker, like, you know, who Andy is. So he's going to play and that, that's really cool. We did some, uh, some promo stuff with him last night that we put up today. And, um, yeah, Andy's just been a friend and super cool. And I've known him since I started doing, you know, playing in these games a long time ago. And 
he's been around LA forever. So, you know, Antonio and Andy battling, they're both probably going to have, if not beginning the show at some point in the show, over a hundred K on the table each. So that'll be cool. And then, you know, we have some, 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 and then Nick's going to play in the game. And then we have some other like businessmen, Jeremy Levin, uh, he's a music manager. His, his brother is Benny Blanco, who's like a famous producer. Um, and then we have a few other uh, local businessmen that are are very good action. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's it's a pretty cool group of players, and I think it's going to play really big and crazy. So it's it's pretty cool to get this sick of a lineup and this big of a game the very first Friday that we're doing. So we're hoping that this game gets a lot of attention and, and kind of puts us over the, the top in terms of like people realizing, Oh, they're out there now. Like we got to start watching. And, and um, the good thing is, you know, one thing that differentiate differentiates us from any other stream out there is that, you know, for one, we're, we're on the air five days a week. Like nobody does that. Nobody's putting together as much, as many games, as many hours of content. Like we're doing a minimum of 26 hours a week of live shows that's minimum plus you know any overtime we do and then also it's free like there's no paywall at all it's all free on youtube every episode the minute that like we, we're done airing it's on our channel you can just watch it again you you don't need to watch the live show like we hope you do but like if you miss it when you wake up in the morning you can just watch it if you want to watch it three months later two years later you can go find it and watch it and so you know not only are we hoping that you know thousands of people are watching on friday um, when antonio and andy play and the game is super big and fun but you know we hope that people watch it later and that video just lives forever and people just keep watching it and you know that'll get eyes on us and eventually people will all see you know kind of the quality we have and just you know i think the people that have been watching so far the comments we've gotten they realize that you know the quality that we have is just like not even close to anybody else. That's good in the streaming world. So. Is uh, is Garrett going to be there soon? Yeah, we, we hope so. We've we've been talking to him, and um, um, we're we're pretty confident that he's going to be there. Um, we'll see. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think there's a pretty good chance that that he he ends up playing uh, next Friday. Hmm, good. Um, but uh, but you know, I don't want to guarantee anything. I don't want yeah, to put words in I his understand. mouth. You know. Um, but but if I had to bet on him playing sometime soon. I would bet a lot of money on it. Okay. So so where can people find this if they want to watch it on YouTube? So it's youtube.com slash Hustler Casino Live, or you can just go to YouTube and search Hustler Casino Live. Okay. And it's just on our YouTube channel. And, and people it. can people can watch it after it's done too? Yeah. As soon as the show's over, just watch it again. It's free. No paywall. Huh. No restrictions. You want to post a hand, you know, on social media, go do it. We're not going to tell you not to. Like, free content, post it. Send it to your friends, watch it, whatever. It's all out there. We just want to give this free, great content to everybody. And um, we, we believe, me and Nick, we believe strongly in just, we, we believe in a different approach than, than a lot of other businesses. And we just believe that if you build good content, that the business will will, will, will build long-term on its own because, you know, our goal is just to be the best. And everything we're doing we just want to be the best. It's a long-term approach. We're not worried about short-term. We're not worried about, you know, how do we make money today, next week, this month? No, let's just build the best content. And like, we know that it's going to work out long-term. Um, we want the best quality cameras. We want the best quality graphics. We want the best quality staff. We want the best quality commentators, the best quality games. And we want to just be the 
best quality for the fans, which is free and unlimited visibility. And so we believe that that method is going to pay off in the long run. And, and there's, there's not a plan to make it a subscription model to watch the archives no, or anything? Never. Okay. All right. No, no, there's not a plan at all. We, we want everyone to watch and, and we don't want to, you know, we're not there to, you know, we don't need to collect $10 from people. Like that's not how we have other ways to generate revenue for a business. And it's not through, you know, pinching dollars from fans like it's okay. through just just other you know other other revenue and, and i will say that the casino has just been great in helping us and build this and you know this is you know our goal is to build a great show and also to 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 show everybody how great hustle casino is we like we don't just want to build a good show we want to build up the hustle casino poker room we want we know it'll take time but we think we're starting well right now with with people you know getting eyes on the casino and seeing what what we have there and we, we want to make that place the best poker room in L.A. We want to, over time, however long it takes, we want to get the biggest games there. We want to get the best games there. You know, we want to build it up so that, you know, people come there every single day and play 5, 10, 10, 20, you know, 20, yeah. 50, whatever. And, and we just want to, we want to, we care about the casino because they that's, care about that's good i I've, I've always had a good experiences at the hustler and that was the very first place i played texas hold'em over 20 years ago so uh that was uh, a memorable thing to me that that's where i got my start and uh, even when i've gone back there in, in much more recent times uh, i've always enjoyed it there so uh, i i'm not all that close to it anymore but when i'm in the area then i uh, I, I will stop by and, uh, and and play some so uh, let's move on to the final thing I wanted to ask you about. Uh, I know PayPal uh, ripped you off, as they have uh, many other poker players. Uh, what happened with that? Uh, I'm still working on it with my attorney, so yeah, I probably shouldn't say too much on that. But um, I'm I, I'm hopeful that there'll be a resolution soon. Hopefully. Okay, so you can't talk about it right now. Yeah, I'll just wait till that's all done. But um, can you say yeah, the amount? I, I know you posted it before that we're dealing with here. What's that? The amount that uh, is in question? Uh, it was twenty-five k. Okay, I mean, it's a lot of money to be confident. It's worse than MoneyMaker, who lost twelve uh, k, so yeah. like double of his. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm just kind of waiting to see what happens. But I, I think we're somewhat near resolution. But you know, in the legal world, near could mean like longer than you want it to be so yeah well well chris got his money back so that's uh yeah. encouraging it might happen yeah, for you I, I i wish you luck with that i i've been very vocal about that situation i think it's awful what they're doing i know you may not be able to say much but i can because i'm not involved and uh and i think it's just outright stealing from not only poker players but also from uh, small businesses around the world I, th- I think it's a horrible yeah. thing they're doing. I think it's incredible, just unfair, super unethical, and it, it's pretty shocking. When people hear about what's going on, they're they're pretty shocked. Even people outside of gambling, they they hear what's happening. They they think there must be more to the story. And I go, no, there really isn't. It's it's really what it appears to be. So I I, I understand why you yeah. can't talk about that right now, but uh, I, I wish you luck with that. And uh, I, I got a, a one question from a, a listener, a guy who po- is from Twitter, uh, posts as a roulette king. He said that he noticed oh, okay. on the August third show that nobody was wearing a mask, even though. L.A. County has a mask mandate, and he wasn't saying this critically because he says that he's an anti-masker and he doesn't like the mask mandate. So he wasn't doing this to try to hassle you to make everyone wear masks. He was asking, how did you guys do this? How did you uh, film this without anyone wearing masks when L.A. has a mask mandate? That was a question from Roulette King. 
Uh, well, I'll just say we're we're filming a TV show, so to speak. So it's a little different because it's not a, a public game where like any random person can just come sit. So we're on a set, we're filming a show. And so when people come into the casino, they have to wear masks. When they go to the bathroom, they got to wear a mask if they go by any other people. But uh, we have a private area in the casino where our show is. So it's, you know, just like, you know, poker go or whatever. Like we have our own, our own setup where, you know, we're, we're filming for, for TV, so to speak. So, um, that's kind of like how we, how the casino kind of looked at it as it's, it's, uh, it's, it's for filming purposes. And, uh, yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of, I guess the, the, the gist of it. I mean, I think it's fine. I don't, I don't have any issue with that personally. Yeah, and, when, and when, when people film a soap opera, like, you know, they're not wearing masks while they're filming. Right. <laughs> No, it's it's so. fine. So I, I just he was wondering about that. And I go, that's a good question. I'm wondering about that too, since it's L.A. County, where I am. Actually, there there's not even a mask mandate right now. But I, I did just come from Vegas, where there is one, and whenever I I go into L.A., uh, there is one. So uh, I, I I I thought, hey, that's a good question. But that's a good answer too, and I I understand it, and it's very reasonable. So uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, Hustler Casino Live is is where you can find this five days a week at five p.m. Pacific time, and uh, definitely sounds like a, a, a good project. It sounds like a, kind of a good uh, restart of what a lot of people got used to on uh, Live at the Bike, and has probably changed somewhat. And now you can find uh, a lot of what you liked over the last several years of Live at the Bike over at the Hustler. And uh, I, I very much encourage everybody to to watch this and support it and, and spread the word about it. And uh, as you heard from Ryan, the, the Hustler itself has been very supportive of this, which is uh, great to hear. And, uh, and, and thank you for coming on and, and giving us so much detail. I, I got a compliment from a, yeah. a listener who goes by uh, Jeff Dime. He said he really enjoyed this interview and uh, thought it was very informative and thought it was one of the better ones he's heard on the show so thank you very much for coming on and, and telling us so much yeah appreciate it thank you so much yeah i mean i've i just like to be open and and talk about things i have nothing to hide and um i'll just be honest and you know and like i i am who i am like i i, I wear my um you know I, I just wear everything on my sleeve and like it's just i, I put my a lot of energy and effort into this. I, I love poker. I love the industry. Um, I love being able to build a show. I, I love being able to, you know, have for me, it's like about, I want, I want to have a legacy at the end of my career and just be like, you know, well, he did this and people to come up to me at the world series or wherever and be like, wow, like, thank you for putting the show together. It's so cool. Like that's the stuff that I, that's what, that's what I live for. You know, it's not for money. It's not for, anything else other than like, I just want to build something special and be proud of what I'm doing every day. And I want to be known as the guy that did this. And yeah. Well, yeah and and I'm, I'm just really happy with like how the products come out. Nick Bertucci has been like amazing and, you know, and putting this together and um, the casino has been amazing. And we're just really excited to like what we're going to do over the next however many years and just, put together really good shows that, that people can watch every day. Yeah. Well, one more question before you go. I forgot about this one. Uh, Bart yeah. Hansen is a regular listener to this show, and, and I know him uh, pretty well personally at this point. Uh, so I know he was involved with Live at the Bike, and I know he does commentating now on uh, on, on your show. So uh, is he going to be a regular fixture there on uh, the Hustler show, the Hustler Casino Live? 
Uh, he just texted me right now, actually, randomly, as you mentioned his name. That's funny. Uh, <laughs> so funny. Yeah, yeah, he's going to be one of our regular commentators. So he's going to he, – he lives in Texas, but he's flying in every uh, – for a week, every month or two. And he's going to uh, be commentating for, like, a week straight um, every time he comes. So, like, this week he's doing Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So he did Tuesday with Tuckman yes, uh, today by himself, tomorrow with Tuckman, and then Friday by himself. And so, yeah, he's going to be a regular – commentator tuckman's gonna be a regular commentator oh, wow. hmm. um we got norman shad norman shad's gonna be commentating with tuckman on the 19th oh, excellent um djaf is commentating all of next week so we got some really really good commentators we're excited about that and um like i said everything we're doing we want to do it top quality all right we want to strive to be the best in every single aspect of what we're doing and so we're really excited about you know having bard and tuckman and a lot of great commentators well this sounds great and uh just just uh, make sure that none of the players can see the whole cards. I, that's a pretty big thing these days yeah. on live streams. won't mention I, I, any names. I will say, since you brought that up, um, <laughs> just, just so you guys know, like that is the literally the most important thing of like when we're building all this, of, of the, with the strict, most strictest, like biggest thing that we did when we put this together is we want to be the leaders in the industry, setting a precedent and having the strongest game security and integrity of anyone. Like obviously we know about all talk of other stuff and you know we, we just can't risk any talks of anything and you know people thinking things and optics and accusations anything like we want to be super strict and people come to play our game they know that like wow they, this is zip tight so the way we do it and, and and i just can't believe it nobody else to my knowledge even does this which is just i don't even get it but i'm, I'm expecting that in the future people will follow our lead is and, and the players can tell you that have played so far this is how it works you, you come to the stage um, before the show. Um, we do all the pregame stuff and all that, mic you up, blah, 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 get chips. Ten minutes before the show starts, the floor man goes around, and um, we have a security guard and a floor man. They, they take everybody's they, – they search everyone, take their phones and any smart watches they have. Oh, They're good. Them, any electronics on them. They take <laughs> that. They, they put it in lockers um, that's, like, right behind the stage where there's a security guard. It's between the lockers and where you go upstairs to our control room, and there's lockers that – all the players' phones, smartwatches, whatever, are in there. Um, players are not allowed to access that at all while they're playing. If someone has an emergency, they need to look at their phone or use their phone. They have to get the floor man. They have to go over to the side where it's away from the stage. They stand there. They use their phone. They have to give it back, put it back in the locker before they go back. Okay, that, Same thing with everyone in the production room. Everybody that works in production, anybody, all, every single person that works in production, before the show starts, about 15 minutes before, we put all of our – uh, phones uh, into the lo- a separate locker as well, and even if we go to the bathroom, we can't look at them. So we don't get our phones back till after the show's over, which is like six hours later. So like you know, like it's crazy. Yeah, that all- that that is very good. So you don't have people uh, looking at phones in their lap during the game yeah. who who are making yeah. great plays. Yeah, exactly. Oh, obviously, yeah. Like Tuesday, <laughs> you know, we have our first show. I have my phone the whole time after the show i get my phone and like 80 text messages yeah of course you know i just didn't see any of it so yeah we're we're like super um we we've taken into the end of the game security like super super serious it's like one of the number one you know questions that people ask or whatever and and, um we just you know it's like literally the most important thing to us so we're, we're being super strict about that like and actually like bart was you know, Bart came in with Tuckman before the show. A few, they came in early yesterday, a few hours early, so we can go over, you know, how everything works, the setup, the elements, the the, the flow of how it works. And and we told him that, and they didn't know. And I was like, yeah, like, you, you can't have your, your phone. And they're like, wait, why? They're like, we're in the commentator booth. Like, I'm like, yeah, but 
doesn't matter. Like you're upstairs about optics. Like you just can't have it. No, no, I understand. That's very good because because things have changed because of what happened four years ago, and and uh, even though it didn't involve anything with you or anything you worked with, uh, that there people are suspicious now because of everything that happened oh, with that important. scandal. It's important. So, yeah. so he was, you know, Bart's wife is is pregnant, and so he was like, well, what if you know, we're like, eh, sorry, man, like we just we just can't. You have to keep your phone <laughs> in a locker. So, so that's. Uh, yeah, but they're cool with it because they understand why, obviously. But yeah. yeah, that was something that they they were like, "Oh wow, that's that's pretty cool." All right, well, very good. Well, thank you for coming on, Ryan, and uh, I, I'm sure the listeners found this very informative. Everybody, watch uh, Hustler Casino Live every day, 5 p.m. on YouTube at uh, 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, and uh, I think this is going to work out. This is looking very good to me. So, uh, good luck with the thank whole you thing. So much, I appreciate it. Great talking to you, and. Uh, Thanks to everybody out there listening who supports us and watches and appreciate it. And uh, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ryan. Good night. Thanks. See you. Bye. Long interview, but I I think we learned a lot. I learned a lot. I didn't know a lot of this stuff. I I knew Ryan, um, but this is the longest conversation I've ever had with him by far. And a lot of this stuff I just kind of guessed before and didn't have it all correct. Pretty interesting, especially if you were a fan of Live at the Bike any time in the past. But yeah, definitely watch his uh, show, Hustler Casino Live, especially if you like live streaming poker. And in my opinion, all the good elements of uh, Live at the Bike have moved over now (laughs) and are not Live at the Bike anymore. Okay, so uh, moving on to the next topic. Let's jump to talk about 2 plus 2. Now, I told you on the show last month, the last show we did, that uh, 2 Plus 2 has new Russian owners. And this kind of happened abruptly in July. Mason wasn't talking about it publicly beforehand. He just announced one day that the forum was sold. And it was completely sold. He didn't sell an interest in it. He sold the entire forum. So it's, it's no longer owned by him. It is owned by two young Russian guys and these guys, I guess, live in Vancouver, but whatever. It's, it, they still are very Russian and seem to have Russian interests and ties to Russia. Uh, I'm not saying this is like a, a Russian state ownership. Uh, it's not in, even entirely clear why they bought it, but they're the owners now. And they have a very different vision of what they want 2 plus 2 to be than what Mason had, which in many ways is good, because uh, I disagreed with a lot of what Mason did over there. I think Mason as a person uh, has a huge ego, a lot of it unjustified. He's a dick. He's very controlling. He holds a grudge like no other. I mean, you did one thing to piss him off 13 years ago, and he'll just hate you forever and keep bringing it up. And I know that because (laughs) it was me. I, I didn't even do anything 13 years ago. My, my friend, who's not even my friend anymore, Brian Mikon, pissed him off 13 years ago, and by association, he hated me. That's the truth if you go back and look at it. Now, I'm not going to rehash all my issues with Mason. I did that uh, last show last month. So if you want to hear all that you can and, and my history that I gave of 2 plus 2 and my history with 2 plus 2 personally, you can go back and listen to that episode. But we're going to talk about the present of what's going on there. So, 
Mason announced on July 13th, same day as our last radio show, but fortunately it happened before our show, so I was able to include it on our show before I took my vacation, which started two days later, that he sold 2 Plus 2 to uh, a, a weird company that owned something called Hand to Note, which is some sort of a heads-up display that I hadn't heard of before. And Mason acted like he was selling it to a familiar party, but basically no one knew who they were. These were two young Russian guys, and they're like early 30s. Uh, they, they showed up and post a funny, posted a funny picture of themselves, uh, as, like a picture of them in Thailand with these two Thai girls that people thought were like Thai prostitutes. It turned out they weren't. It turned out these guys were uh these were their wives that they met in thailand but whatever they're definitely very different than mason the 70 year old curmudgeon these are two young russian guys who went and got uh wives in thailand which i I don't even completely understand because if you have money and you're in russia it is real easy to get hot chicks real easy because there's a lot of people in russia who are poor a lot of women in Russia who aspire to be with a successful man. In fact, in fact, you have a lot of these mail-order brides who come to the U.S. and marry like gross older men who are like 40 years older than them simply to be financially secure. And they leave their home country and marry a guy they're totally not attracted to and have nothing in common with and don't even speak the language uh, just for the money. So... I don't know why these dudes didn't just get hot Russian chicks. There have got to be plenty of them their own age, uh, near their own age, in their own country. And, and these guys aren't even old. So I don't understand why they had to go to, get, go to Thailand to get wives. But uh, that's what they seem to have done. But that's not really relevant to the rest of this. I'm just mentioning it as an aside. But they put out a statement, which I'm going to read you guys. Didn't get to read it to you guys yet because this was put out on July 18th. It said, a brand new era begins. Hello, my name is Andrew, and together with my partner in crime, Max, who is, by the way, a professional high-stakes poker player, we are the new owners of 2 Plus 2. Just to be clear, I'm a poker pro myself, but it's not as close to the top of the food chain as Max because I've switched to tech. We would like to start off with an enormous thank you to Mason and his team. Mason's work as an author is impressive, and his contribution to popularizing poker worldwide cannot be denied. Undoubtedly, he's helped to shape pro poker players for generations to come. Okay. You know, good start to the statement here, giving the obligatory ass-kissing to Mason. Actually, I guess this is supposed to be on the 15th, not the 18th, but whatever. Close enough. I'm talking about, like, three weeks ago. He went on to say... Now we would like to share the key components of our vision. Number one, in the years to come, we are going to build an AI-powered forum platform for the future and host it on 2 Plus 2 instead of forumserver.2plus2.com. So they're they're getting rid of forumserver.2plus2.com. It's going to be on 2plus2.com. That makes sense. I I never understood the forumserver.2plus2.com address. uh, It's kind of cumbersome. And uh, if you you went to just regular2plus2.com, you didn't get the form right away. And in fact, right now you still don't. 
So they're changing that. Okay, makes sense. Number two, we don't intend to make radical changes to the current forum, such as design, et cetera, in the short term. We subscribe to the adage that one needed and fix what is broken. Okay, good. I mean, that's what people want. People uh, don't want to see a major change in 2 plus 2. In fact, when one was recently proposed by Mason uh, not too long ago, uh, people reacted negatively to it. Number three, we'll focus on building an international community of professional poker players. Okay, whatever. Number four, we'll focus on user growth. Again, whatever. Number five, we'll furthermore address the problem of strict moderation and bans. Hmm. We'll furthermore address the problem of strict moderation and bans. Well, yeah, that is a problem on 2 plus 2. It's been a long-running problem on 2 plus 2 is that a ton of people have been banned, including yours truly. In fact, I was banned for not breaking a single 2 plus 2 rule ever. And that's not just my opinion. Even Mason will tell you that. If you ask Mason, what rule did Todd Woodellis break? He will say, he didn't break a rule. I just don't like him. He'll tell you that. So I didn't break any rules. Anytime I've been banned, it wasn't for breaking rules. So... They've, Mason just banned me due to personal dislike. He banned a lot of people due to personal dislike. There also has been some over-aggressive banning by mods who ban people they dislike or for petty reasons. That hasn't happened to me, but I've seen it happen to other people. There are some mods I like there. There are some other mods that I uh, don't agree with so much. There's even some mods I like that have taken some actions I don't really agree with. But... Uh, they claim they're going to address the problem of strict moderation in bands, which we'll get to shortly. Then he finishes by saying, we'll always prioritize user experience over mere profits. Okay, so far so good. Like, none of this seems objectionable. In fact, the biggest thing he said is they're going to address the issue of too many people being banned. He went on to say, you may have noticed already, but the banner ads are gone. The reason they are gone is simple. We asked ourselves, is this something that helps the community in any way? Is this something the users would need or want? That said, it wasn't a very difficult decision. In fact, we bought this website just to take down the banners on the first day. Now, that's kind of confusing, the wording there. Remember, this guy's not a native English speaker, so he doesn't mean he bought the website just to get rid of the ads. He meant that uh, as soon as we bought it, we took it down the first day, is what he's saying. It was that obvious of a decision. I know why they did it, because the banners weren't bringing in very much money. They have bigger visions with this, and they just kind of saw it as something that was an annoyance to people. So if it's not bringing much revenue in, why are they annoying the user with banners? It's probably bringing in very little money, and why have them? In fact, that's my attitude with Poker Fraud Alert. If you go to Poker Fraud Alert, there are no banners except at the very bottom, the very bottom of the screen, uh, you will f- find, actually, I don't even see it right now. <laughs> I'll have to look at this later for some reason it's missing right now. But uh, you will usually find an Amazon banner at the very, very, very bottom if you scroll all the way down to the bottom. And that's because I technically have an Amazon affiliate link where anyone who clicks on that, uh, I get a piece of anything they buy after they click on it. A small piece, but... Uh, it's just a small thing that can bring some revenue in to a site that otherwise does not run for profit. Poker Fraudler does not run for profit. So uh, that's why I have that. But I did not want it in people's way. That's why it's all the way at the bottom where you uh, normally wouldn't see unless you scroll all the way down. 
I could make a little additional money by slapping up Google ads or uh, uh, banners and crap like that. But I'm not saying I'd never put up a banner from someone who wants to sponsor the site, but uh, I- I'm not putting up a banner to make uh, a few bucks here and there. It- it's not worth it to me to ruin the site in that way. Uh, they seem to feel the same way. Okay, reasonable. Other changes are soon to follow. Most of the marketplace forums will become free for everybody, and most of the restrictions that are currently in place will be lifted. I'll explain that in a second. The goal is to create something similar to what we currently have with software forums, but for coaching, schools, staking, poker rooms, and other marketplaces. Now, this raised a lot of people's ire. You may think, well, what's wrong with that? They're, they're going to make it to where uh, it's free to access everything and that uh, the restrictions are going to be lifted. Why, why do we want restrictions? Well, let's think about it. What would possibly be a good reason to restrict the marketplace forms where people are buying and selling things or where people are making staking deals or people are trading money uh, between poker sites? What would be a possible reason to put up restrictions? Mm, I don't know, maybe uh, scammers? Might that be a reason? Obviously. Obviously, scammers are a big problem in any kind of uh, marketplace type forum. So you can't run one of those with no moderation. It's one thing to moderate the forum where you're banning people because uh, they hurt your feelings or they hurt the mod's feelings or they express some popular views or uh, one of many stupid reasons people get banned. I understand saying we're not going to have that anymore. In fact, that's the way I run Poker Fraud Alert. Poker Fraud Alert has very, very few bans. People are allowed to insult me. People are allowed to criticize me. People are allowed to say the forum is terrible. Uh, People can say all that stuff, and I don't ban them. Uh, I only ban extreme things, and that doesn't happen very often. So I'm a supporter of that. But... um, we don't have a marketplace type forum on two plus two, but uh, I'm in a poker fraud alert. But if we had one on poker fraud alert, then I wouldn't just let it be a free for all because uh, scammers would show up and abuse the whole thing and people wouldn't be able to trust it. So that's a mistake. And a lot of people said so. We value live poker players as much as we value online players. And we we want all players to enjoy two plus two for decades to come. Also, I'm a founder of Hand to Know Poker HUD. I would like to clarify 2 plus 2 will never become a marketing ground for said product. We aren't going to interfere with our competitors, uh, hold a manager, and poker tracker. Now, that's interesting. I had thought they bought 2 plus 2 to promote that product, which is much lesser known than hold a manager and poker tracker. He referred to it as HM slash PT, but that's what he meant. It's interesting that that is not really in the plans. It looks like they're just not going to have the two businesses act as if they're the same ownership. So obviously there's different plans with 2 plus 2 than what I was assuming last month. He went on to write, We recognize moderators' enormous value to the community. We know how hard they have to work. With new technologies like machine learning and AI, we will try to greatly increase the amount of routine, read, boring tasks they need to perform, and hopefully in doing so, make their lives a little bit better. Hmm. That's a weird statement. So it sounds like they're going to replace or mostly replace the mods by AI. They're going to have AI mods. He said, Max and I have also noted a power mismatch between regular users and moderators slash owners. As such, we're planning to discuss the issue with the community and remedy it however possible. What do you think about unbanning all banned users, by the way. 
Wow. Unbanning all banned users? Unbanning all banned users? I mean, yeah, I'm one of them, but all of them? And he put like, like a smiley face when he wrote that. <laughs> now, I understand there is a problem on 2 plus 2 where mods and especially owners just take a dislike to someone and ban them. And the reason these guys don't like this is they're running 2 plus 2 as a business. They're buying this so they can make money with it in some way. And they want it to be active. And they want the content to be good. And they want influential players there. They want pro players there. They, they don't just want the few who have survived the Mason Malmuth reign to be posting there. They want a bunch of people back who have been banned or run off. And they feel the only way that can be accomplished is number one, unbanning a lot of people, and number two, decreasing the power that uh, mods and owners have there. So this would really be implying that someone like me would be welcome back there. So I'm, gonna, I'm definitely going to give that a shot. But while I am in agreement with that, just unbanning everybody, again, is a mistake because there are scammers who are banned. There are spammers who are banned. There are some people banned on 2 plus 2 over the years, both recently and not so recently, who should stay banned. Then there's many others who should not. So really what they should be doing is unbanning anyone who hasn't broken such and such major rules, such as you can be unbanned as long as you didn't scam, as long as you didn't spam, and as long as you didn't uh, do anything illegal or, or threaten violence to someone, something like that. And if so, if you're in this category, email such and such person and we'll put you back. That, that should be what they say if this is their plan. They shouldn't just blanket unban everybody because that will uh, bring on a lot of problems that were already solved. That's an overcorrection of the problem for sure. And uh, a lot of people are saying that as well. In fact, surprisingly, there was a number of users on 2 plus 2 who really weren't for this mass unbanning. They just kind of like it the way it is, which I think is really stupid. There's a lot of people who should not have been banned there, myself included. We are going to manually pick users with the most influence on the website and invite them to a private Discord channel. However, the public Discord channel is available for everyone, and you're welcome to join the 2 plus 2 Discord. And they had a link to it. Here are some next steps. One, remove all banner ads already done. Two, lift most of the restrictions in our marketplace forums, making them free. Three, encourage companies, coaches, and others to post about themselves, their products, and their services for free. That's real interesting. So in a way, they're kind of letting you spam there and let you just post about uh, whatever you have going. In fact, uh, I guess by this rule, provided they really have enacted it, I can post ads about Poker Fraud Alert now, which before it was completely the other way. Mason had this obsession with not allowing what he considers spam, and yet what he considered spam is very different than what, what most others consider spam and what most other forum owners consider spam. So I will tell you as a forum owner what I consider spam, and I think my view of what spam is is very reasonable. To me, spam is any kind of ad for another website or a commercial service that provides no value to the forum or is posted by someone who's simply there to advertise for free. So 
if anybody shows up to Poker Fraud Alert and just posts an ad for any product, I don't care what type of product it is, I don't care if it's a legitimate product, whatever it is, if they're going to post an ad for any product or website, and that's the reason they're here on my site, I'm going to delete it and ban them because my forum is not a place for free advertising. If they want to advertise, they can uh, message me and we can discuss rates to advertise. But uh, there's not going to be free advertising on Poker Fraud Alert, and that, that is spam, and that's what most other forum owners would consider spam and would do the same thing. And of course, it's very reasonable. Uh, but as far as links to other sites, um, as long as it's relevant, then links to other sites should be allowed, even if it's your own site, especially if you're a regular poster otherwise who contributes good content. So I don't stop people from linking their sites. And in fact, I allow regular users on Poker Fraud Alert who contribute content to post in their signature a link to their own personal site, even if there's commercial stuff there. I don't allow them to post free ads, but if they want to put it in their signature, they can put it, or they can put it in their avatar, uh, a reference to their site. They can do that as long as they are otherwise contributing to the forum with content that people enjoy reading, and they're not just here to promote. That, that's my attitude about spam. The, the only exception to that is if uh, someone so starts a site that is supposed to be a competitor to Poker Fraud Alert, then I may not allow them to advertise. And I mean a direct competitor, not just another form, but something that's kind of uh, meant to replace Poker Fraud Alert, that is meant to uh, take away people uh, being here to send them elsewhere. So if, if that uh, is the purpose of another site, well anyone has a right to start a competitor site to Poker Fraud Alert, then I may restrict that. But that would be only, the only exception. But Mason didn't see it that way. Mason banned any link to any other site if it was posted by someone who owns the site or works for the site, which was really annoying because I made a lot of good posts on 2 Plus 2, but I was not allowed to ever link Poker Fraud Alert. Now, others could link Poker Fraud Alert, but I could not link Poker Fraud Alert, which is dumb. Now, I would understand if Mason didn't want me just gratuitously linking Poker Fraud Alert or didn't want me gratuitously posting, hey, my radio show's today, yeah, here's how you listen. I would understand that. That's totally reasonable. What's not reasonable is if uh, a topic gets brought up on 2 Plus 2 and I say, hey, you know what? We already had a discussion of this on my forum. Uh, here it is. That, that would be totally reasonable. Or if I bring up a topic there and say, uh, explain the topic and then say, hey, you know, here's, here's a discussion we, we already have going, if it's something that people would really want to know about over there. That's just not allowed there. You can never post a link to your own site. Mason was just obsessed with what he called spam and overdid it. I don't act that way. If somebody, if somebody wants to bring a topic over to Poker Fraud Alert that is being discussed on their forum, and, and they're doing it with noble intentions not to uh, try to compete with Poker Fraud Alert and not, not to take people away from Poker Fraud Alert, but just to say, hey, I've got a forum where there's a, um, you know, here, here's an interesting topic, or especially if there's an existing topic, hey, we're having a discussion over on my forum about this too. That's totally fine. Totally fine. So um, it looks like they're going the other way here, that you could just show up there and post about your services. He says, encourage companies, coaches, and others to post about themselves, their products, and their services for free. Now, why would they allow this? Well, again, I think they're just trying to bring as many eyeballs over there as possible. They want to become like a one-stop shop to get information about everything in poker, even commercial services in poker, that they'll actually let you advertise for free because they're just trying to get eyeballs over there. I think that's a mistake, though. I don't think outright spam should be allowed. I mean, if they allow it, I'll probably post some links to this show or to Poker Fraud Alert to get some more people over here. So I'm, I'm not saying I won't take advantage of it if it's allowed. 
if it's allowed by their rules, then I'll do it. But uh, I, I'm saying as a forum user, I don't think that's a good policy. I don't think that's not a policy I have here. I don't allow people to just show up and I, I wouldn't allow like a poker coach to show up and post about all of his poker coaching services. I'd say, okay, well, if you want to do that, pay me for ads. Otherwise, uh, scram. Now, if somebody's been posting a lot on Poker Fraud Alert and wants to mention they have a poker uh, coaching service or have another signature, fine. But uh, if the whole purpose of being here is to advertise, it's not happening on my dime. But apparently over there you can. Number four, gather feedback about the forum and analyze this data. Number five, revise our ban policy. We already discussed that. Number six, grow our social network channels, whatever that means. And I guess uh, by that, they mean their Facebook, their Twitter, their Discord, and their Telegram, all of which they posted links to. Finishes off by saying, let us make important decisions together and forge a brighter future. Go to, the, go to this topic. What would you change on 2 plus 2 and give, our, give your feedback about the website today? So a lot of people weren't happy about this stuff. A lot of people felt they were inviting spam. They were inviting scammers to come back. It's going to ruin the marketplace. All very valid points. The only thing I really didn't agree with a lot of the users on was about the banned users, not just because I'm one of them. I actually think that on 2 plus 2, if people were asked, uh, should Dan Druff come back, like almost everybody would say yes. I'm actually pretty well liked by the user base and even the mods on 2 plus 2. So it's not even like uh, all the users want me banned and I'm mad about that. I I I'm pretty sure if they were asked, we'd have an overwhelming consensus that I should come back. Uh, because I, I really, I, I didn't cause trouble there. I, I made quality posts, even when people did, did agree with me. I was, I was polite with people. So uh, I, I was a, a positive poster over there. I was a positive uh, account to have on that site. And I'm only gone because Mason's a dick. But I, I think I'm going to make an account there. Partially because I'd like to come back and partially because uh, I want to shove it in Mason's face that I'm back on his former site. Anyway, uh, people asked them a bunch of questions and it took a few days, but they answered. So someone asked the obvious question, how are you going to pay the bills? If all this stuff is free, you can even spam them for free. How are you going to pay the bills? So this is where we got an interesting piece of information. He said, the current burn rate is about $3,000 per month. We can cover it by taking money for sticky topics in the marketplace forums and by our own funds. Hmm. Listen to that again. The current burn rate is about 3K per month. Now, by burn rate, I'm not sure what they mean. I know what burn rate means, but I don't know if that means they're, you know, remember, these are Russians who are trying to speak English. I don't know if they are saying that they're actually losing 3K per month or if 3K a month is the cost of running 2 plus 2 at the moment. Now, Either way, if it costs 3 k per month to run 2 plus 2, there's something wrong. That's way too much. And I've suspected this for a while. What I've suspected for a while, and I don't have any proof of this, but uh, I have suspected for a while that Mason was wasting a lot of money. When money was flowing very easily in poker, especially to a site that uh, ran ads for poker uh, online poker sites and uh, sold books, in the 2000s, Mason was basically printing money by being in the right place at the right time. So there you can afford to waste money. But uh, when times get leaner, like it is now in poker, you can't afford to waste money, especially as forums keep contracting and people instead move over to social media. So 3K per month is a lot of money to be spending on something like 2 plus 2 per month to operate it. Why? Because it shouldn't cost that much. That's why. How much do I spend running Poker Fraud Alert per month? Well, I'm not going to tell you, but it's 
incredibly less than 3K per month. In fact, uh, I will go as far to tell you that it's less than 3K per year. In fact, it's a good deal less than 3K per year. That's why I don't complain about the fact that I don't bring in money here because it's it's mostly an inconsequential sum of money that uh, I'm losing running Poker Fraud Alert. Now, would it be nice to make money with this site? Yeah, sure. Uh, would I be opposed to it? Of course not. And would it be nice if it at least broke even? Yeah, but I'm not, I don't stress about it. I, I, I don't run Poker Fraud Alert for money. And for that reason, since it's uh, losing very little, since it's a, it's a cheap operation, I don't sweat it. But uh, can you imagine three k per month? And where are they spending it? So I think they're overpaying for their server. I think that uh, Mason, you know, remember he has these lawyers that uh, I don't know what his deal is with them, but they always seem to be uh, ready and seem to be doing some work in the background. So I think he's paying lawyers for a lot of needless stuff he doesn't really need anymore. So I think there's that. And I, I who knows who else he's paying. But I, I think Mason has a... he. I think 2 plus 2, the forum, was spending a lot more than it needed to to run the way it currently runs. I, he could bring the expenses way, 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 way down and basically present the same product and not have any kind of additional exposure. He just, I don't think, knew how to do it. I don't think Mason really understood how much he was overpaying. And I kind of got that impression when they were talking about switching software a while back because it, it really seemed like uh, they, they didn't have a clue. I was pretty surprised. So... Also, at the time when they were thinking of uh, switching forum software, it was funny because they, they had up the – right before that, they had these really obnoxious ads. I discussed this last show that everyone hated, that were hard to dismiss, that got in your way of browsing the forum. And uh, Matt Skolansky, David's son, who, who's a, some sort of manager over on 2plus2.com, uh, when asked why they weren't gone yet, he said, well, let's leave them a few more days. We need the money. <laughs> and, and he was serious like they they put up these awful banner ads that, that were making it very tough to browse the site and he's like uh can we at least leave them up till tuesday we really need the money i'm like wow they must be really hurting there they've got, they've got to leave the banners up till tuesday he wasn't joking either so i i really thought that uh mason was getting very unhappy about the fact that he was losing money every month I don't know. Maybe it wasn't, but I have a feeling it was. I have a feeling it was losing money every month. So I don't know if these dudes are saying it was losing 3K every month or if they spend 3K every month. Whatever it is, uh, it's it's too much. They can do it much cheaper. But interestingly enough, they're not even saying they're going to cut that down. They're just saying that they can uh, cover this amount by taking money for sticky topics in the marketplace forums or by their own funds, which is weird. Like, that still doesn't explain how they're going to monetize it. That explains how they can physically keep it operating. But uh, the only thing they're saying there is they're going to take money for people who want sticky threads, meaning ones that are always stuck at the top of the screen uh, of, of the forum in the marketplace. Someone asked a related question, how will you monetize the site? And they said back, in the next few years, monetization will not be our main focus, which is pretty amazing that they, for, for years <laughs> they don't really care about making money on it. The focus will be on building a professional poker community for the intelligent discussion as well as on the growing the user database. My vision is to create something people love, make it popular, and money will follow. 
Deals with online gambling operators will be the main source of revenue in the future. We won't sell user emails. We won't sell any subforums. We will not monetize the site in any other dirty way. Hmm. So I'm not understanding this. These guys were not really forum posters prior to this. It's, it's pretty clear. So it's not like they just uh, want to own 2 plus 2 because they've always posted there and they just kind of had a dream to own it one day and they're willing to just run it at a loss. It, it looks like these are just guys who came out of nowhere who just bought it. They, they claim for a few years they're not going to really try to monetize it much and they just want it to be something that's popular that, pe- that people want to come to. So who knows if they're telling the truth? This really could be an attempt to build it up in a way where they either later sell email addresses, even though they're saying they won't, or they'll later sell uh, private subforums or promotional subforums, or that they'll have affiliate links. Uh, actually, they haven't ruled that out, but uh, affiliate links are fine, by the way. I'm not saying they're bad, as long as they're not scam sites, but... It looks like they're claiming that they just want to make it popular and then they'll see what to do from there, which may or may not be true or maybe half true. Do you plan to make any aesthetic changes? They were asked. They said back, yes. For example, update low quality, outdated icons. (laughs) What? However, we will keep the current theme and feel. Will Discord kill the website? So we won't let this happen. People can't have intelligent conversations on Discord over a long period of time, making it less suited to building a professional community. Discord is for short live conversations for those who enjoy it. Will the site mainly be a funnel for the Discord? Said so no worries, no dirty plans regarding two plus two. What were your usernames on two plus two before the acquisition? And then he this is where they admit they weren't really part of the form. Besides a few posts from our hand to note account, I don't recall having written anything except a single post in 2015. To my knowledge, Max has never posted on 2 Plus 2, and he's barely active on social media. So these are, these are guys that look like they've probably made like five posts lifetime combined on 2 Plus 2. So these are not 2 Plus 2 fanatics who just wanted to own it. Are you going to make a mobile version? Absolutely. Mobile devices account for at least half our website visits. The mobile app is a high priority for us. Someone said, I think it's more likely he said offline players instead of live players simply due to English not being his first language. He says, exactly. He kept talking about offline players. People didn't understand it, but that was just a language barrier. No big deal. People wondered how much they paid. Nobody really discussed this on 2 Plus 2, but they were discussing it over on Poker Fraud Alert. And I'll tell you my guess, and this is just a total guess out of the air. I have no inside information here, in case you're wondering. But my guess out of the air is 250K. Why? Because there's pluses and minuses to buying 2 plus 2. The pluses are, number one, it's a long-standing major poker forum with name recognition. Number two, there's good SEO opportunities to bring in traffic. Number three, there's a huge list of gambling interest e- interested emails, which uh, even if you're not going to sell them, you can use in other ways. And, and number four, there's uh, repeat visits by a lot of the user base. A lot of people uh, keep coming back daily or at least weekly. Uh, But there's minuses. Number one, forums are rapidly dying. Every day, forums get less popular. And 2 plus 2 is definitely drying up quickly. Number two, no existing revenue structure exists right now, and the site is probably losing money. Number three, regular repeat users are unlikely to be interested in affiliate deals. So yeah, you can put up affiliate links, but uh, the regular users probably are members of all the poker sites they're going to be a member of. They, They don't need your affiliate links. So you're only going to get the affiliate revenue from the people who uh, either find it through uh, searches on Google or casual users. 
so the regular traffic doesn't bring in that much revenue. Number four, you, the user base may largely abandon the site if you make major changes. I know they said they're not going to, but if your goal to buy something like 2 plus 2 is to make major changes, you're going to lose a lot of the people. So that brings down its value. So my guess is they paid something like 250k. I don't think they paid uh, much more than that, and I don't think they paid all that much less than that. That's, that's my ballpark guess. Maybe I'm wrong, but I'd be very shocked if they paid something like... One million dollars. That would really shock me. Really shock me. It would also shock me if they bought it for like 50K. So I, I bet it's six figures below six figures. That's what I think. I don't think there's really a lot of options either way that would make sense. I mean, maybe I'll be surprised if I ever find out, but I don't think it makes a lot of sense. Sidewinder, who's a tech guy who posts on uh, Poker Fraud Alert, said, uh, LOL, what? 3K a month to run a forum? Come on, I know it's a big forum, but one good dedicated server and one good outside tech guy is definitely less than $1,000. Now, that is true that they had to have a tech guy because uh, Mason is not technical. Poker Fraud Alert does not need a tech guy because I am the tech guy, but I understand many people who run forums uh, need a tech guy. Anyway, there's a lot of people who are a little concerned about the whole thing. People are starting to get pissed off because they are afraid that the marketplace is going to get ruined and that they've spent a long time building that up. On the 30th of July, much more recently now, less than a week ago, the new owner posted this. Hello, per our initial plan, we have made a few changes to the marketplaces. Most of them are now free of charge and now devoid of restrictions. Moreover, the forum structure has been reorganized and features a new section called Online Poker Rooms and Marketplaces, which includes the following subforums. The Online Poker Room subforum consists of official and non-official poker room threads. If you need to speak with the representatives of poker stars or another room, that's where you'll find them. Any legitimate poker room can start an official thread. So that would, they used to be called the Internet Poker Forum. Now it's just called uh, Online Poker Rooms, which has confused some people. The coaches and schools subforum consists of poker coach listings as, far, as well as professional poker schools. Any coach or school can start a thread for free. Hmm. The poker software subforum consists of official support threads. You can directly interact with software developers or the representatives. All software developers can now create official support thread for free. Sticky threads will be provided to those who offer real discounts to 2 plus 2 members. And the staking subforum consists of a set of subforums that facilitate offering and selling stakes and the purchase of MTT shares. Here, anyone's free to participate without restrictions. As always, members are advised to use their best judgment and to be aware of the risks involved in staking activities. And then the general marketplace forum consists of want to buy, want to sell listings. All restrictions are lifted here too. What do you think about these changes? Please share your thoughts and your feedback is appreciated. So the without restrictions parts are really getting people nervous and a lot of people are bitching about it, saying that spammers and scammers are just going to ruin these marketplace forums. Longtime users and even some mods are just sitting there in disbelief. It really does look like Mason just sold out to the Russians. Looks like he just sold out to two young Russian dudes who wanted to pay him and make him stop losing money every month. And he really didn't have a care about what would happen to his site, which pretty much defines his legacy. Because if you think about Mason Malmuth, what do you think of? Do you think of Mason Malmuth, the great poker player? No. Do you think of Mason Malmuth, the great author? I mean, probably not. I know he's written some books, but uh, really the better work was done by Skolansky. The Skolansky and Malmuth books were, the, the good stuff was really from Skolansky, let's face it. So you think of Mason as the publisher of 2 Plus 2 books, 
and think of Mason as the owner of the 2 plus 2 forum, probably more prominently. So if the forum turns to crap because new owners do stupid things with it, then that really ruins his legacy. You won't totally blame him, but when you're selling something like this, which is closely tied to your name, you would think you'd want to sell it to someone who's generally going to run it like you were running it. So, for example, let's say uh, Mason Malmuth uh, just sold it to just you know some random poker forum uh, member. Let's say just some guy on the forum he sold it to. And let's say the new forum guy said, okay, uh, we're going to be a lot less restrictive than the Mason, and we're going to allow a lot more links to people's sites, especially if it's relevant, and we're going to stop banning people, and we're going to let a lot of banned people to come back. That would all be cool. And, and people wouldn't say, oh, no, Mason sold out. People would say, okay, you know, someone more reasonable is running it now, is what they'd say. But, but this looks like it's going to be such a departure from what 2 plus 2 was, and, and there's uh, going to be a lot of things there that uh, – will make it easy for scammers to victimize people. So they, they have said that they haven't set these changes in stone yet, but it kind of looks like they just kind of want a free-for-all, and they just want a lot of people to come there, and they don't really give a crap. They, their attitude is, is like, you're all adults here. Everybody should just know the risks, and that's it. If scammer's going to be here, scammer's going to be here, which you may think sounds reasonable on the surface, but it really isn't. And the reason it isn't is because the owner of a forum does have some moral duty to protect the users from scammers to the best of their ability. And I say the best of their ability, meaning you can't be a mind reader. So if somebody is there and seems like they're okay and they actually have a plan to scam people, you usually won't find this out until after they've scammed people. So they're, it's not your fault. And that's happened on Poker Fraud Alert. There have been scammers on Poker Fraud Alert. Not a whole lot of them. We've had a few. And these were not people who showed signs they were scammers. These were people who seemed like they were decent guys, and then they ended up being scammers. And uh, they were outed, and then this, if, if I allowed it to happen again, then it would be my fault, at least somewhat my fault. But, but I didn't. And I don't blame Mason for any scams that happened on 2 plus 2, and I don't blame the new owners for any scams that may happen on 2 plus 2. But if they allow known scammers back there to victimize people who don't read it as actively, then that is somewhat their fault because they already know what they're dealing with and they're going to let people back on who've done it before. And that's a big difference than uh, someone who otherwise seems okay ends up scamming people, which that a forum owner can't control. So there's a lot of people unhappy about this. Also, a lot of people are still confused. Like Frank Rizzo, who's a regular poster on Poker Fraud Alert, he doesn't understand that the Internet Poker Forum is now called Online Poker Rooms. He posted on Poker Fraud Alert on July 31st, the Internet Poker Forum, also known as the Zoo, has vanished. No, it hasn't. It's just been renamed, but they weren't that clear about it. I know it has, but a lot of people don't. We've seen a lot of people asking where that went. The whole thing isn't going very well right now, in my opinion, and I, I don't think these young guys know what they're doing. I kind of support some of the stuff that they want to make 2 plus 2 into, but I think they're taking it too far. I think they're overcorrecting the problem. Anyway, I'm going to come there. I'm going to come there, and I I assume they're not going to ban me. We'll see what happens. I'll let you know. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. If you'd like to call or text me, give your comments about anything you've heard tonight or other topics you'd like to bring up, Please do so. Uh, if you're going to call, please do so between topics like right now. I want to give my thoughts about Lane Flack. And 
I know this was discussed on the show Brandon ran on July 24th, so I, I don't want to redo the whole topic. But Lane Flack passed away in July. He was only 52 years old. Very well-known poker pro. He was still playing. Some people thought that Lane Flack was someone who had left poker, maybe because he was broke or whatever, but uh, he hadn't left poker. He hasn't won a bracelet since 08, but in his defense, I haven't won a bracelet since 05. So bracelets don't mean everything as far as your poker skill. And uh, I know Flack has had money problems over the years, so that part was true, but he was actively playing, and if you looked at his uh, Hendon Mob results, you'll see that he was still an active player in tournaments, and he was showing up to the World Series every single year, which actually surprised me because I was actually someone who believed that Lane Flack was kind of gone. Like, I was pretty shocked when I went and looked back that Lane Flack cashed five times in the 2019 World Series of Poker. And I'm talking about the uh, real World Series, not the circuit. I mean, he also had a circuit cash, but I, but he, he had five caches in the 19 World Series. And that was uh, pretty surprising to me. Uh, not surprising was the fact that uh, while he's been able to play the seniors event, which uh, looks like was uh, in, was I think 19 and 20, uh, he was doing very well, <laughs> which you'd expect. Someone like Lane Flack, who is a very good player, a lot of experience, that uh, without the young hotshots there and even the semi-young hotshots that he would do very well. So in this two years playing the seniors event, uh, one year online because he had to in 20 and uh, one year live, he finished 20th and 76th, both in uh, big field events, especially in the uh, the 2019 version live. He finished 20th out of a huge field to get 23K. So he, he was still active in poker, still doing well. In the online World Series, he cashed a ton of times, like 11 times or something. So this was a guy who hadn't lost it yet, at least uh, not his edge, not his skill. Uh, he may have lost his bankroll. There's a lot of different stories about uh, his poor bankroll management that went around over the years. That's why I assumed he was gone. I hadn't seen him around. I guess we, we just didn't end up at the same tables. So, I, I mean, it's not like I don't play the same events he does. I, I do play some of the events he was playing. We just didn't run into each other. Uh, we, we did know each other a little bit. We were never friends. We were never enemies. We didn't have all that much meaningful communication. But I have known him going all the way back to like 03. Now, here's what's funny is that the way I first got to know Lane Flack was on Poker Stars, and it was before anyone who knew, knew who Dan Druff really was. I was just known as Dan Druff on Poker Stars. And when I play live, people knew me as Todd, but I, it was seen as two different people. I didn't advertise I was Dan Druff. And I only did this after I finished third at the World Series of Poker in my first World Series of Poker event in 05. But back in 03, when I was playing on Poker Stars all day and all night, uh, I was not known as the same person as as the guy you'd see at Commerce or or anywhere else in, in live poker rooms. I, I kept them separate. Anyway, Lane was on Poker Stars a good deal in the Limit Hold'em games, and he got to know Dandruff there. You know, again, we weren't friends, but we played each other a lot, and we'd talk in the chat a little bit. But I, I was not close to him in any way. That's why it surprised me. When one day Lane 
sits at a table where I'm playing. This is in 03. And says, hey, Dan, it's Lane. And yeah, I knew it's Lane. I knew who he was. <laughs> but he, he sits at the table, sits out just to talk to me. Says, hey, Dan, it's Lane. I say, yeah, what's going on? He says, can you do a favor for me? And I said, yeah, okay. And I'm like, what's he going to ask of me here? And he says, can you call Huck Seed for me and give him a message? I'm thinking, what? Like, I don't know Huck Seed. I know who Huck Seed is, but I've never met Huck Seed. I've never talked to Huck Seed. I, I have no relationship with Huck Seed. So I'm thinking, why, why does he want me to call Huck Seed for him? And why can't he make the call himself? So, so I, I asked him, uh, why do you need me to call Huck Seed? Why can't you just call him? And he said, I'm in a hotel and uh, there's no phone here, only the internet, or something like that. He, he couldn't make a call for some reason. So he needed me to call Huck Seed, who was staying at the Bellagio, and give a message for him. I forgot the message. It was kind of a, a cryptic message I didn't really understand. But he, he, he typed it out there in public and said, can you say such and such to Huck Seed? He's at the Bellagio. Can you call up and ask for Huck Seed's room and, and tell him this? So I'm like, um, okay. Now, this is a weird request because, again, Lane and I were not close, and uh, I didn't know Huck Seed at all. So I'm like, okay. So I pick up my phone, and I, I call up the Bellagio. Can I have Huck Seed's room, please? They connected me to Huck Seed's room. Huck answers the phone. And I say, hey, Huck, uh, I, I was told to give you this message by Lane Flack. I'm playing online poker with him. He told me to give you this message. Huck's like, uh, okay. And I said, okay, the message is this. <laughs> he says, okay. And I said, all right, that, that's all I have to say. That's what he wanted me to tell you. He says, okay, thanks, bye. And that was the call. <laughs> so I, I told Lane, yeah, okay, I'm done. I gave the message for you. And he said, thank you. And and that was that. That, that was the... Uh, first like real major interaction i had with him we as if we chat back and forth on poker stars but uh just kind of table talk eventually in person i would meet him uh there was never any kind of formal meeting and somehow he just you know he just knew who i was by then by the time i met him in person he he called me dan druff i didn't say hey lane I, i'm the one who you talked to as dan druff he knew by then this is after i was known as dandruff and what i look like so he must have seen it on tv or whatever and uh so yeah he'd say hello to me or, or one time he made a really weird comment I, I didn't quite understand it one time i was sitting in bellagio this is probably like 13 years ago 14 years ago or something like that and lane walks by and sees me there and says instead of saying hi he's saying dandruff and I say, yeah. He goes, Dan Druff likes poker. You like poker, Dan Druff? I'm like, yeah. And he goes, yep. Dan Druff really likes poker. <laughs> and then he just walks off. <laughs> what was the point of that? I don't know if he was on something or what. Very weird. But I, I didn't have really many meaningful interactions with the guy. I saw when he was uh, pictured golfing with Russ Hamilton after Russ was disgraced as being the main cheater in the UB scandal. And a lot of people gave Lane a very hard time for that. How could you associate with uh, Russ? You're such a scumbag, Lane. How, how could you still be friends with him after all the cheating he's done? Blah, blah, blah. You know what? I, I'll tell you this. I, I wasn't thrilled to see he was buddies with Russ. And obviously this made me... Uh, less want to get to know Lane. I didn't really know him very well, but it made me even less want to get to know him 
because he was close with Russ, and obviously I was very unhappy with Russ, and Russ personally cheated me. But at the same time, I thought, okay, well, he's probably had a long-standing friendship with Russ, and Lane was associated with Montana and the Montana poker scene. That's, that's pretty much where he came out of was Montana. He wasn't born in Montana, but he was associated with the Montana poker scene uh, earlier in his poker career, and, and so was Russ. So he had a longstanding friendship with the guy. It's easier said than done to just abandon longtime friends, even when they've done something like that. I'm not saying I wouldn't. Like If I, if I had a friend that did something like that, I, I probably wouldn't want to be friends with them anymore publicly or privately. And there have been friends that I've abandoned before because they've done things that uh, I just think, wow, that's that's pretty bad, and I, I just don't want to associate it with this person anymore. I'm not saying I, I hold all of my friends to standards of perfect behavior because then I'd have no friends <laughs> if if I ditched everybody every time they did something I disagreed with. But, uh, you know, like, like, for example, there was a girl, I, I never dated her, never wanted to date her, but there's a girl I knew back in the early 2000s who kind of followed me into the poker scene, and then I found out she was scamming people. And I told her, I don't want to talk to you anymore. I, I told her, that's it. You know, Don't call me again. Don't associate with me anymore. Like I, I wanted nothing more to do with her when I found out that she was scamming people in poker after having kind of followed me into the scene. Like She saw I was playing poker. She says, what are you doing? Can you show me the website you're playing on? Then she, she joined the site and, and uh, unbeknownst to me, started scamming people. So... Uh, not only did I warn everybody that I knew she was talking to that she might scam them, but uh, I also told her I want nothing to do with her anymore, even though we uh, had previously talked a lot and, and had been uh, pretty good friends prior to that. So someone like Russ Hamilton, who did this on a massive scale with the UB super using, I would not have remained friends with him, but I understand that someone who chooses to stay friends with Russ after being a longtime friend of his, you can't judge them as harshly as uh, you might want to as an outsider. At the same time, though, there were rumors about Lane himself that he hadn't always acted ethically. In fact, uh, Jennifer Harmon told an anecdote on Twitter after Lane passed that she staked him one time. And this, this was like supposed to be a charming anecdote, but I didn't find it very charming. She staked him one time with a bunch of conditions, a bunch of rules regarding the stake that he had to agree to. And she didn't say what they were, but she said, uh, by the end of the first night, he had broken them all. Oh, well, that's Lane. Wah, 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 wah. Like, uh, that was the tone of the tweet. Like, it's kind of funny and cute that uh, she staked him with all these rules about the stake, and by the end of the night, he'd broken them all. And I, I have to imagine he was playing games he wasn't supposed to. He was playing pit games. I'm just guessing at this stuff. But there's probably a bunch of, like, rules that she put on him because he was known to be a degenerate that you can't do such and such with my money if I stake you in this tournament. He says, okay, and then he breaks them all that same night. Like, uh, that's not charming. That's not cute to me. That's kind of a scumbaggy thing to do. Now, apparently Lane was a fun guy to play with, a pleasant guy to be around, uh, had a good sense of humor, had an infectious laugh and a a nice personality that people enjoyed. That's fine, but... There were a number of stories about him over the years that that he did unethical things. So it doesn't surprise me that he wasn't that outraged about what Russ Hamilton did. I don't believe Lane had any involvement in any of the UB cheating, but 
at the same time, it's not that surprising that he wasn't going, Russ, how could you have done that? How could you have stolen uh, tens of millions of dollars in the poker community? I, I, I'm sure he didn't think that at all. I'm sure he kind of maybe even felt bad for all the heat Russ was getting. Uh, he definitely wasn't afraid of uh, going out and golfing with him still. So what I had heard about Lane was that he was uh, frequently in money trouble and that there were... Uh, a number of stories about him engaging in uh, various forms of uh, unethical behavior and angle shooting. And I know he's one of the older school players, not super old school like Doyle, but uh, an older school player. He was 52 years old and uh, you know he started playing from a young age. So he, he predates me by uh, yeah, at least uh, more than a decade. And well before the poker boom, there was a lot of this angle shooting and hustling going on in poker that was more accepted in those days. So I, I can understand from that standpoint where uh, this wasn't frowned upon as much as it was later, but still, it was still frowned upon, and still there's just some basic codes of ethics that uh, it seems like he broke a lot. Now, does that mean he wasn't uh, a good poker player? No, it has nothing to do with that. Obviously, the guy had a lot of poker talent. He has six bracelets. He won uh, three of those six after the poker boom, two in 03 and one in 08, three of them before the poker boom in 99 and two in 02. And he had the nickname Back-to-Back Flack because he won uh, two consecutive Legends of Poker events in uh, 99. And then uh, he also uh, did something similar in the World Series of Poker, winning two bracelets in each of those years. He also won a World Poker Tour title. I mean, I, the, the guy obviously had a lot of poker talent. And the guy had a personality a lot of people liked. So there were a number of positives about Lane Flack. And as far as his behavior as far as his uh, personal ethics i think there was a lot to be desired but he, he wasn't one of the worst people he wasn't anywhere near on the level as uh, russ hamilton or some other huge scumbags of poker however uh, he's someone you couldn't trust especially with money I and mean, that's the bottom line and and the the fact that he's not alive anymore that doesn't change that fact and i could do what everybody else needs to be doing and, and go out there and say what a great guy he was and uh and just tell story after story of fun times with Lane. But I, I don't want to do that. I want to present a realistic portrait of Lane's life and legacy in poker. So as I said, I have mixed feelings about him. And I, I never had any incidents with him. That I'm not saying any of this because I had problems with him. We never argued once. We never fought once. We never argued on social media. We never even talked shit in the chat room. When we chatted on Poker Stars, we were very friend- friendly to one another. That's probably why he felt comfortable asking me to give that message to uh, Huxeed before anyone even knew who Dandruff was. You know, the guy had some problems, for sure. He originally started, by the way, working in a casino. He was originally a night manager in a casino. I don't know which one, but... Uh, he eventually transitioned to actually playing poker and then quit the manager job. And apparently Johnny Chan was a big influence on him that uh, 
Johnny Chan helped him improve his game and also advised Lane to stop showing up to tournaments tired or worn out to make sure you have a lot of rest before tournament, which I guess beforehand he wasn't doing. And uh, Ted Forrest also helped Lane improve his game. I don't know if he backed him as well, but uh, Ted Forrest uh, also had an influence on Lane. Lane did cash $4.3 million or so, cash 43 times in the World Series, and that, in fact, was the majority of his uh, $4.3 million in live cashes. From what I heard, he was uh, not doing well financially many times, which is probably why he needed that stake from uh, Jennifer Harmon and many others over time. Unfortunately, his story is not too different from a lot of poker players, especially uh, ones that came up in those days. A lot of hustling, some unethical behavior, a lot of skill, a lot of money problems, and unfortunately, an early death. That brings us, of course, to the question, how did Lane die? It was said that he died in his sleep, but uh, more information was not given. Now, Lane was only 52, and he is not known to have, at least as far as I have been told, he's not known to have uh, life-threatening health problems. Now, can someone who doesn't have previous known health problems die in their sleep at 52? Yeah, it can happen. Is it common? Not at all. I'm near 52. Not quite there yet, but I'm not far from there. It would be unlikely for me to just die in my sleep at this point. Now, in 20 years, yeah. 30 years, definitely. 40 years, yeah. But right now, no. Right now, it would not be very likely for me to just die in my sleep because I don't have any known uh, deadly issues. If I were to have a heart attack at this point, it would be more likely it would be when I'm exerting myself in some way, not when I'm sleeping or sitting or something like that. So for Lane to just die in his sleep at 52, uh, there could have been many contributing causes that could be uh, behavioral, so to speak. So I won't speculate too much because I don't know. But he did die in his sleep, and he wasn't known to be sick. And usually when that happens to a 52-year-old, they had a hand in it. Not always, but usually. I don't know if it'll ever be announced. There may be eventually be whispers about what happened. I actually heard one whisper, but I don't know if it's correct, so I'm not going to repeat it. But I'm just going to say that Given Lane's history and things I've heard about him, I would be surprised if this was a completely natural death that he had no hand in. Am I saying he deserved it? No, of course not. Sometimes we are the product of our decisions, and if we make bad decisions regarding uh, things that can affect our health and our likelihood of dying at an early age, and then we die at an early age, then uh, it is our fault. Whereas uh, like somebody who just abruptly dies of an unexpected health condition that they couldn't have helped, then that's a different story. It's also a different story if someone has like a, a lifelong uh, behavioral issue that, that eventually gets them. Like just someone who's kind of overweight and, and dies at a young age of a heart attack. You can say, okay, well, they should have eaten less. Yeah, well, for some people it's hard. Some people, uh, they have a slow metabolism. They, they, uh, they don't feel satiated unless they eat a lot of food. It's a lot easier said than done when you say to someone, hey, lose weight 
or hey uh work out more you know you, you can say things like that and if people don't and then they die you can't say it's totally their fault uh however just you know, hypothetically, if someone uh, has a drug overdose and then they die, that's totally their fault because they made, made an active choice to do drugs on that day that they didn't have to do, and uh, then they die, it's their fault. So to me, there's different levels of fault in one's own death. My guess is that there was uh, probably a decent chance that there was a uh, medium to high level of fault in this death. And, you know, it's sad. It's, it's sad that uh, a lot of poker players do die of substance abuse issues or related to substance abuse issues. And again, I don't have any kind of proof that this is what happened. You know, it kind of seems in the realm of possibility, given everything we know and everything we don't know. And I actually wish that we had a conversation about this I don't mean on this show, but I mean just in the poker community in general. I, I wish the poker community would frown more upon substance abuse. I see a lot of substance abuse in poker. I've seen a lot of people pay for it with their lives. I've seen others uh, close come close to paying for it with their lives. Some have gotten clean. Some get clean for a while and end up back on drugs, but uh, it's a problem. I saw it happen a lot. I still see it happen. And I think if the community itself uh, looked down upon it more, then this would happen less. It wouldn't stop, but I think it would happen less. I think there's kind of just too much uh, belief that substance abuse is okay. Then a lot more people do it. Kind of a chain reaction. Someone, in fact, posted on Twitter, I forgot who it was, that uh, it's too bad Lane Flack's death can't be used to get that conversation going. And I agree. Anyway, his uh, passing was on July 20, uh, July 19th. He was born on May 18th, 1969. He's about three years older than me. Feels kind of strange when poker pros die who are near my age. You're going to see a lot more of this unless uh, we see some changes in the community with uh, the abuse of drugs. And just generally very unhealthy lifestyles. And when I say very, I mean very. I don't just mean not eating well and not exercising. I mean very unhealthy lifestyles. We've also seen some who have uh, died because of mental health issues. There's a lot of mental health issues in poker. And uh, some people don't get those addressed until it's too late. People asked me three years ago why I came forward in, in, with, with my own struggles with with mental health issues that fortunately weren't uh, long-term in my life, but came at me really hard. I had to shut down this show for a few months because of them. I said, I, I, I want to be public with this. I don't think it's something to be ashamed of. I think it's, it's something people should talk about. So I did an interview with Poker News. I was open on Twitter about the whole thing that was happening to me. And, and fortunately, I, I've mostly gotten past it. Unfortunately, also, it didn't have any kind of uh, impact on me, such as any kind of suicidal thoughts or, or any kind of desire to uh, abuse substances. So fortunately, I didn't have any of those side effects from it. I, I've mostly come back from it, though there's some damage that will never be gone. But I think that's something that should be discussed more in poker, too. And that has taken lives. As far as Lane Flack is concerned... Flawed guy, good poker player, 
is sad that he passed away at 52. And rest in peace. We're going to take a break. So stay tuned, and I will return soon. On October 1st, 2020, I got some really bad news. I was being sued for $330 million over something I said on Poker Fraud Alert. After I calmed down and regained my composure, I knew I needed an attorney to help me, and I needed a good one. I've been singing the praises of attorney Eric Benzamokin for years, and I decided it only made sense that I practice what I preach. So without hesitation, I retained Eric to defend me. I was about to see firsthand if he was really as good of an attorney as I've been claiming all these years. Seven months later, it was over. The case against me was dismissed, and instead of a judgment against me, I had a $27,000 judgment against the guy who filed the frivolous lawsuit against me in the first place. I can now say with complete confidence that hiring Eric was a great decision. He's hardworking, thorough, knowledgeable. It seemed like he always knew the right move to make. Everything he advised me was 100% correct. And now that it's over, I can tell you there's not a single thing we should have done differently. He hit this one out of the park. Now, Eric has moved on to defending the poker community and small businesses around the globe from the greedy clutches of PayPal. They've been unfairly freezing and confiscating money from their customers. We've talked about it on this show. PayPal hasn't even been giving anyone a chance to explain themselves or appeal the decision. They just freeze your account and they take your money. This practice has gone on for years, and now Eric and the Benzamokin Law Firm are standing up to this Goliath, and they're fighting for the little guy to get their money back. World Series of Poker legend Chris Moneymaker and many others have retained the Benzamokin Law Firm to help fight against PayPal. If you've been victimized by PayPal, if your money's been frozen, if it's been taken, contact Eric right now at info at eblawfirm.us. That's info, I-N-F-O, at eblawfirm.us. Now, do you have another legal issue which you think might be heard in California or federal court? Contact Eric. Maybe he can help you. Do you need to file a bankruptcy? Eric has loads of experience in that area. Do you need arbitration or mediation? Eric can do that as well, no matter where you are. So contact him, info at eblawfirm.us, info at eblawfirm.us. He's a really nice guy. He's really knowledgeable. You've heard him on this show many times where he always has the right answers to any legal question we ask him. It's amazing. I trusted Eric. It worked out great. Now you can too. Eric Benzamokin and the Benzamokin Law Firm, info at eblawfirm.us. Okay, we're back, and I want to tell you guys a story. Not a story about me, but I want to tell you guys a story. Nothing about poker, nothing about gambling, but I want to tell you a story, and I want you guys to gather around the campfire. There we go. Got one going here. Hopefully it doesn't burn my house down. Got the door open here so you can hear the crickets and the animals. Fortunately, I live in an area with a lot of nature, so we can have those sounds in the background. So let me tell you a story. It's a story about a couple that decided that they were going to start an e-commerce newsletter. And I know you're already thinking I'm going to tune this out and go to sleep, because who wants to hear about an e-commerce newsletter, especially one in 1999 when it started, but it actually ended up spawning a very interesting story 20 years later. 
So here's what happened. It's a pretty unbelievable story. David and Ina Steiner, who were in their 30s at the time, in 1999, started an e-commerce newsletter about eBay because they were using eBay to uh, make a profit by buying things at stuff like garage sales and then uh, reselling whatever they bought on eBay, which is a pretty new site at the time. And they decided to start a newsletter about how to best utilize eBay for profit. Well, believe it or not, the e-commerce newsletter called E-Commerce Bytes still exists today. It's ecommercebytes.com. Now, why am I telling you about this? Well, would you believe that this small-time couple who never expanded beyond their e-commerce newsletter, I mean, they cover other things besides eBay now, but it's a pretty small site. You can go take a look at it, ecommercebytes.com. Somehow, they raised the ire of eBay. And when I say eBay, I don't mean a customer service rep or a low-level manager or maybe even a middle manager. No, they raised the ire of the CEO. Let me put out the fire here. It's annoying me. (laughs) There we go. Okay. They got attention, and the wrong kind of attention, from eBay simply because they were becoming increasingly critical of eBay's policies. Now, you may wonder why would eBay care so much? You know, e-commerce bytes wasn't exactly a major publication. It had been around for a long time. And, of course, a very large company like eBay has to expect there's going to be criticism from customers and former customers. I mean, that comes with the territory. It's a huge site. It's been around the web for over 20 years. So, of course, there's going to be criticism. Who cares? So what happened to David and Ina Steiner? Did they get legal threats? Was there a frivolous lawsuit filed against them where they mounted an anti-slap type defense like I did against Mike Possel? That's what you'd expect in a story like this. But no, there was no lawsuit. Well, actually, there is a lawsuit, but it's by them, not against them. And they are suing eBay because, unbelievably, eBay engaged in a campaign of harassment, stalking, and cyber-stalking against this couple because of what they were writing in their little newsletter. Now, I know you must be thinking there must be more to this story. I mean, how could that possibly happen? How could a small newsletter about eBay lead to a couple being stalked, harassed, and cyber-stalked by a major corporation. I mean, come on. That, if you saw this in a movie, you'd say this is ridiculous. This wouldn't happen in real life. I mean, this is what a stupid movie this is. The, the writers are morons to even pretend like a, a company like eBay would resort to tactics like this against a, a small newsletter publisher. If anything, they would harass them legally, but they would not uh, cyber-stalk them. Come on, eBay cyber-stalking a couple in their 50s? Nah, it's never going to happen. Except it did happen. I'm not just guessing it happened. I know it happened. I know it happened because a man was just sentenced to 18 months in prison, in federal prison, for taking part in a scheme to harass the couple in order to shut them up. And he was an eBay employee. And he was doing this 
on behalf of eBay, as were six other people. Four others, besides him, have already pled guilty, meaning five of the seven people, and five of the nine people, if you count the two high-level executives involved who have not been charged, have pled guilty. So this happened. (laughs) This happened, and people are going to prison for it. People have pled guilty in this scheme. So this is not just a, a rumor online. This is not something that's just going around on the internet, but is exaggerated. This is something that really did happen. So here's the rest of the story for you. It's, it's amazing. I was shocked when I read about this. And if you want to read about it, there is a thread on the flying stupidity portion of Poker Fraud Alert called, You Thought PayPal Was Bad? eBay security team harassed and cyber-stalked a newsletter writing couple because they were critical of the company. That's what the thread is called. It's in the Flying Stupidity forum of Poker Fraud Alert. You can see a bunch of links that I have to various stories and uh, some of my analysis of it. Or you could just listen to me as I tell you what happened. It's really amazing. I, I had to tell you about this story because it's not very well known. And it's true. You'd think it wouldn't be true, but it's true. So this is basically what occurred. This couple was getting critical of eBay in their newsletter, mainly because of uh, some policy changes that uh, eBay had enacted over the years. I won't bother to go into that detail. It's not very exciting. The main person who was uh, being critical of them was the female half of the cousin uh, of the couple, Ina Steiner. The reason eBay executives took notice of this is that there were two things happening at once that they manufactured in their heads was a conspiracy against the company. And they really did just manufacture this in their heads. Okay, so first of all, e-commerce bites, which had been around for 20 years at the time, we're talking about uh, 2019 when this happened. E-commerce bites was getting increasingly critical of eBay especially the stuff written by Ina Steiner. And then there was a Twitter troll who went by Fidomaster. Now, Fidomaster's identity is not known. It was not known then. It's still not known now. He was just some guy on Twitter who constantly wrote bad things about eBay. It's a dude. He said that his wife had bad experiences with eBay. I don't know his full backstory. It's not important. But this guy was obsessed with talking shit about eBay on Twitter. But so what? There's Twitter trolls all the time. There's Twitter trolls who talk shit about me. There's Twitter trolls who harass celebrities and, and bash them constantly. There's Twitter trolls who bash companies they don't like. If, if you're prominent or even semi-prominent, you're going to get Twitter trolls bothering you. You're going to have Twitter trolls criticizing you. And as long as they are not uh, doing anything illegal or violating Twitter's rules, then there's really nothing you can do. You just have to accept the fact that that's uh, part of uh, your notoriety, or in this case, your company's notoriety. Obviously, a huge company like eBay is going to get a lot of criticism just from the nature of how it operates. It's always going to get criticism. So there was some Twitter troll named Fido Master who loved to criticize eBay. Big deal. Well, for some reason, the top two executives at eBay or at least uh, the CEO plus another top executive, were really, really frustrated by what was being written by both Fidomaster and the Steiners in their e-commerce bytes newsletter. And they were convinced that 
they were doing it in cahoots. That either the Steiners were operating the Phytomaster account, or they knew Phytomaster, and they were engaging in a conspiracy to trash eBay and ruin the business. Now, this is crazy, because Phytomaster didn't have a huge following. The Steiners didn't have a huge following, so they couldn't ruin the business. There's no way to ruin a giant business like eBay unless you have a gigantic, and I mean a gigantic, platform to trash the company to where you convince the average person to stop using it. I bet you, the listener, have used eBay. I bet you may have used eBay semi-recently, or maybe even very recently. And I bet you were not aware of David and Ina Steiner, and I bet you were not aware of Phytomaster. So not only had they not convinced you to stop using eBay, but you probably were not even aware of their existence. So this was a silly thing for a CEO of something like eBay to be concerned with. Now, the CEO I'm talking about is not currently the CEO. He's now gone. But the CEO I'm talking about was, at the time, Devin Wenig, W-E-N-I-G, Devin Wenig, and uh, the other executive that was mad about this was communications director Steve Weimer, who also was very high up. That's uh, W-Y-M-E-R, Steve Weimer. So Wenig and Weimer were furious, and they were convinced that Phytomaster and the Steiners were trying to bring down eBay, were trying to ruin eBay. And they had a plan to put a stop to this. Well, they didn't have a plan, but they they wanted to, to put a stop to this, shall I say. So they engaged in some help from employees of eBay working under them. So they went to James Baugh, that's B-A-U-G-H. James Baugh, who was the was the uh, head of the security operations for eBay's global security team. So James Baugh was the uh, head of that department. They went to James Baugh, and they wanted him to put an end to this. This is something that uh, Steve Weimer wrote. Remember, he's the communications director, high-up executive at eBay at the time. Not anymore, but he, back then he was. He wrote, Ms. Steiner, Ms. Steiner and Phytomaster have seemingly dedicated their lives to erroneously trashing us. I genuinely believe these people are acting out of malice and anything, he puts in all caps, we can do to solve it must be explored. Whatever, period, it, period, takes. Whatever it takes. So he wrote that. And this James Baugh guy, who was a very strange dude, he was obsessed with movies. He would require employees to watch clips of his favorite movies that he felt were relevant to their experience at uh, the eBay security department. Whether it's loyalty to the department or just... uh, scenes he felt were relevant, he'd make them watch these scenes over and over and over again. Like, he wouldn't just show it once and say, hey, you know, keep in mind this scene, this is the way I want it here. He, he would make them keep watching it. The guy was really strange. And this is according to uh, one of the employees who was arrested in this whole scheme who spoke to the New York Times. So they told James Baugh, again, whatever it takes, you've got to put an end to this. You've got to put an end to what... Uh, Fido Master, the Twitter troll, and the Steiners are doing, do whatever it takes. 
So James Baugh went forth to do whatever it took. And he commanded various people working under him, six people working under him, to come up with a plan to put an end to what was going on. So a plan was hatched. A brilliant plan was hatched. Keep in mind, this is freaking eBay. This isn't a little mom-and-pop shop that's pissed off because some troll is uh, trashing their business. That would be more understandable if this happened. But this is freaking eBay who's deciding what to do about a couple in their 50s writing a newsletter and a Twitter troll. <laughs> they're, they're expending resources and, and risking the company's reputation on that to stop them. <laughs> Can you believe this? So here is the brilliant plan they came up with. James Baugh was obsessed with the 1988 movie Johnny Be Good. Remember that movie? If you're older, you probably remember it. It wasn't a huge movie, but uh, it, it had to do with high school football. And uh, there were scenes in the movie of a football coach enduring various forms of uh, delivery sent to his house meant to harass him. You, you know the old... Uh, thing people would do to each other about uh, you know, ordering a pizza to somebody else's house that didn't really order it, and then they answer the door and there's a pizza there. Uh, that, it was that and many other things, just a bunch of harassing deliveries that uh, in this movie occurred and drove this coach crazy as a form of retaliation. He decided that he wants it to be patterned after that, but of course it couldn't stop there. A plan was hatched to both draw out Fido Master and find out who he is, and to uh, harass both Fido Master and the Steiners, and then have one of the eBay employees under Baugh, who's a former uh, police officer, come to them and pretend to be trying to help them. So there was uh, there were two former police officers from the Santa Clara, California Police Department that are, no longer work there. But uh, these were former cops, and one of them was named uh, Brian Gilbert, 52 years old. And uh, Gilbert, the plan was to have Gilbert eventually come to the Steiners and Fido Master if they could uh, identify him and harass him too. And say, hey, we've heard about what you're, what's going on with you guys. Uh, we're going to help you. eBay is going to help you put a stop to this harassment and, of course, Gilbert's really working with them, but he's pretending like he's uh, offering the help of eBay to stop this and hoping they don't suspect eBay's doing it. And then, of course, the harassment would stop because uh, he's part of the whole plot in the first place. And then the belief would be that the Steiners and Fidomaster would be so grateful to eBay for stopping the harassment and wouldn't be suspicious at all that eBay had anything to do with this, that they would never criticize eBay again. <laughs> I mean, that, that was the plan. Is that insane? This is a whole convoluted plan to identify this Twitter troll, harass him, harass the Steiners, and then have this former cop who works for eBay say, hey, I'm going to help you put a stop to it. And then they're going to stop criticizing eBay because eBay helped stop the harassment and they were never going to put two and two together. This was the plan? And, and why? What was this going to accomplish? So what happens when the next person criticizes eBay? <laughs> what are they going to do? Like, harass everybody on the internet who ever writes anything bad about eBay? It was, it was insane. But what happened was uh, these two executives were convinced that this was a big conspiracy to screw with their company, and they felt they had to put a stop to it. It, it was nuts. 
So here's how the whole thing unfolded. So first, uh, some messages were sent to Phytomaster because they really wanted to identify Phytomaster. They were convinced that he was involved with the Steiners, but they were going to try the easiest way to identify him. So uh, one of the people working under Baugh sent Phytomaster a message on Twitter, the only way you can contact him because he was a Twitter troll. And they said to Phytomaster that uh, they have incriminating information about eBay. And of course, this is an eBay employee sending it. They're trying to trick him. And how can they get in contact with David and Enos Steiner to give it to them? So Phytomaster, who apparently had nothing to do with the Steiners, he's like, oh, well, uh, here's their email address they post on their webpage. So uh, go ahead and contact them there. So that wasn't exactly the response they were looking for. They were, they were hoping he would say, oh, yeah, yeah, I know them. They're good friends of mine. Here, you know, I'll get them in contact with you. They were hoping he's going to say that so then they'd have uh, confirmation that he was involved with them. But uh, he just said, hey, you know, I looked on their web pages or email address. So that's not what they were looking for. So they kept pressing. They said to Fido Master, okay, how about we leave a thumb drive for you at a hotel and you go pick it up whenever you want? And that thumb drive has videos of a lot of incriminating stuff that goes on on eBay. And Phytomaster's like, ah, uh, you know what? Um, no, I'm not really interested. Thank you very much. <laughs> so he, he knew something was suspicious. He knew they were trying. He didn't understand what the hell this was, but he knew that something was weird about this. And he was not going to go pick up a thumb drive anywhere. And he didn't understand why they were asking for his help to contact the Steiners since their email address is very public. So he was very confused by this and, and just knew something was wrong. So he just wasn't interested and wasn't taking the bait. So they, they gave up on identifying Phytomaster in that way. So they said, wait a minute. We are convinced, we're convinced that he is working in cahoots with the Steiners. He probably meets with them. He's probably a friend of theirs. It may even be them. So we've got to get more information. We have to start tracking them. So part of the plan involved going from San Jose to, and I hope I'm saying this right, uh, Natick, Massachusetts. It's N-A-T-I-C-K. Natick, Massachusetts. Maybe Natick, but I think it's Natick. It's near Boston. And so the plan was to have Baugh and uh, some of his uh, underlings go over to Natick and to, uh, among other things, put a GPS device on David Steiner's car and watch where he's going and maybe hope that uh, he would lead them to Phytomaster. Problem was that uh, they showed up there and they found out the bad news that David Steiner kept his car in a garage. <laughs> Oops. So they had a plan. They're going to break into David Steiner's garage and put the GPS device so they could uh, watch where he's going and maybe uh, find Phytomaster. Somehow that didn't end up happening. Somehow, uh, even though he and uh, another employee who also was arrested here named uh, David Harville, who's 48 years old, the only one not from the Bay Area, by the way. David Harville's from New York. I don't know how he's involved in this, but he was an eBay employee as well. And uh, so he and uh, Baugh actually went to, uh, they flew to Boston, and after seeing that the car was garaged, they were going to break in, and they ended up not doing that, but that was originally the plan. But don't worry, there's a lot more to this. Once they realized that it's not going to be easy to find Fido Master, 
they kind of gave up on that part of it. They kind of just put Phytomaster aside for the moment and decided they're just going to harass the Steiners and maybe uh, Phytomaster will kind of get the message by uh, association. So they engaged in this harassment campaign. Remember I mentioned the uh, Johnny B. Good-style harassment where they were just going to do everything they could to screw with the Steiners and drive them crazy. So this included ordering pizzas from a 24-hour pizza place to their home at 4.30 in the morning. This included sending a mask of a pig with uh, blood. I don't know if it's fake blood or real blood, but like a bloody pig mask in the mail. So then Ina Steiner would open it and see a bloody pig mask, which of course is very threatening and ominous. They sent her a book called How to Deal with the Death of a Spouse, implying that her spouse is going to die, you know, be murdered for what they're doing. These are all like kind of implied threats without directly making the threats. Now, it didn't say, you better stop writing about eBay or such and such happened. Just this stuff just started happening. And they're like, what the hell? You know, what did we do? Why, why is this happening to us? <laughs> they, they weren't understanding who was doing to this to them and why. It was very scary, but they didn't understand it. But uh, they were going to the police and, and saying this stuff is going on and, and they're very scared. Now, you may wonder, were these eBay employees worried they might get caught doing some of these things? Well, I'll get to that shortly. The answer is yes, but they already had uh, some contingency plans in case they ever got caught, especially with the uh, surveillance type of stuff, which I'll get into soon. So they were being sent all these deliveries, sometimes of uh, live insects, like they were sent uh, spiders, they were sent uh, a, a pig in the mail. In addition to the pig's mask with the blood on it, they were also sent like a pig's head. They were sent uh, spiders, as I mentioned. They were sent all those pizzas. And then there started to be online harassment. An account appeared on Twitter that started sending messages to Ina Steiner. The account appeared to be a scary-looking Samoan dude, a big Samoan dude with a uh, Samoan name. I forgot what the name was, but some kind of Samoan name on Twitter. And he started threatening Ina Steiner, claiming that her articles in e-commerce bites were ruining his sales. I don't think it was fully explained how she was ruining it, but he was claiming that her actions were ruining his sales. And... When she wasn't agreeing to stop what she was doing, basically, you know, she wasn't uh, saying, okay, I'll change my behavior, I'll change what I write, you know, when she wasn't cooperating, then this uh, supposed Samoan dude wrote, quote, I'm going, I guess I'm going to have to get your attention another way, bitch. And then shortly after she received that bloody pig's mask in the mail, then this Samoan account wrote in all caps, do I have your attention now? With a question mark. So can you imagine what the Steiners are thinking? Again, they don't know this is eBay doing it. All they know is that there's some weirdos harassing them like this and they're thinking maybe it's a Samoan guy. The Samoan guy also wrote to her, when, W-E-N, and of course this, this writing style is to make him look like it's a Samoan writing it, like kind of a semi-educated Samoan. When you hurt our business, B-I-Z-N-E-S-S, you, letter U, hurt our families, F-A-M-L-I-Y-I-L-Y-S. 
So, of course, intentional misspellings. People will do anything to, number two, protect family. So, basically, it says, when you hurt our business, you hurt our families. People will do anything to protect family with four exclamation points. That's basically implying that he is going to harm them if they don't stop writing what they're writing because it's hurting their family. He's going to protect his family, his family's income, and he'll do anything. And he sent that uh, bloody pig's mask to... uh, Prove his point. Now, who was this badass Samoan dude that's making all these threats? Believe it or not, this badass Samoan dude was a 32-year-old woman named Stephanie Pop, an eBay employee working for James Baugh. <music> Stephanie Pop, P-O-P-P, has pled guilty to doing these things, so there's no question that she did it. She created that account. She sent these messages. Stephanie Pop has agreed in uh, her guilty plea that part of the agreement is that uh, there's going to be a recommended sentence of 41 months in federal prison. Now, she may not get that, but uh, that was part of the agreement. That was part of the plea agreement that uh, in exchange for her pleading guilty and admitting she did these things, that uh, they're going to recommend 41 months rather than more. Because that's how these sentences work, is they uh, the prosecutors come with their recommended sentence, and then the judge decides from there what, what to do. And the less sentence that's uh, asked for by the prosecution, the better it is for the defendant. So uh, to show you how serious Pop's role was in this whole thing, 32-year-old Stephanie Pop, uh, even in her guilty plea, she agreed that the prosecutor is going to be able to ask for about three and a half years in federal prison. So that's that's really nasty, what, what uh, Stephanie Pop was doing, working under James Baugh. Veronica Z, that's Z-E-A, or maybe Zia, I don't know how you pronounce her last name, but Z-E-A, she cooperated with the New York Times to do a very extensive article about what was going on in this whole scheme. Veronica was only in her early 20s when this was going on. She's 26 now. I think she was 23, 24 when this happened. Uh, She's been painting herself as the naive kid straight out of college who basically did what her superiors told her to do, and she was hesitant but did it because she was afraid to say no. I don't fully believe that. That was the way she was portrayed in the New York Times article, and they portrayed her that way because she was the only one who would cooperate with them and uh, she told them a lot of details, which I, I recommend you read the New York Times article. It's very good, and it's in the link that I uh, put in that thread. But, of course, she portrayed herself in the best way possible and almost made herself look like a victim. But from what I can see, I don't think Veronica Z was all that innocent, and she pled guilty to her involvement in the scheme And she agreed to a recommended sentence of uh, 30 months. Again, she may not get 30 months, but she agreed to let prosecutors ask for that in exchange for her guilty plea. She was uh, the one who uh, rented cars that were used to follow around the Steiners, which was actually the downfall. That's how this whole thing got caught and proven. But uh, she rented the cars. She apparently drove the cars sometimes to follow David Steiner around. And... uh, she must have done other things to be very directly involved in the scheme. She flew to Boston several times from San Jose to harass them. So I, I don't think she's the innocent kid that she was 
pretending to be. I, I don't think she was the ringleader in any way. I think she was going along with the whole thing, but uh, it doesn't look like she was uh, very st- strongly objecting or that she only had a very minor part. I mean, obviously, with uh, agreeing to this uh, recommended sentence of two and a half years in federal prison, uh, she wouldn't have done that if her part was tiny or if she was uh, pretty much browbeat into doing it. Anyway, uh, of the seven people who have been charged here, three of them are young females, which you wouldn't expect in something like this. But the seven people who were charged, uh, some of them I've mentioned already, uh, James Baugh, who has not pled guilty, so he has not made a deal. Philip Cook, who worked directly under James Baugh as senior manager of security operations for eBay's global security team. He was right under James Baugh, and I believe he was kind of the uh, semi-ringleader. James Baugh was the big ringleader, but uh, I think he kind of delegated this to Cook. Uh, somehow Cook also agreed to only 30 months. I think because Cook didn't do any of the harassment himself, he was kind of more directing it. And uh, He already pled guilty, got the uh, 30-month uh, recommended uh, sentence by the prosecutors, and then it was just given uh, a few days ago 18 months in prison. They were, actually, they were hoping to get no prison. He was trying to get home confinement, and the judge said absolutely not and gave him 18 months in prison. So... He's also got to pay uh, $15,000 restitution, which isn't very much. And uh, amazingly, even though he has a very uh, nice pension of over $200,000 a year from his former job as a police officer, uh, laughably, uh, Philip Cook complained that he couldn't afford the $15,000 restitution. (laughs) That wasn't a very good look. If anything, that just pissed off the judge. So that Philip Cook was... uh, as I said, working under James Baugh, and he's already been sentenced. He's the only one who's been sentenced so far. Then we had uh, Stephanie Pop, 32 years old now, who wrote the Twitter messages to harass the Steiners. There's a lot more, by the way. I haven't finished all the stuff that happened to the Steiners. But uh, she has pled guilty and will be sentenced in late September. Veronica Z, the one I mentioned who cooperated with the New York Times article, she was uh, also one who gave a guilty plea and will be sentenced in late September. Harville, David Harville from New York, he has not pled guilty, but he has been charged. So he and uh, James Baugh did not plead guilty. However, the uh, other former Santa Clara police officer, the one who was going to play the good cop, this uh, Brian Gilbert, he pled guilty and will be sentenced later in the year, as will Stephanie Stockwell, the third young woman involved. Now, let me get into the roles of some of these other people. What does Stephanie Stockwell do? Stephanie Stockwell apparently uh, did not ever travel to the Boston area to harass the Steiners. But Stephanie Stockwell was working in the background. And again, she worked under James Baugh. But uh, she did plenty. Stockwell was in charge of a few things. First of all, she did some of these orders. She uh, ordered some of the spiders that were sent over there and uh, some of these other deliveries. She was uh, she bought the prepaid gift cards that were used to buy the pizzas, which, by the way, were also part of the downfall of this whole scheme, which I'll explain a little bit later. She bought a laptop that was going to be used in the scheme that was going to be brought over to Boston and used in this whole scheme. 
And uh, the worst thing she did, besides sending the spiders, I guess, was that she prepared an entirely falsified person of interest report on the Steiners to make it look like that Baugh, Harville, Z, and the others were going to Boston to do surveillance on the Steiners because the Steiners had been threatening eBay executives. Now, the eBay executives had never been threatened by the Steiners. The Steiners threatened no one. And Stockwell admitted this. Stockwell admitted that the report she prepared was completely falsified. They completely made it up. It was used as kind of an insurance policy in case uh, they ever get caught following around the Steiners. And then they can explain why they're doing that. They were going to say, hey, well, these people have been harassing our executives and threatening us, and we're trying to get information on them. And they figured that their association with a major corporation like eBay, of course, they're going to be believed. So she put together a whole report, a whole phony report on what the Steiners had been doing. So this could be presented to Natick police if Natick police ever uh, pulled over anyone who was uh, attempting to follow around the Steiners in uh, Natick. And uh, they were asked why they were doing it. So Stephanie Stockwell admitted that she did this. She said that uh, James Baugh directed her to, but she admitted that she put together this whole report in order to mislead police in the case that uh, these other people are ever caught. That's uh, pretty bad. Uh, this report was never actually used, but it was it was uh, there already to be used in case uh, any of these people got pulled over in the process of what they were doing. Now, let's get to that. There were these black vehicles, these black SUVs that were rented to follow around David Steiner. These were rented by Veronica Z. I don't know if she was always driving. I think maybe uh, James Baud was driving sometimes too, and maybe this Harville guy. But uh, I know she drove it sometimes, and I think the, the men drove it sometimes. But whatever, uh, David Steiner was being followed around town a lot. So think of everything that was going on here. They're getting these ominous deliveries of things like live spiders and, and, and a pig's head and uh, a bloody pig mask and all these pizza deliveries at 4.30 in the morning. Uh, they were getting followed around by these scary-looking black SUVs. They were getting these threatening Twitter messages that were taking credit for doing these things, claiming that it was an angry Samoan guy who... Uh, was mad that his business was being ruined by Ina Steiner's articles. In fact, when they, w the FBI was investigating this, they found that another cover story was being developed, was never used, was being developed to uh, possibly find a Samoan guy to pin this on, that they were actually looking for possibly a Samoan guy, a random Samoan dude to blame for having done this. And they were trying to put together something like they had already been investigating and found that he was doing it. So they were trying to put together uh, a Samoan to this identity just in case something happened. They never completed that, but that was being discussed. But uh, they, at first, the Steiners were thinking that they were being harassed by this psycho, the psycho Samoan guy, who uh, w was pissed at them for some reason. And, they, and somehow they, they were being followed and the police were attempting to try to help them, but they were never quite catching them. The, the police were never quite getting there in time. 
But they were starting to investigate more and more. In fact, uh, a police officer happened to be there taking a report when a delivery showed up and Ina Steiner opened up the box and screamed it was that bloody pig's mask. So the guy got to see firsthand her opening up a package with that uh, bloody pig's mask. And he, he obviously the police knew something was happening. Also, Natick, Massachusetts is not Boston. It's, it's near Boston, but it's a small town. So small town police departments where they have a strength, if you're a, uh, a resident there, is that they tend to have time because uh, they don't have a lot to do. Big city police departments have to focus on major crimes like murders and uh, rapes and uh, high-level drug deals. and you know, They've got to focus on the big fish. They, they can't worry about uh, people who are getting uh, spiders in the mail and uh, pizzas ordered at 4.30 in the morning and, and uh, Twitter threats. I mean, they technically have to investigate it, but they don't tend to do a very thorough job. Whereas small-town police departments, or even uh, small-city police departments that aren't tiny but still aren't large, like Natick is, uh, has about thirty-five to 40,000 people. So those police officers have a lot of time on their hands. So they will spend more time on cases like these because they don't have the murders and the rapes and the high-level drug deals to investigate like the big city departments do. Where these departments aren't good, by the way, is when major crimes do occur. They tend to bungle them because they don't have the experience. But for for minor crimes, you'd much rather have a small-town police department investigating than a large one. If you try to report small crimes to the LAPD or NYPD or Boston PD, you're going to get laughed out of the station. I mean, they'll technically take a report, but they'll basically do nothing. So uh, there was some concern about this, actually, among these uh, conspirators. In fact, there was even a discussion between uh, Gilbert and and Cook, the two uh, former Santa Clara police officers, that Natick police has, quote, have, quote, have nothing else to do and they discussed about different ways to mislead any detectives that might be investigating this. And this came back to bite them, of course, because uh, this looks very bad that former police officers are talking about how to obstruct justice. That's much worse than in a civilian who never worked in a law enforcement capacity doing it. So anyway, the police started to investigate this more aggressively, and eventually the FBI got involved. But there was a lot of stupidity in this. First of all, the whole plan was insane. (laughs) Forget the whole point that they shouldn't have been doing this in the first place and that there was no grand conspiracy. It was just a couple writing critical things about eBay and a Twitter troll who were independent of one another. Uh, Putting that aside, the plan was crazy that somehow eBay was going to come out the hero in this and then they'd stop writing bad things about eBay, which didn't make any sense. But also the execution of this was very poor. So I'll give you some examples. These... uh, Black SUVs that were being rented to follow around David Steiner. Uh, Steiner realized this pretty quickly. Now, it looked like they were trying to just surveil him and just weren't good at it. So I don't even think this was a form of intimidation. I think they were trying to follow him to see where he was going and maybe find Phytomaster, but they weren't doing a good job of it. it you know, you've probably seen on TV shows where uh, the cops are following around, like the, the hero of the show is following around the criminal, and the criminal somehow is oblivious of being followed, even though it's obvious. And you go, come on, this is so stupid. How, how could the criminal not know he's being followed? Well, here, David Steiner wasn't a criminal. He was the victim, but he was not oblivious to being followed. It was very clear to him he was being followed. So um, he started trying to get pictures 
of the vehicle following him. And in fact, at one point, uh, he, he jumped out of the vehicle trying to take a picture of it. So it was very clear to the eBay employees who were doing this, who were trying to surveil him and who were harassing him at the same time, that he was trying to get a picture of the vehicle and the plate. So if you're James Baugh, if you're Veronica Z, if you're any of these other people following the Steiners, what do you do at that point? Do you continue following them? No, not unless you're a complete moron. But they were complete morons, so they continued following him. So finally, one of the times, he got a good picture of the license plate. So they brought up the license plate, and it was a rental car. So they went to the rental agency and said, who rented this car? And the rental agency told the police or the FBI, whoever questioned them, it was Veronica Z. Well, they look up about Veronica Z, and they see she works at eBay. Well, isn't that interesting? So here, the Steiners, who have a newsletter mostly about eBay for the past uh, two decades, and the renter of the vehicle that's been following around David Steiner during the exact three weeks these harassing events were occurring, it was all occurring in a space of three weeks, uh, happens to work for eBay. What a freaking coincidence. So at that point, all the dots connected together, that this is actually eBay doing it to them, believe it or not. So... They decided to look further into this. Well, here's another dumb thing. Remember I mentioned the gift cards that Stephanie Stockwell bought so they could then send pizzas to the Steiners at 4.30 a.m.? Well, they thought they were so clever. We're not going to order pizzas with our credit cards. That can trace back to us. But we've got to order them in some way. We've got to prepay for them in order for the pizzas to be sent. So how do we do this? Uh, I, I guess the 24-hour pizza place needed them prepaid because a lot of pizza places will just deliver to you and have you pay on the spot. But I guess these pizzas had to be prepaid in some way and they, they couldn't do it with their own credit cards. So they were at least smart enough to know they, they had to do it in some way. But instead of buying some kind of prepaid card in an anonymous way online or instead of buying them in Boston where – there wouldn't be a suspicion that it could trace back to California. Would you believe that these geniuses at eBay, this uh, Stephanie Stockwell specifically, bought these gift cards a few miles away from eBay headquarters in San Jose? <laughs> so the FBI looking into this says, hmm, not only is that vehicles following around the Steiners registered to an eBay employee, or at least the rental is registered to her, but these pizzas are paid for by cards that were purchased a few miles away from eBay, which is about 3,000 miles away from Natick. So who's going to be paying for pizza in Boston, in the Boston area, with cards they physically purchased in San Jose? And we're talking about uh, pizzas that are sent to harass people, not pizzas being sent for consumption. So... Obviously, again, this points to eBay. So it became very clear from these boneheaded mistakes that eBay itself was behind the harassment. So they said, well, okay, next step, talk to Veronica Z. We know she's involved because she's the one who rented the car. So they found out where she was staying. Not sure how, but they found out where she was staying in Boston. And the police went to go or the FBI actually, went to go uh, talk to uh, Veronica Z. I think they called up to her room and said they wanted to talk to her. I'm not sure how they tried to get a hold of her, but they didn't actually uh, find her directly. But they did find James Baugh, who lied 
and claimed that he was Veronica's husband and that uh, she's simply not available to talk right now. <laughs> so they said, who are you? And he, you know, he lied about his identity. So anyway, it wasn't long before they caught up to Veronica Z and questioned her. And then they came to eBay and questioned them. And uh, it didn't end there. So remember, these weren't just rogue employees at eBay doing it. These were people doing it under the direction of the CEO and the communications director. So eBay went into cover-up mode. eBay realized that they had a scandal on their hands, and they decided they're going to cover up the whole thing. Among other stupid things they did was when they were doing their, quote, outside investigation. They claimed they hired an outside law firm to do an investigation. A lot of it was bullshit. Uh... One of the people that was not known yet to uh, be involved was this Philip Cook. So when they got Philip Cook's uh, phone and looked at it and saw the incriminating text messages, um, since there was some suspicion that Cook could be involved because he worked in that same department, uh, they tried to whitewash that Cook was involved and deleted the text messages that Cook had sent that were incriminating. And they sent that in to the to law enforcement when they were, quote, cooperating with the investigation. In addition, they actually promoted Cook in the meantime. And only after they saw that Cook was officially named as a suspect called, quote, Supervisor One, at that point they fired him. So instead of firing the guy, they promoted him. They fired everybody else who was named because they felt they had to. Because uh, law enforcement went to eBay and said, hey, we, we believe these six people were harassing uh, the Steiners. And they like, okay, well, we're going to investigate. Yep, you're right. Okay, we're firing them. And then they actually promoted Cook and deleted text messages off his phone because they were hoping that hadn't been discovered yet and that his role wouldn't be discovered yet. And, only, and when, only when uh, Cook was being charged, they realized they had to fire him too. So that's pretty bad. And obviously eBay... Uh, not only was this, and, and by the way, how do I know the CEO and comms director were involved? Because uh, text messages were found in further investigations from them about this. So they, this isn't just theory. They were uh, definitely involved in this. Now, the reason they have not been arrested, and it's a shame because they should have been, but as usual, the executives get away with it. The reason they have not been arrested and probably won't be is because they never directed harassment. They never said go send spiders and, and a bloody pig's face and, and make a fake Samoan account and threaten them. They just said, yeah, put a stop to this. Put a stop to this uh, trashing of our company, whatever it takes. Well, they could claim that when they said whatever it takes, they meant whatever it takes legally. They could mean whatever it takes, like uh, uh, just send them a, a letter. You know, maybe they thought that the security director would uh, do it through lawyers or do it by contacting them and asking them to stop or you know they, they would they can just claim that uh whatever it takes didn't mean do illegal things so they have some semi-plausible deniability even though we all know what they meant by that and i'm sh it, it seems pretty obvious that they knew what was going on but uh at the moment there is not enough evidence at least from what i've read to charge them which is sad now, I think that they could come up with such evidence if they were to uh, 
offer deals to the people under them to have uh, lesser sentences, but apparently they're not interested in doing that. So uh, even though Weimer and Wenig, the two executives involved, are no longer with eBay, uh, Wenig got a very large package to leave eBay, I think of like $57 million, something insane like that. And he works for a different company now. And so does Weimer. They both have new jobs and new companies. They're aware of these charges and they don't give a crap, which is sad. Sad that these guys just got to go on and uh, live normally. But the other seven are not so lucky. So we have the uh, guilty pleas of Stephanie Stockwell, Veronica Z, Stephanie Pop, Philip Cook, former police officer, and uh, Brian Gilbert, former police officer, and the other two, James Baugh and, uh, and David Harville. They uh, are not pleading guilty, but uh, charges are pending against them. And uh, presumably they're going to get convicted because there's uh, a lot of evidence against them. And uh, this is actually a federal case that has been brought by the Department of Justice out of Massachusetts. So there's a lot of different updates about this over the past year on justice.gov and also a number of uh, private publications that are putting out articles about this. But despite that, this has not gotten a lot of play. I bet you never heard of this before unless you were reading my thread about it on Poker Fraud Alert. I bet you hadn't heard of this before. Most people have not heard of this. Everybody I've sent this to said, wow, I can't believe this, but wow, I've never heard of this. Even though these arrests occurred last year. Now, how is this not a huge story? How is it not a huge story that eBay actually harassed and stalked private citizens? Just a couple. They harassed them, and they were trying to deduce the identity of uh, a Twitter troll who was, who was criticizing them. And also, Fidomaster... The word Fidomaster was spray-painted on the white fence of the Steiners as well. That was another intimidation tactic. <laughs> Their neighbor came to them and said, Hey, what's this? Uh, someone spray-painted Fidomaster on your fence? What does that mean? And they're like, I don't know. <laughs> so that was also a message to them. Fidomaster being spray-painted. So you see, you see the point. There, It was supposed to be that the Steiners were going to be enduring this like rapid-fire harassment and this scary stuff happening that didn't make any uh, direct threats of violence, but just a lot of implied threats, a lot of scary stuff. Just one thing after another, day after day after day. And then Fidomaster was being spray-painted on the fence just to make it clear that uh, there's a concern about him as well. And then they're supposed to get really scared, and they're supposed to tell Fidomaster, who's supposed to be their best friend, or maybe even them, according to what those executives thought, that this is happening, and everybody's supposed to get all scared, and then this uh, Gilbert guy would show up, and, and he did, by the way, he did contact them and made this offer, say, hey, you know, eBay's concerned about this, we're going to help you, and they're like, uh, okay, uh, there's a police officer investigating this, <laughs> here's his name. So that's not exactly what Gilbert wanted to hear. Gilbert wanted to be the hero, and then this way, eBay would look like the good guy. eBay would be pretending that they're stopping the bad guys from committing the harassment. Such a far-fetched plan. So Gilbert actually did this, and he's admitted to that as well in his guilty plea. So with five different people admitting what they did and pleading guilty, I don't see how James Baugh is going to beat this. And I don't see how uh, this, this Harville guy is going to beat this. 
So they're, they're stupid not to plead guilty as well. Because I, I think, especially James Baugh is going get to get the book thrown at him. You might wonder, is there a civil case? Of course there is. The Steiners are suing eBay. I'm not sure how much they're going to win, but I have to imagine eBay is going to settle. I have to imagine it's going to be a lot of money. I would believe eBay could be on the hook for a lot of money here because otherwise it doesn't send a message. Otherwise, if a corporation can get away with actually stalking and harassing private people for criticizing them online and only pay a small penalty, at least compared to their overall budget, then there's no disincentive to stop. There has to be something that uh, really sticks to where they learn not to do it again. So, for example, you may say, well, nobody actually got hurt physically. This only occurred over three weeks. Nothing happened to the Steiners other than them being scared. So, I mean, how much money do they deserve? But on the other hand, let's say they win. uh, Let's say there's a settlement after this whole thing for. One million dollars. Well, you may say, okay, that's great. You know, I'll take three weeks of harassment to get a million bucks. But a million bucks is nothing to eBay. So it may be seen as in court. We got to give way more than this to send a message. We've got to. One million won't be punishing eBay at all. And other corporations may see this and say, hey, you know, if this is the worst consequence, we pay a million bucks, we'll do it. Every time someone is a pain in the ass online, we're going to do this type of shit to them. And we'll just be smarter and not get caught. And if we do, it costs us a million bucks, no big deal. So uh, I have to imagine that a much larger settlement will end up being made because of the super deep pockets of eBay and how the court will see this, if, unless it's a really big figure, it's going to look like a slap on the wrist. So I have to imagine it's going to settle, and it's going to be for a lot of money. BCR on the forum posted that the Steiners are actually very lucky this happened, because uh, they endured three weeks of harassment, and it was scary, but uh, they're going to get a lot of bucks out of this. And if anyone's going to be harassing you and get caught, you want it to be eBay, not just some private citizen. I agree with that part. <laughs> They were probably pretty shocked to find out eBay was harassing them. But this just shows you the power that some of these tech companies believe they have. You have a huge tech company really believing that they can do this and get away with it. I mean, they were very stupid. The the people who were actually committing these offenses were uh, very reckless and the plan was ridiculous and even had it worked without them uh, getting caught, it was unlikely to result in the Steiners or Fido Master changing what they write about eBay. But that was the plan. I think a smarter plan, by the way, if, if I, like I wouldn't do this, but let's say I was willing to put my moral objections aside and I was working for eBay and I were to engage in a plan like this, I wouldn't come up with some far-fetched thing of making eBay the hero and hoping that we don't get trash written about us in the future. What I would do is I'd go to them in some way that can't be recorded or unlikely to be recorded and say, hey, just want to let you know this is happening to you at the behest of eBay. And no one's ever going to believe you if you report it. So go ahead and report it. They'll think you're crazy. No one's going to believe eBay would do something like this, but it is eBay. So since you have no way out of this and you'll never prove that eBay is doing this, your options are 
lighten up with what you're writing or this is going to get worse. Okay, goodbye, Mr. Steiner, and then walk away. Like a, Something like that, where he can report it, but then you can just, you know, whoever did this can deny they said that. And it'd be uh, one word against another. I'm not saying this should have been done. I mean, obviously, this is crazy. The whole thing is, is nuts and should have never happened. But if you're going to do it, at least do it something like that. Uh, don't, don't come up with this far-fetched scheme that uh, if somehow eBay stops the harassment, you're, they're the hero and nothing critical will be written of ever, ever again against them. And then the, this weird linking of Fidomaster to them just because both happen to be criticizing eBay. Like, wow, what a shock. Two different unrelated parties are criticizing a huge company like eBay? Wow, how could that possibly be? No, they must be cahoots. I mean, are you kidding me? That's like saying that uh, two poker fans who say that Phil Helmuth is rude at the table must be in cahoots to trash his reputation. I mean, that's how crazy it is. <laughs> but that's what the CEO and comms director thought. And they deluded themselves into believing it and that that uh, eBay's reputation depended upon stopping them in any way possible. So just when you think you've seen everything from tech companies, something like this happens. <laughs> Veronica Z said that she is currently living with her parents and cannot get a job now. That she is currently unemployed. She did get a job after getting fired from eBay, but once this was made public, then once her company got wind of it, they fired her. Maybe it'll be easier to get a job now, now that nobody wants to work. But I do have to imagine a Google search will keep showing up for her, but tough luck. You know, I, I don't have sympathy for her. It's not like she was uh, talked into manipulating the books by her boss and uh, as the young person who felt like they didn't want the career ruined just did it this is a person who actually actively engaged in a campaign of a harass of harassment of an innocent couple in their late 50s i mean what the fuck if you if you agree to that for the purpose of uh getting them to stop writing bad things about your company which is their right to do then you deserve the reputational harm you get. You can't just play the I'm young and dumb card. I mean, she's not 13 years old. She's a grown woman. So take responsibility. I tried to look for a picture of some of these people. Now, some of them are very easy to find. I was uh, easily able to find pictures of uh, the two police officers involved, Gilbert and Cook, and Veronica Z actually voluntarily took a picture for the New York Times where she has a weird expression on her face. She like has like a, kind of like a angry face in the picture. She's not very attractive, uh, but uh, I guess she's not trying to look attractive in the picture. But I found her picture. But interestingly enough, I cannot find a single picture of Stephanie Pop. And this kind of makes sense because these are very tech-savvy people. So I have to imagine Stephanie Pop probably found a way to remove all pictures of her all over the web. I mean, it's not that hard to do. When I say found a way, I don't mean she's a genius. I'm saying that she knew how to do it. But I'm just surprised there's no pictures of her, like, mugshots. Like, you can't find anything. So I can't find any pictures of Stephanie Pop or Stephanie Stockwell, for that matter. So the, uh, the two Stephanies here are, are a mystery cannot find pictures of them. doesn't help that uh, they both have kind of common names. So, 
They also made it difficult for me to find them. And uh, James Ball, I'm having a hard time finding a picture of him. So I don't know what's going on here. Very, very crazy story. Fido Master is still unknown to everybody, including the New York Times. The New York Times said that they could not find Fido Master, that they've communicated with him on Twitter, but that uh, they also do not have his identity. So Fido Master is very good at staying anonymous. So good job, Fido Master. You, of course, maybe not good job. Fido Master didn't realize it, but had he taken the bait, he would be in line to get a lot of money here too. See, the problem is Fido Master can't sue eBay because they never found out who he was beyond his name Fido Master. And you can't sue eBay as Fido Master. So even if he were to reveal himself, uh, they never did anything to him. They had plans to do things to him. They, they tried to get him to reveal himself, but he never did, and that was that. He, he doesn't really have any damages. So sadly for Fido Master, he, he didn't actually suffer the real-life harassment, and he will not be in line for millions of dollars as this couple will be. So I, I, I bet he might regret that. But we still don't know who Fighter Master is. But he's a pretty good troll, though, if he got eBay so angry. <laughs> he got the whole company eBay mad to where they, they harassed this, this couple, believing that uh, he was in cahoots with them. If it wasn't for Fido Master, they probably wouldn't have done this. It seemed like that was the catalyst here. Like The, the executives were annoyed with the e-commerce bytes newsletter, but not quite enough to command any action against them. It was the Fido Master thing which pushed it over the edge. This is all Fido Master's fault. What an insane story. I mean, I thought PayPal was bad, but eBay may be worse. And they were once the same company. They're not, and they haven't been for several years, but wow, it seems like anything connected to PayPal is evil. But think of that next time you use eBay. Think of that. This only happened a few years ago. This uh, Two years ago, actually. It is likely that all seven people who have been charged will see real time behind bars. I don't think there's going to be any probation here. Uh, I would have thought maybe Stephanie Stockwell, from the description of what she did, could qualify for just probation. But because she prepared this whole extensive document to mislead police officers, even though the document wasn't used, that I think is uh, going to look bad enough in court to where uh, she's going to get real time behind bars too. So that's good. All these people deserve time behind bars for this. And in sentencing uh, Philip Cook, they talked about how he did this to serve a corporate objective. And that's important because it's one thing if you're harassing someone because you believe they personally wronged you. I'm not saying you're allowed to do it or that you can't get in trouble or get uh, jail time for it. But what I'm saying is that uh, it's seen as worse to be harassing someone on behalf of a corporate objective, on behalf of a corporation in order to make the corporation uh, more successful or uh, less subject to criticism to personally harass individuals, to have a corporation personally stalking individuals is a whole different matter than one individual harassing another. So that was cited as some of the reason that Cook was not granted home detention or probation that he was given uh, 18 months of real prison time, even though Cook insisted that uh, he wasn't present for any of this. He never went to Boston. He never actually uh, performed any of the harassment. But it is interesting that uh, people who weren't quite as high up 
in the whole scheme, such as Stephanie Pop, were given uh, higher suggested sentences because of their actions that uh, uh, regarding uh, what they actually did. It also was revealed that uh, this Gilbert guy, in addition to his plan to be the good cop and actually enacting that plan, he also was writing some of these Twitter messages as the Samoan. Oh, there's one other thing I forgot to mention, that Stephanie Pop was placing Craigslist ads for freaky sex stuff, inviting all comers to go down, all comers meaning uh, figuratively and literally, to come down to the Steiner's house, and she posted their address on Craigslist to for this uh, freaky sex. All these, uh, I don't know if any perverts and weirdos actually showed up there, but uh, these ads were placed on Craigslist, sex ads with uh, the Steiner's address. This was done by that uh, charming Stephanie Pop, who I do hope uh, spends a lot of time behind bars. She seems pretty terrible. And by the way, she wasn't just an underling. She, according to Veronica Z, she was uh, even though she wasn't as high up, that uh, she took on a managerial role there, and she worked with uh, James Baugh, and was she described Stephanie Pop as kind of like a motherly figure there, even though she wasn't much older. She was only uh, like six years older than Veronica, but she was kind of like the the mom there to her. So she sounds like a real piece of shit, the Stephanie Pop. And apparently the prosecutors think that too, because she's getting a recommended sentence of 41 months. Nutty story, huh? Bet you would never picture this could happen. David USF on the forum posted, this is definitely movie material, paging Steven Spielberg. Yeah, I mean, I think there could be at least a TV movie about this. This is a crazy story. And it shows you how some people can get so paranoid online, even CEOs, that they can just lose all sense of reality. That's really what this was. It was someone getting paranoid that there was a big conspiracy against the company online and that it must be stopped when it just was consumers criticizing them. Imagine how the Steiners felt when they realized it was eBay doing it to them. Like, imagine if this is happening to you and you realize it's freaking eBay doing this to you. What do you say? What about when you realize it goes all the way up to the CEO commanding underlings to harass you? Like, what do you say at that point? Do you say you're living in the Twilight Zone? That's what I'd say. If this shit was happening to me, 100% the last entity I would suspect would be the corporation. I would never suspect a giant Silicon Valley corporation is stalking me and harassing me would be like never on my mind if i ever thought that at least prior to reading this story i would think it would be time to commit myself to the loony bin so go check out the thread go check out the stories i think you'll find it really uh shocking and weird and fascinating okay so i want to talk about brandon adams and Phil Galfon. We had a little bit of a controversy there. Not not quite to the level of uh, sending bloody pig masks or spiders in the mail or pizzas at 4.30 in the morning or spray-painting Phytomaster or sending perverts down to people's houses. But there was somewhat of a controversy. 
I want to talk about that. So remember the Galfon challenge? We used to talk about it a lot. We kind of just stopped. But uh, Phil Galfon keeps winning. He keeps winning these challenges. And good for him. Shows he still got it. But his latest challenge is against Brandon Adams. Brandon Adams, believe it or not, used to be a poster on Never Win Poker. He used to be a poster known as Wins Pot. W-I-N-S underscore pot. He has not been part of these forums in a long time. I have met him. In fact, he invited me to uh, dinner with him one time. And he even paid, by the way, in case you're wondering. But uh, he invited me to dinner. He's always been nice to me. We've always gotten along. Never been good friends or anything. But uh, and I, I haven't talked to him in many years. We'll, we'll say hello if we see at the World Series. Never had a falling out or anything. Just kind of uh, didn't know each other well enough to keep in touch. We even traded action one time uh, at the main event many years ago. Anyway, I, Brandon Adams popped up to say that he wants to be part of the Galfon Challenge. And they had an agreement to play live, not online, which I actually thought was smart for two reasons. Number one, Phil Galfon's comfort zone is online. That's not to say he's a live fish, but Phil Galfond came up as an online player. He's a better online player than he is live player. And uh, that's probably true of myself as well. But it's a different game online. There's a lot of different factors online. And there's some people who can't do one very well and do the other really well, and vice versa. So again, I'm not saying that Phil Galfond is not good live. I'm just saying that... Uh, He's better online. If I if I was forced to play Phil Galfon in, P, in PLO, I would want it to be live because that's not his comfort zone. So that's number one. And number two, I thought it was pretty outrageous that uh, this play is taking place on Galfon's site. And I've stated my reasons before, but just very quickly, number one, you never know for absolute sure if it's on the level because it's for a lot of money and also for Phil's reputation as, as a great player. And number two... Even if Phil is 100% honest, and I, I think Phil Galfon's an honest guy. I don't think he's cheating. So I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm accusing him of cheating or even implying that he's cheating, because I don't think he is, and I don't think he would do this. But he's not the one programming the site. So maybe someone who wants to see the site succeed will rig it so he wins. I'm not saying that's happening or likely to be happening, but it, it's not impossible. There, there's too many hands in this cookie jar who could be corrupting it, even without Phil's knowledge. So... It's never a good idea to play on the site of the person you're challenging. It should be on a neutral site. And I don't think Phil Galfond should play other people on their site. Like, I, let's say Phil Nagy challenged Phil Galfond. They shouldn't play on ACR. They should play on a neutral site. And I know that uh, Bill Perkins uh, wanted that. He wanted to play on uh, Party Poker. That's a good spot to play. Something which, uh, a site which uh, neither represents or has an ownership interest in or a close relationship with the ownership. So uh, I thought for that reason, Adams was smart as well to demand that. Now, between Brandon Adams and Phil Galfond, who is the better heads-up PLO player? I think we know the answer to that. In fact, I don't know if there's anyone who's a better heads-up PLO player than Phil Galfond. So far, we haven't seen one. So far, the greats of heads-up PLO who have uh, stepped up to Galfond, have lost. Even Venny Vitti, with his big lead initially, lost. So Galfond still got it. And uh, nothing against Brad and Adams. I just think that he was the underdog here. But he was smart, at least, to 
keep it off Galphon's side and play live. Well, a problem came up. That problem came where uh, it had to do with tanking. And this is one of the problems with these stupid heads-up challenges, is that instead of it just being a pure challenge where they just play poker, and then when it's done, it's done, and whoever's ahead gets paid, you start getting to all this nonsense where when it gets closer to the end, then people start to do things to give themselves a higher chance of finishing at least $1 ahead. And you can say, okay, that's part of the strategy, but it's a stupid part of the strategy. It's like a stupid aspect of the match. It's, if you want to employ the best strategy to win, that's great, and you should, but at the same time, the match shouldn't be constructed in a way where this can happen. Or there should be some sort of agreement that this won't be done. Something, even if it's a gentleman's agreement. But it just shouldn't be part of the match. It's terrible. It, it looks terrible. It uh, is frustrating for people to watch. It just shouldn't be happening. You shouldn't be doing this type of heads-up match if this is going to enter the equation. And we've seen this in other matches. We saw this with uh, Polk and Negreanu, where Polk started limping. And Negreanu was getting mad about that because Polk was limping in order to keep the pot smaller because he had a lead on Negreanu, and Negreanu was angry about that. Then Negreanu started tanking to get back at him for limping. Like It's this type of childish shit that shouldn't be happening. If you want to play each other heads-up, play a real heads-up match where you're just going balls out, trying to beat each other on every hand. Not where one person's engaging in these weird tactics so they can technically finish up at least $1 to win the side bet and win the match. It's dumb. So, I mean, if you're going to do that, why have this at all? That's my point. The whole point about this is for everybody to watch and be interested in it. So make it something that's good for the viewers that doesn't have this type of element to it. Anyway... Adams was unhappy with this. He's, this is what he tweeted on July 29th. And keep in mind, Adams is not a guy who creates drama. I've never seen him involved in drama in all the years I've known him. And it's many years we're talking about. Probably close to two decades. But Adams uh, tweeted this. I am down 48K with 15 and a half hours remaining. Now let me stop right there. Why is he talking about hours remaining? Well, this is a stupid way they constructed the match. That this live match wasn't going to be number of hands, it was going to be hours. So, of course, if it involves hours, the person ahead can just slow down. I mean, (laughs) how did they not think of this? I know why it's hours, because it's harder to track number of hands played when you're live, but you can't just bring up hand histories. But okay, why not just track it then? Why not uh, just have a notebook next to you where you increase the number every time a hand is dealt. And someone's in charge of that. Maybe they trade it each time with a notebook where they tra- they do it. Or maybe even have the dealer keep track. Or have a third party they're keeping track. They can afford it. Pay some guy uh, a token amount of money to sit there counting hands. I don't know. But it's uh, there's a better way to do it than make it by hours. So they, But they stupidly made it by hours. So... He says, I'm down 48K with 15 and a half hours remaining. Phil Galfond is changing strategy as expected, but he's also using the clock to maximum advantage, taking full time for every decision on every street. So I, I, I guess they have a maximum time they can uh, take on any street to make a decision, or otherwise their hand auto folds, but that he's saying that every street, even super obvious decisions, he's just sitting, 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 and waiting until the last second to make the decision. That's got to be torturous to play that way. So Adams is complaining about it. 
saying it's fine if, if Galfon wants to play a more conservative style to preserve his lead towards the end, but uh, to also run down the clock on every single street is, is very frustrating. So he's complaining about this. So then he posted text messages he had with Phil Galfon. Galfon said to him, you said that on the podcast or via text? I'm not sure what that's referring to. Then Adams writes, I honestly can't remember. I recall talking about whether a shot clock would be needed at all. Perhaps this is via phone. We said that we could do one, but the intention was not to milk it for use of decisions. Phil said back, I thought the whole purpose of the clock was so this element of the challenge f- format doesn't get out of line. I'm not claiming you didn't say what you're saying above, but I don't want to get free rolled. So basically, this is what Galfon's saying, that we put on a clock per street to make it to where someone can take the maximum time. We're, we're, we're putting a reasonable clock here to where even if someone does this, they just can't tick off that much time. So I thought that's why we did it, so we don't have to make a judgment call whether someone's intentionally stalling. So we're in, basically, once we put this clock on, intentionally stalling is allowed. And Adam seems to be saying, like, that's not the spirit of the match. Now, I, I agree with Adams here, actually, so far. But wait till you see the next thing. Galfon says, an open Twitter poll that is regarding whether this is right or wrong doesn't seem right to me, and they will only be answering a yes-no question. We just need an arbitrator or multiple. So basically saying about this that uh, he doesn't want to do a Twitter poll of of whether this is okay, because it's too hard to put out the whole story to Twitter users, and they'll just quickly vote and not really think about it. You you need an arbitrator or a few arbitrators who who will analyze this and consider all the angles before coming to a decision. So Adams wrote back, the clock was never meant to be for strategic purposes, and uh, I haven't used it that way. The entire original purpose of the match was fun for players and viewers via likely streaming. Clock milking, which would go on the go on the entire match if accepted, because it's always, always in one player's benefit, would obviously make the match unwatchable and completely uninteresting, so the concept was always absurd. I never intended the clock milk, though I admit to doing it 10% of the allowable time. What? Brandon, I was with you up until then. I was with you up until then. I agree with you. This is not along the spirit of the match. This makes for shitty viewing. This kind of defeats the whole purpose of doing something like this. I'm with you. I agree with you that the clock shouldn't have been meant for this, that when you put on a clock for decision-making, it it didn't give carte blanche to any opponent to delay on every single street. I totally agree with you, except you're now admitting that about 10% of the time, you did it yourself. So he's saying, you know, I did it, but I only did it about uh, 10%. And I think what he's trying to say is, he did it, he milked it, but he, when he milked it, that uh, he only ran down 10% of the time allowed. So, yeah, he played slow, but he could have played 10 times slower. He just played somewhat slow. But that's not a good excuse. That's saying that he milked it too. So he's saying, you shouldn't do clock milking, but I did clock milking just not as bad as you. So that, that's when he lose the argument. Once he admitted right there that he clock milked the clock, but not as bad, then now I'm back on Galfon's side. That's insane. So, uh, they they were having a hard time solving this whole thing. And finally, what they did is they just agreed to end the live match and move it online. 
So on July 29th at 7.30 p.m. Pacific, Brandon Adams tweeted, I was down 16.5K with 236 hands remaining. The end stage was boring and tournament-like. I don't know how, it, how it's hands remaining. If, if there's a clock also, I, I'm a little confused here. We decided to quit and scrap the side bet. Maybe they uh, translated to hands at that point. I'm not sure what. But anyway, they decided to quit the live part. Phil Galfon keeps the 16.5K. They don't have the side bet anymore, so there's no side bet involved. And we start a 10K hand online challenge tomorrow, meaning July 30th. So basically, they just uh, ended right there. Nobody pays the other person other than what Galfon was up in the match itself. And then they move it online for 10K. 10K hands, that is. Like, okay, but that kind of makes Galfon the bigger favorite again. (laughs) So... So then uh, they're past that. Now, notice that they weren't going to want to talk trash to each other because this isn't really in their personalities. Neither of these guys likes direct confrontation. And in fact, if you remember when I was criticizing Phil Galfon's Run It Once poker site, which is a big fail site, by the way, it's like really a fail site. It's, it's basically going nowhere, as I've mentioned recently. Uh, Galfon, you could tell, was having a real hard time not going off, and occasionally he let himself slip and get a bit emotional and say something like kind of passive aggressive and, and kind of rude, but still not like outright confrontational. Cause this is just like not a confrontational guy. I don't think it's like an act. I think just Galfond is just like someone who does not like, like confrontation and usually is kind of happy go lucky and easygoing. Now, like everybody has their breaking point and everybody has their points of frustration, but uh, these are two guys who are kind of similar that way in personality. There's some guys who just like come out and they're just like, straight-up confrontational, like a Sean Deeb type. And then there's the opposite, like Phil Galfon and Brandon Adams. So you are not going to see these two hurling insults at each other and being really obnoxious and coming at each other. But this is about the most you're going to see. <laughs> you kind of got the solution you expected where they just like, uh, you know what, let's, let's just forget the online. Let's just forget the match, the live thing. Just You know, you, you know what, uh, you're fine. Just, just pay what you owe for... What what we've been playing, and let's let's just move on online. Yeah, okay, that sounds cool. So they did that. Galfon got off to a nice start, up seventy five k on day one on July thirtieth. He said, feeling somewhat concerned, Adams on Twitter, about the fast pace of two table play online. On WSOP, it's lightning fast. At least Adams is smart enough to play on WSOP.com and not on uh, Galfon's site. Though I think. Adams probably didn't want to go to wherever he had to go to play on Galfon's site because he can't play that in the U.S., but still, I, I think he probably wanted somewhere neutral. But I, I, I don't understand the two-table thing. I've had that before where someone challenges me heads up, like, let's play heads up limit, hold them 200, 400 on two tables. I go, what? Why two tables? Well, two heads up, one table is boring. How is it boring? Like it's All it does is it slows down the game. Because when you're two-tabling, you've got to keep switching between them. It's like, you, you can't be on two tables at once. You can have them open at once, but you can't operate them both. So you can't think about both at once. So to me, it just slows down the whole thing and complicates the whole thing. It, it, it doesn't make a pure poker match. I think the most pure poker match you can have is just one-on-one, one table. So that's kind of weird, but I guess that's what they're doing. Then Adams came back somewhat. He was down only 35k coming into august 1st but then he tweeted had a bad session today of over 800 hands lost 100k 
I was slightly on the passive side after losing early to a one-outer after a flop all-in. I was on the passive side, which is not where you want to be, versus Phil Galfon, opposite of yesterday where I was mostly front-footed. Resume August 22nd, so they're uh, taking a break for whatever reason, and they're going to resume on August 22nd with Adams down 135K. I'm not sure how many hands they have to play, but uh, I think Adams is already kind of in trouble here in... This is not uh, his area of expertise. I mean, yeah, he was originally an online player, but I don't know. Once you bring Phil Galfond online, you're in trouble. That's where that stands. And I was almost with you, Brandon Adams, until you admitted you did things yourself. All right, let's move on to the next topic. Speaking of heads-up matches, Phil Helmuth just can't lose heads-up. He has now won eight straight heads-up challenges. And the next one's going to be a big one. The next one is going to be against Tom Dwan. Yes, that Tom Dwan is coming forth to play Phil Helmuth. On August 2nd, Phil Helmuth tweeted, I have just been informed by Poker Go on who my next high-stakes dual opponent is. What's your guess? Johnny Chan, Tony G, Tom Dwan, or Phil Ivey? Well, the voters, over 12,000 people voted. 33.9% said Tony G. 25.9% correctly said Tom Dwan. 22% said Phil Ivey. And 18% said Johnny Chan. But the correct answer was Tom Dwan. You may remember there was an issue between Tom Dwan and Phil Helmuth when they played heads up way back in 2008 in the National Heads-Up Championship. Tom Dwan was obviously much younger at that point. He was a young guy then. He's not that young anymore. No eight, though. He's a young guy. And Phil Helmuth was none too happy when Tom Dwan got a set of tens on the turn against Helmuth Aces, when it was tens against Aces. Listen to this. And it's a ten! <laughs> Huge suck out. It's not over yet, Matt. Phil can still win the pot with an ace. Yes, spades. Or any yet, spade but the king. It's not looking good, though. Here is Three of spades? The it's rivers of nine, nine of diamonds, nine. and Tom Dwan has eliminated no, Phil Helmuth. When you look up bad beat in the dictionary, that's what you'll find. Phil sits back down because they're counting the chips just to make it official. Son, I would tell you this much, son. I would never have put more 3,000 with two tens. Before. Oh, here we go. I was going to say good game, sorry for the suck out, but when you phrase oh, it that way, you should not want to. Here, here, take 10,000 each. Phil, that's why you lose money coming. online. Like, okay. <laughs> you sorry. Nice hand. Hand. That's the truth. Okay. You put in 20,000 with two up. tens. Pick your stakes heads up. I've said it a million times. I'm sorry. Nice Pick your stakes heads up. I smell ego. You can play right now if you want. Son, you're 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 the sucker. You just put in twenty thousand with two okay. tens. Let's play heads up. Terrible play. Play heads up. Is is that is that all you want to do? Is challenge me to heads up? We're gonna play if heads it's terrible, up. I told then let's you. Play. Well, that's terrible. I sucked out. I'm what sorry. if you nice suck hand. out again? We'll play as you many matches terrible, as you want. Right? We will play as many matches as you want. Do you admit it was a terrible play on your oh, part? Oh, it's standard. Learn to play standard heads up no play limit. With one at 53 blocks, wow. 20,000? Learn to play heads up no limit. We'll see if we'll you're even around in five years. We'll see if you're even around in five years. Maybe I won't. That was Phil's famous line, we'll see if you're even around in five years, to Tom Dwan, who 
wasn't that well known yet back in 08. It's the truth. I don't think he will be. <laughs> to be honest. The gloves have Most come off. It's an easy lay down for you, actually. You knew that Phil would start the patronizing at some point. Tom Dwan moves on. Phil Helmuth knocked out in the round of 64. So that was the NBC Heads Up Championship. And Tom Dwan's still around, though kind of a strange way he spent some time in uh, Macau. Seemed to be be backed by uh, possibly a gangster. (laughs) He's had a a strange trip himself, but uh, he's back and he's going to be up against Helmuth again, this time not a kid. Helmuth has really proven himself heads up. He has now won eight straight matches. His last one was against uh, Nick Wright, who is a sports a sportscaster, and decided not to continue playing Helmuth. If Helmuth wins, then Dwan does have a right to request a rematch of uh, two hundred thousand dollars. And uh, if Dwan wins that uh, it's probably likely that uh, Helmuth will not rematch and uh, play against somebody else. There's a lot of people who want to play against Helmuth right now, including one Eric Seidel said that uh, he'd like to play Helmuth. He tweeted, I'd like to throw my hat in the ring for 2022. We came up at the same time. I'm 2-0 versus you and heads up, heads up in majors. Of course, that was before the full arsenal of white magic was developed, referring to what Phil has said he's been using to win all these matches. But I think I owe you a chance for revenge. So we shall see if that takes place with uh, Seidel versus Helmuth. But uh, Helmuth versus Dwan should be interesting. Helmuth was underestimated by a lot of people. He was thought to be someone who was very good at navigating uh, big or medium field uh, no-limit tournaments, but that uh, against very good players in uh, cash, or especially heads-up cash formats, that uh, he was not going to be any good, and he was going to get crushed and run over, and that has not happened. I think Helmuth just has a really, really good feel for no-limit hold'em. And that even though he's not known as a cash player, if he bears down and puts his mind to it, that he has a good feeling of when to get his money and when not. And that has worked well for him. And that he's letting people hang themselves. So it's whatever he's doing is falling his way. Now, obviously, the cards are falling his way, too. But he's won eight times in a row, so it's not just dumb luck. So he has impressed some people who had before really uh, looked down upon his cash game and saw him really only as a no-limit hold'em tournament guy. So if he beats Dwan, that'll be a a nice feather in his cap. I get the feather in my cap of uh, getting a co-host, finally. Trader Ruski, hello. Before I finish this Helmuth thing, uh, do you have any comments? Uh, what, what do you think of uh, Phil Helmuth, the heads-up player? I agree with you. I think he has a good feel for the game. Um, but he's just such a douche. It just, you know, <laughs> that overrides everything in my book. So, Yeah, well, I like talking trash to him. I, I enjoy talking trash to him in the uh, poker setting, especially when I see he's acting up. 
if I am at a table and Phil is abusing other players, whether it's fellow pros or amateurs, especially amateurs, then I just am compelled to talk trash to him. And I do. I'm one of the few who does. I will continue to do so. Now, I will say if Phil just is quietly playing, that unless he starts with me, I'm probably not going to bother him. But if, if he's in his trash-talking mode, I will give it to him, even if he's not going on me. And I have. Happy to do so. In fact, it's kind of fun. So <laughs> we'll, see. we'll see if that happens the next time I play the World Series, whenever the hell that is. Okay, well, speaking of the World Series, I want to talk about the World Series and the Delta variant. And I'll ask you what you're going to do about it, too. So the World Series is coming up on September 30th, which is now less than two months away. Up until the Delta variant and its breakthrough cases and its subsequent mask mandate in Vegas, I was pretty certain, though not 100% certain, that I was going to be playing the World Series of Poker. I've been saying that for a while now, that I have plans to be there. I actually spent uh, too long on the phone fighting with Caesars about uh, room reservations and getting that all in place. And this may all be for naught. Because right now in Vegas, there is a mask mandate. There's a mask mandate in almost all of Nevada, only a few counties where COVID is uh, not as bad, and these are rural counties with small populations, so they're not really that consequential. But all the large and medium population counties in Nevada have mask mandates put in place by Governor Steve Sisolak. So while there's not shutdowns, there's the mask mandate, which to me changes everything for my desire to play at the World Series. I've said many times, and I still am of this opinion, that playing poker for many hours in a mask where you have no option to take a break or uh, quit for the day meaning a tournament, not a cash game, is very unappealing. Now, maybe other people feel differently. Some people probably don't mind it, especially people who wear a mask all day anyway, like at work, where it's required. But for me, who does not wear a mask all day, who is not used to wearing a mask for long periods of time, it's very bothersome for more than a short period of time. While I'd be willing to take a shot at playing a cash game with a mask on, knowing I can take breaks at any time or quit at any time, once you've entered a tournament like the World Series, you're stuck playing long days with only very short breaks where you must have that mask on. And to me, that seems awful. So that by itself will chase me out of the World Series unless they lift that mask mandate before the World Series starts, or at least during the World Series, where I could join in in progress. However... That's not the only thing that is concerning me. What's also concerning me is the Delta variant itself. And I'm one of the few conservatives, and in fact, relatively few people. I'm not going to say I'm the only one who thinks this way, but I'm one of the people who is concerned about Delta, but at the same time doesn't agree with mask mandates. Most people that I've spoken to and observed on social media are one way or the other. 
they're either saying, oh, the Delta variant is, is being overblown, the, the media and the Democrats are exaggerating it, it's no big deal, it's stupid, uh, stop worrying about it, and mask mandates are stupid, that's one side. The other side is saying, no, 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 it's very serious, everybody wear your mask. And then there's me saying, it is very serious, but I don't like mask mandates. So the reason I don't like mask mandates is because I don't think they're useful. I think it's performative because cloth masks, I don't believe, do very much to hold back COVID. Now, do I think they do nothing? No, I don't think they do nothing. I think they uh, might do a little bit as far as holding back COVID. So you might ask, well, then why am I not for that? Well, because a mandate makes it burdensome. A mandate means you must wear it all the time. A mandate means you're required to wear it. And my other concern is that when people wear masks, they suffer what's known as the bicycle helmet problem. The bicycle helmet problem is a phenomenon that was found that when people on a bicycle put on a helmet, that they will often ride more recklessly, believing that now they're safe in case they fall off. And some people are actually safer riding a bicycle without a helmet because they're taking fewer chances than ones with a helmet, even though the helmet does protect you from head injury sometimes when you fall. So the helmet itself is good, but if it changes your behavior to be more reckless, it can actually be bad. Now, ideally, you'd wear the helmet and not be uh, reckless, but human behavior is not always ideal. I have found that because masks have been promoted so hard by the media to be the end-all, be-all of COVID safety, and that those who wear masks are responsible and safe, and those who don't wear them are irresponsible and unsafe, that if you do wear one, then you can feel a lot more comfortable and do a lot more dangerous things COVID-wise that otherwise you may not do. So I feel they bring on a false sense of security, which then causes more people to put themselves in danger not realizing that the mask isn't helping them out very well. So let's say hypothetically that the mask makes you 10% less likely to catch or transmit COVID. I'm just making this up. Uh, by itself, you'd say, okay, good to wear the mask. But if, if this makes you act 30% more reckless regarding transmitting and catching COVID, then the mask is a net negative. So I feel that mask mandates not only aren't helpful, and there's no evidence they're helpful. We've seen no evidence at all that places with mask mandates have better outcomes with uh, COVID infection than places without them. But I also feel it's like a distraction. I feel this is something that politicians do in order to make it look like they're taking action because they really don't have action to take, or the action that they could take wouldn't be popular. So they do something they feel makes it look like they're concerned about safety and, tr and trying to do something. So Sisolak doesn't want to shut down everything because the Nevada economy will crash and it was just recovering. He doesn't want to ruin that. So he thinks, okay, I can't do another lockdown and I, I can't do nothing or I'm going to get accused of being reckless and not caring about people's lives. So, oh, I know what I'll do. A mask mandate, that'll make it look like I care about safety and at the same time... Uh, I'm not interfering with commerce that much. Great, okay, mask mandate. But that doesn't solve anything. That's all performative. That's all just uh, for show. We don't need performative measures 
for COVID. We need real measures. We we need either one of two things. Either we're just going to accept COVID and accept it as a risk and go on with our lives. And uh, if it happens, it happens. Or we need action taken that will make a difference. But not this weird in between where you're taking mostly meaningless action that in fact can be a net negative. So I'm very anti mask mandates. And uh, it's very unfortunate, I've said this many times on the show before, it's very unfortunate that this disease has been politicized by both sides. And that you have to, you're expected to pick a side of where you stand on COVID. And the side has to do with your politics. And if you dare deviate from it, then you're betraying your side. And I think that's very bad. And we see this with some of the vaccine hesitancy with people on the right who don't want to take the vaccine because they feel it's giving in to the the left and the mainstream media, which is stupid. Just take the vaccine. It's uh, something that will help you. And we see it on the left with the obsession with masking and, uh, and the obsession with trying to blame COVID on the right. And that's also stupid. Everybody should come together and just say, look, put the politics aside. Here's the truth. Here's what is really dangerous about COVID. And here's what's not dangerous. Here's what's helpful. Here's what's not helpful. And let's try to work together. Let's all try to get together to beat this thing. That, that should be the message. There should not be a political message. There should not be a political side on this. Now, you can have your opinions about things like lockdowns and mask mandates and uh, COVID risk and all of that. And you will have differing opinions on that. But it shouldn't be along political lines. It shouldn't be... And your opinion should not be influenced by what people on your political side of the fence are saying. So while it it may feel good to blame Trump and Republicans and red states and all that for COVID... And while it may feel good to say that this is a uh, big conspiracy and a a big uh, overblown exaggeration and that the vaccine is is actually uh, dangerous and or useless and that this is uh, a trick by the left, it may feel good to say this and you may get people on your side agreeing, but this is not the truth. So with the mask mandate, I think that's a huge mistake. I I think this is just a a stupid measure to make it look like something's being done when it's really uh, not helping. So I will say that even without a mask mandate, there's a pretty good chance I would skip the World Series anyway, because I do see the Delta variant breaking through. Now, I will say that a number of the people that I know, or at least know somewhat, because I'm exposed to a lot of people being in poker, even having this show, I communicate with a lot of people, I observe a lot of people that I obviously wouldn't if I wasn't part of poker. So I I get a pretty wide range of people to look at. And for many months, I knew and knew of nobody personally who caught COVID that was fully vaccinated up until recently. Like Trader Risky, prior to Delta, did you know anybody who was getting COVID after being vaccinated? Not prior to Delta, but I do know somebody who who has that situation going on. Yeah, I do too. I know several people. 
some I know directly, some I have observed on Twitter, and I know they're not liars and really have it. So it, it is disturbing to see the change here. And that's what I've been telling people who don't believe that Delta is really breaking through. I go, no, 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 it is, because up till Delta, I wasn't seeing this at all. So it's not just a matter of, oh, the vaccine is only uh, 95% effective, so you're going to have that 5% getting through. No, I, because I believe it was doing better than 95% effective because I, I wasn't seeing it get through anywhere. I'm not saying it was never getting through, but I was not seeing it. Now I'm seeing it everywhere. And by everywhere, I mean I'm not seeing the majority of people getting it, but I'm saying that I'm seeing a lot of individual cases where I, before I saw zero, and that's not a coincidence. So Delta is breaking through. I know someone personally, someone I've known 30 years, who is around my age, who has all the typical middle-aged COVID symptoms. They're not in the hospital, and they're not having breathing issues yet, but they have no smell and taste. They have a fever. They have very heavy fatigue. And they feel very sick. This is someone who is fully vaccinated with the Moderna vaccine. And there's many others that I've either seen on Twitter that I know through poker that I may not know them too well, but I know they wouldn't be lying about this, that have tested positive and are feeling symptoms. It just seems like there's a number of people getting this through the vaccine. Now, a lot of them are getting very mild mild symptoms. There are some who are feeling kind of the equivalent of a cold, And then they test positive for COVID and they're pretty surprised. And it never gets beyond that. There's others who are asymptomatic and they have to test for some reason, like for work, and they're testing positive. So yes, there is a fairly good chance that if you catch COVID through the vaccine, it won't be much worse than a cold. However, there are those that it is worse than a cold. What isn't happening very often, at least not so far, is people who are developing severe illness or dying from Delta that are fully vaccinated. But that may change. The next variant may do more than that. There's this Lambda one right behind it that apparently is breaking through the vaccine even worse. And there may be a variant past Lambda that does even more than that. So... It's starting to look to me like these vaccines are pretty temporary, that we're never going to get the type of vaccine compliance that we would need to establish herd immunity. And then we still have the problem with other countries, which also may not ever get the vaccine compliance, and that these variants may form anyway and then come into the country. This may be something that just never disappears, that just keeps mutating and we'll never be able to completely stop it. It may be like the flu. So if COVID is something we have the rest of our lives, that's always out there, always mutating. And if the vaccines can't be developed quickly enough to keep up with it, if, if they only last a few months, then this isn't going to do. Like You can't keep vaccinating 330 million people every few months then either just we're going to have to deal with the consequences of it or focus on a treatment for it. I think that's the answer is finding a treatment, which is easier said than done. But I think an effective treatment that if you jump on COVID early, you can basically put a stop to the symptoms. If they can come up with something like that, then 
presumably the problem will be over, at least for responsible people who jump on it quickly. But short of that, I don't think we're going to be able to vaccinate our way out of this. Some of the reason we can't vaccinate our way out of this is because of the messaging that's messed up. The, The politicization of COVID has caused permanent vaccine hesitancy for some people. Not for me. I, I got it. In fact, I'll if, if there is another shot, which it seems like there will be, I will take it. So I'm not vaccine hesitant. But there are some people who are vaccine hesitant thanks to the bad messaging. And that ship has sailed, unfortunately. And I don't even see either political side agreeing that they were acting stupid about it. I don't see anyone taking responsibility for this bad messaging. I see blame being thrown around, and that's what's going to be for the rest of time, unfortunately. I, I see a lot of blame about the vaccine hesitancy of, oh, it's, it's uh, stupid right-wing conspiracy crap. But when there's been a lot of dishonesty about COVID, even what's known as noble lies that are lies told to try to get the public to do the right thing, and then backfires when people find out the truth and lose trust. Whatever it is, if you're not honest with the public, or you politicize a disease and put a lot of blame at the hands of one side, some of which isn't fair, and then one side doesn't trust you anymore, and a lot of the people don't want to take a vaccine, then you can't say, oh man, it's the other side's fault. You, you can't say it's completely their fault if you were part of the polarization in the first place. And unfortunately, the second COVID entered the U.S., the second we were aware of it, the politicization started. And now there's no way out of that. So we're always going to have a certain segment of the population who's not going to take it. And we also have other segments of the population who won't take it for other reasons, such as uh, a lot of black Americans don't want to take the vaccine because of uh, uh, bad experiences with uh, experiments and vaccines many years ago, that while they didn't personally affect the black people today who are, al- who are presently alive in the U.S., they, they know about this history and don't trust it. So, so it's a combination of uh, some minority communities that just uh, don't trust the vaccine for one reason or another, and then uh, mostly white right-wingers who don't trust the vaccine because of the politicization on both sides. And I'm not defending that, and whenever I speak with right-wingers who don't want to take it, I try to convince them. And I, I've had this conversation with many, and I, I've convinced a few to take it when they weren't going to before. I've said you can be a full-on conservative and still take the vaccine. Look at me. I've taken the vaccine, and yet I I have plenty of criticism for the left and their handling of COVID and the media's handling of COVID. And I'm no less conservative than I was before I took the vaccine. But I I took the vaccine because it's the right thing to do. And if you look through all the bullshit, that is the right thing to do. So I'm not saying they're blameless. I'm not saying the right is blameless in this. But I'm saying the left is not easier. Is not either. And there are some on the left who say, oh no, we're the party of science. We've been telling you the truth the whole way. We've been uh, following the science the whole way. It's these idiot right-wingers. No, no. 
There's been a lot of lies and misleading statements the whole way. And those come back to bite you. How do you think it looks to people on the right that it was told all summer last year during the massive protests out with, with 60,000 people all crammed together about George Floyd, that that's not a threat to COVID. That's not, that's not going to spread COVID. Totally safe. Totally cool. But for some reason, it's totally unsafe to get together in parks, at the beach. How, how, come, how could that have been said at the same time? I think the problem is here that the most dangerous thing you can do is, I'm talking from a COVID standpoint, the most dangerous thing you can do is play the World Series of Poker. I can't think of anything worse. I can think of things that are close, but I can't think of a single thing that's worse than playing the World Series of Poker, especially playing multiple events. If you think about it, it has all the elements. It has a bunch of people together, like a large number of people, thousands of people together, all in the same room, and they're there for many hours. They're in close quarters, especially compared to the size of the room. And they're indoors. Like, what's worse than that? And they're there day after day after day. I can't think of something you can do that would get you COVID faster. Much worse than working in an office. Much worse than going to the grocery store. Much worse than going to, like, a party or visiting friends. Definitely much worse than anything outdoors. So, I mean, what's worse than this? You have every single dangerous element. Notice I didn't say the chips. That's not how it transmits. That's how it feels like it transmits because that's how colds transmit. But that's not how it transmits. So I'm not worried about the chips. I'm not worried about the cards. I'm worried about people breathing the air, mask or no mask, all together in that room for hours and hours and hours. You're not just strolling in there and strolling back out. You are there all day, all evening, and then you're back the next day, back the next day, back the next day. You're going to catch it. Of all these people, there's going to be some that have COVID and are transmitting it. You're going to breathe the same air and you're going to catch it one of these days, especially if the vaccine is getting broken through by Delta and other variants. So you've got to make that decision. You've got to say, am I going to make peace with catching COVID? And uh, if you're not willing to make peace with possibly catching COVID while you're playing the World Series, and when I say possibly, I mean a serious possibility, then you shouldn't play. The only way you can say you won't catch it is if you know the vaccine keeps it out. But I don't know that anymore. In fact, I know it doesn't. It may keep it out better than not being vaccinated. And it definitely holds down the symptoms from getting as severe. But there's a lot we don't know. You can't even say, okay, I'll take whatever illness comes. It's not going to be that bad because you don't know if it's going to have long-term effects. You don't know if you're going to be one of the people who loses your smell and taste forever or at least part of your smell and taste forever. You don't know if you're going to get lung damage. There's a lot that isn't known about these breakthrough cases and the permanent effects they have on people. It is known that, at least at the moment, relatively few are ending up in the hospital or dead if they're fully vaccinated. But that doesn't mean that all the other negative effects of COVID aren't still on the table, even if they're less frequent for fully vaccinated people. 
And it could change, too. Maybe the Lambda variant, for example, will have a lot more severe illness than the Delta one does for fully vaccinated people. So we're just seeing too much uncertainty with this. It's where I don't want to take the chance and put myself in the very most dangerous situation. And there's a difference between being willing to go to the grocery store and being willing to be indoors for short periods of time with a limited number of people and something like the World Series of Poker. It's a world of difference. So there's some acceptable risk. You can't hide forever from this. So, you know, if people invite me over, uh, even like a little home poker game, okay, fine. And if one of them happens to have COVID and transmit it to me and I get it through the vaccine, okay, that may happen. But what I don't want is to be with thousands of people together in a room for 12 hours a day. That's just asking for it. And I think a lot of people are going to believe the same thing. So I think that's going to really reduce the size of this year's World Series. Also, right now, a lot of European countries can't even come here. That's going to reduce the size. And then there's the question of whether the World Series can exist at all, or if there's going to be some sort of county, state, or federal regulation that prevents an event like this from taking place. Because there may be a decision that you can't have more than X number of people getting together. You can't have an event of such and such size. There, there may be that sort of restriction coming down. And that may be sort of an alternative to lockdowns, by the way. It may be determined, okay, we're not going to completely shut down and hide from COVID, but the most dangerous things, we're going to say no. And for the most part, life can go on. It's just going to be minus these things for now. I could easily see that happening where Caesars is not allowed to run it. I can't ever see Caesar saying, you know what, we're not going to run the World Series because we care about your health. They don't give a crap, a crap about your health. They don't care if you live or die. You're just a number to them. But if they can't run it, they can't run it. But I don't even think it'll get there for me because I pretty much think my decision's been made unless there's a change. A change being like, let's say I get another shot before the World Series and that shot is found to be very effective against the variants. Okay, then maybe I'll do it if I don't have to wear a mask the whole day. Or let's say the variants just kind of fall off and all of a sudden there's not a COVID danger anymore to vaccinated people for the most part. Yeah, then I'll probably play if there's no mask mandate. So something unlikely like that, I'll play. But other than that, I've, I've pretty much made my decision that I'm not going to be there. So for that reason, I'm not going to be uh, actively selling any pieces because that would be foolish to be collecting money for pieces just to have to refund it to you when I don't play. So if I decide at the last minute I'm going to play, either I'll try to sell pieces quickly or I just won't sell pieces at all this year. But I think I'm probably not playing. And Trader Ruski, what about you? Yeah, I, I mean, it would have to have major changes for me to play at this point, I think. But, you know, Vintage One still goes down like every day to, he'll, to Hollywood Park and plays so in their tournament. And he said they're getting like over 100 every day, which is above average. Yeah, well, I think there's people who still have an interest in doing it. I, I'm not saying they won't get people who are willing to play. I think it'll be reduced. And I think a lot of it also depends upon uh, what happens over the next two months with COVID and with Delta and what people learn about it. 
and we've seen very few numbers. We've seen a lot of anecdotes, like, oh, the hospitals are filling up, and uh, there's a lot more children than usual, blah, 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 but we're not seeing hard numbers. And that's actually what's bothering me. I want to see hard numbers. I I don't want to hear hospitals are filling up. There's a lot of reasons hospitals fill up. When I say a lot of reasons, it's like I heard one of the hospitals, uh, the reason it's filling up is because uh, the staff is getting sick with Delta through the vaccine and they just can't open as many beds as they normally could. So so that plus the additional patients from Delta, many of whom are unvaccinated, most of whom are unvaccinated, and the beds fill up. Well, okay, but that, that's like kind of all expected. You can see all of that. And, oh, the, you know, there's so many more kids getting it. Well... How many more? Well, yeah, three times as many as last month. Well, okay, but how many more people are getting infected compared to last month? Is it three times? Well, then it makes sense that there's three times as many kids. <laughs> so, like, I, I just want to see real hard, unbiased numbers telling us the truth about the situation. And, and I'll look at it with an open mind. In fact, I've already said I think the Delta variant is something to be concerned with. So I'm not trying to dismiss it. But I, I hate these anecdotal stories and I always encourage everybody to look at anecdotal stories and, and, and take them with a grain of salt. Like whenever you see uh, doctors or nurses on Twitter or Reddit or Facebook posting these harrowing accounts of what they see, here's what I recommend. Number one, make sure it's a real account. Make sure it doesn't look like a fake account. Number two, even if it is real and the person's real and it's really the person behind the account who it claims to be, scroll back, scroll back, and, and even as far as 2019, and take a look at their posts. And if their posts tend to be very political, especially very political on the left, uh, unfortunately, you can't uh, trust what they're saying, even if they might be telling the truth. But it's one of these things where you can't believe it. Kind of like if a uh, Stop the Steal uh, activist who's been insisting that the election was stolen from Trump, if they claim to have found a bombshell showing that uh, voter fraud occurred, you basically tune them out. And so maybe they did find a bombshell, but you can't trust them because you, you know how biased they are. So I'm sure when you see those, quote, bombshells about the uh, election being stolen, blah, 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 if you see if it's coming from a source that has been pushing it's been a stolen election ever since November, you, you just tune it out. That's what I do. I don't, I don't even bother to read it. So same with this. If you have someone who's very, very political and very, very far left and, and uh, has been ranting for so long about how terrible the right is with COVID, and then they also happen to be a doctor or a nurse who's giving you the conditions on the ground there, you got to take it with a grain of salt. And I, I'm willing to listen to doctors and nurses that are telling us what's happening, but I need to be sure that this is someone who's not doing it with an agenda. So when you see that type of anecdotal stuff, you have to always look at the person saying it and see how much you can trust them. And when I say trust them, not just that they're real, but why they're saying it. And sometimes someone could be telling the truth and they could be biased. And that's unfortunate, but it's sometimes it's hard to believe those people because you can't tell if they're telling the truth or not. So that's why I like to see cold, hard numbers, because provided the data is reliable, then I can make my own decision. I don't need anecdotes and I need, I don't need to evaluate anyone's politics. I can just... Uh, Take a look at the numbers, and if it looks like that, for example, we're seeing a high percentage of fully vaccinated people getting COVID and getting very sick from it, then I become very concerned. 
if I see that there's a low number of people who are getting very sick from COVID who are fully vaccinated, that I'm not as concerned. So things like that. I, I just want to see the real numbers. Not with any kind of bias. And I'm not hoping the numbers support my position or not. I'm just, I just want to see the real truth. And I go from there. But I just don't see that many paths to playing the World Series this year. For me personally. For people who just want to play it and don't care and will show up anyway, then there are paths, provided that it's not made illegal to hold, then it'll take place. I think there's a realistic chance that it won't take place at all. Like, it's not even far-fetched at this point that the whole thing will be canceled. If I don't play this year, which is pretty likely, my next World Series, provided I play next year, I guess either way, whether it's next year or a subsequent year, my next World Series will be one where I'm eligible for the seniors event. So I may make the return to the World Series next as a senior. should be a strange feeling. I know you've already had a trade risky, but I, I still can't quite wrap my head around that I'm going to be the senior next year, at least in the, at least in the World Series eyes. I won't consider myself a senior just yet. Okay, have you heard about the movie The Card Counter? Trader Rizky. I I have not, but I'm excited to. Well, I hadn't heard of it either until very recently, and I saw a trailer for it. So I'm going to play you the trailer. Hopefully you'll be able to hear it. And unfortunately you can't see it. Actually, no, you can see it. Forgot about that. I'm sharing my screen with you. So you can't see it. The rest of you can hear it. And then we're going to discuss whether this thing is going to be decent or terrible. And we won't know for sure till we see it. But I will say the track record of gambling-related movies in the last 20 years has not been very good. So I'm very skeptical. But here is the trailer for The Card Counter. This is how it starts. It builds and builds. It has a life of its own. Uh. <laughs> it says official selection Venice Film Festival 2021. What does that mean, official selection? Like selection from what? Like a, just a selection to be evaluated? Like I, I'm a little skeptical already of what official selection means from this film festival. Man can accrue. This is where all the good stuff happens. The weight created by his past actions. It is a weight which can never be removed. Now it says Martin Scorsese presents. Not a film by Martin Scorsese, but he's presenting it. What, what does that mean? He's presenting it. That, that to me looks like that he's not making it, but his name is attached to it in some way. So right there, I'm already dismissing his involvement. All in. So that's the weird thing. Okay, so you hear all in. Okay, what does that have to do with card counting? So he's at a poker table saying all in, and right before that, they're showing him playing blackjack. So which one is he? Is he a card counter in blackjack, or is he a poker player? They don't really make this clear. You count cards, right? I'm not that smart. But you win. 
You need someone to stake you. That's what you do. You run a stable. I'm always looking for a good thoroughbred. <laughs> so there's a black woman in this film, and this this main character is white. So uh, she is the romantic interest slash staker. And you can tell that from the trailer, and they're going to show more and more of those two together. She says, oh, you can't cards, huh? He's, I'm not that smart, whatever that's supposed to mean. And then she says she's going to stake him. And then a lot more drama happens from here. Having been sentenced to 10 years in prison, I learned to count cards. How'd you do that? So then they show him at the World Series of Poker. So they, what does that have to do with the counting cards? Like, already, this is looking weird. So, if it were just about a blackjack card counter who meets this mysterious woman who stakes him and he develops a romantic relationship with her, okay, you know, I I can get on board with that premise. But now he's at the World Series of Poker, which doesn't look like the World Series of Poker that much, by the way, but uh, at the World Series of Poker, and it does have the WSOP branding everywhere, so obviously Caesar's license that out here but it shows him at the world series of poker and what does that have to do with card counting talent like card counting talent will not do anything for you at the poker table they don't really explain how one has to do with the other poker is all about waiting check raise re-raise call okay check check re-raise call traders have you ever been at a table at the world series where that said check check re-raise raise call does anyone say that Especially re-raise. <laughs> I would say the dealer. <laughs> I, I guess. <laughs> it's like... That just sounds stupid to me in the trailer. Then something happens. You remember it? This is where all the good stuff happens. They made you the fall guy. You need to back off. Okay, so now there's a new drama being introduced. and th- This is also a problem. I, I don't like when a movie gets too busy. So this guy is not only on a card counter who's being staked by this mysterious woman who he develops a romantic relationship with, but now he's also somehow a good poker player. And now he also has some sort of uh, issue with a guy who's framed him. Remember, he was in prison 10 years, so he was framed... And now that guy comes on the scene who framed him. And now he's got to decide what to do about that. You've been around him. He's a mystery. Oh. And then this takes place at the Golden Nugget. Like, what does the Golden Nugget have to do with the World Series? Obviously, because uh, that, that's the only casino that would let them film there. If that's a good thing or a bad thing. Focus Features Presents. Just a fleeting thought. You might want a piece of what I'm going to do. Then it builds. What is that? Set things straight. So now this has become some sort of like revenge movie. They're, they're going to get back at the guy who set him up. It doesn't matter to me if you did something bad in your past. Nothing. Nothing can justify what we did as him. Now they're showing the romantic scenes of him uh, kissing and having sex with the woman who staked him. We are each responsible for our own actions. You know the phrase tilt, just like a pinball. Any man can tilt. You can tilt. 
Now it's showing a bunch of action scenes of people fighting, getting beaten up. Is it possible to know when one reaches the limit? The card counter. You have to be the strangest poker player I ever met. Oh, you have no idea. Yeah. Written and directed by Paul Schrader. Okay, so this evolved. It started out with like card counting. The movie's called The Card Counter, then the rest of the trailer has nothing to do with card counting or blackjack. What the fuck? <laughs> so, I, I don't get it. Maybe the trailer just isn't communicating well like what the movie's about, but I, I'm so confused by this. I'm really, really confused by this. BCR in the forum said that he thinks that maybe this was kind of inspired by Phil Ivey and his uh, antics with Baccarat and the edge sorting, but that it was just too complicated to make that into a movie for the public to understand. So they, they kind of wrote this sort of around that. And I, I don't know. This, this doesn't make sense that much. I'm not saying that a movie with card counting and poker couldn't be made. You could have one about a guy who's a poker player and a casino advantage player, and you could write some pretty interesting stories around that, even just totally fictional stories. But this one, it looks like there's too much going on. There's this weird revenge plot about some guy setting him up to go to prison, and I don't know. It's it's uh, It looks very busy and kind of all over the place. I'd be surprised if this ends up being a good movie. And it's already kind of strange how they're saying it's a selection at the Venice Film Festival and the only quote about it is one of the most anticipated movies of the year from like Indie Something, some publication I've never heard of. I don't have a lot of hopes for this one. But maybe it'll surprise me. I've seen it before where a trailer is terrible and the movie is pretty good. I wouldn't say this is a terrible trailer. It's just a confusing trailer. Someone asked uh, in the forum, it was actually Mumbles Badly, he asked, isn't that what Druff did? Counting cards for years before someone convinced him to give poker a shot. Well, not quite for years. I learned how to uh, count cards in late 2000, and I started playing poker in early 01. So it's actually months, not years. A few months. But yeah, I I did learn how to card count blackjack before learning how to play Texas Hold'em, that they were pretty close together. Yeah, why is it called the card counter if it's really about poker? It's almost like they got bored of the blackjack part. They're like, ah, what more can we do with this? You know what? Not much. So let's just go to poker. <laughs> so don't call it the card counter. I can't see how this is going to end up being a compelling movie. You know, Molly's Game, which... A lot of people really liked. I, I thought that was just mediocre. I thought uh, there were too many elements of it which didn't work, including Molly's relationship with that attorney, which wasn't a romantic relationship, but like they, they were supposed to have these. Uh, they, they were trying to make like iconic scenes between her and the attorney, and it just didn't work. I felt there was no chemistry. I felt like it just. Uh, wasn't written well it just uh, any any scenes with the attorney i felt like they were trying too hard and just weren't that interesting and same with all the legal aspects of that part of the movie any of the legal wrangling and i i just felt there were 
too many flaws to that movie. It wasn't terrible, but it, I, I heard a lot of really good things about it, and then I saw it, and I wasn't that impressed. And I, I mentioned earlier in the show, Seven Days to Vegas with with uh, Vince Van Patten. That was uh, it was decent. It's kind of amusing, but it wasn't like a great movie. Like Rounders was a lot better than that, for example. This that was just kind of a a fun, amusing movie to watch if you don't take it too seriously. So I, I really haven't seen any good gambling movies since Rounders. Despite so many of them being made. I've seen a lot of terrible ones. And there's some terrible ones I didn't see because I knew they were terrible. Even the one where I did commentary for a DVD extra, Runner Runner, was awful. That was like loosely about the UB scandal. Had I known the movie was going to suck that badly, I probably wouldn't have done it. <laughs> we'll see. It'll be out this fall, and supposedly only in theaters. So I guess you're going to have to brave Delta and go to a theater. Then maybe I can go on like on a Wednesday afternoon when there's like nobody in the theater. You may not have to worry about Delta, it sounds like, for that movie, Jeff. No matter when you go. <laughs> you might be right. There may not be large crowds there. Might be the safest place in town. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's the safest place to go. Maybe it's safer than my own house. Where can I go to get away from Delta? Where's the only safe spot in the world? Watching the card counter on a weekday. Think you may have stumbled upon it. Okay, well, here's somebody who probably wishes he could count cards. Addicted gambler Evander Kane is embroiled in a pretty bad scandal which involves sports betting where apparently he bet on his own games and uh, may have actually tried to influence the outcome of those games, which is worse than what Pete Rose was accused of. Pete Rose was accused of betting on the Reds when he managed the Reds but said that he never bet against the Reds and there was never any evidence that he did bet against the Reds or that he ever tried to manage in a way that would uh, influence his bet. But uh, he did bet on his own team sometimes. But what's being accused of Evander Kane is worse. Two years ago, he was sued for an unpaid marker of over $500,000 by the Cosmo because he wasn't paying his markers. And in early 2021, he filed for bankruptcy claiming that uh, he had $1.5 million worth of gambling debts. Now, we reported on this two years ago about the problems he was having. So this is definitely a an athlete, despite one who made a lot of money, He's a uh, forward for the San Jose Sharks who seems to have blown his money in various ways, including gambling. So that that was known beforehand. He signed a a seven-year, $49 million contract with the Sharks before the start of the 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 2018-19 season. But his wife, who's obviously fed up with his gambling antics, posted on Instagram accusing him of betting on his own games. 
the screenshots of this uh, Instagram, which I, I believe the uh, posts have since been deleted, but they show that uh, the Instagram tagged both the San Jose Sharks and the NHL to make them aware of it. One was a photo of a book titled Casino Gambling for Dummies with the caption, when your own teammates give you this book, I think they're trying to tell you maybe you're not the best at the tables, bud. And then another one was just a blank gray screen that tagged the NHL, and it said, can someone ask Gary Bettman how they let a player gamble on his own games, bet and win with his bookies on his own games? So, uh, that is a problem, (laughs) that he was betting on his own games, and that, uh, there was there were some allegations that uh he would even sometimes uh play in a way to make his uh team lose if he uh was betting against them which would be really really bad a hockey journalist uh said that there is a chance that the Canes are going to lose their home because of gambling debts and that his wife had to sell his wedding, her wedding ring. The NHL has a strict policy, of course, against uh, players betting on hockey. And even though in Nevada that it's said that no one saw him betting on anything, it's believed that he was p- placing these bets either in offshore books or with bookies. So that uh, he wasn't doing this through regulated means where he could more easily be seen and caught doing it. It's unknown if they're going to end up terminating his contract if he is uh, caught doing this, or if they, I'm not sure if they even can. The league could definitely suspend him or maybe even expel him. I don't know the NHL rules regarding consequences. I know they prohibit this being done, but I don't know uh, what they would do if it was uh, found that he was betting on his own games and altering his play in order to win the bets. So if he was betting against his own team, that might be the end of his career permanently. He could be uh, banned from the league entirely, I would guess. So uh, this is... uh, Really, really a huge issue. His wife said that she couldn't afford baby formula for their child due to his gambling losses. And that he also blew a lot of money lavishly partying in Europe while at the same time asking her to sell her wedding ring to survive. I don't know what's going to be the outcome of this. It's possible she's not telling the truth possible he didn't bet on hockey Um, he did give an answer to this where he denied that he did he said uh, unfortunately I'd like to address the completely false accusations that my estranged and soon-to-be ex-wife have made against me even the uh, even against the advice of my legal team I felt so strongly the public and fans here hear this directly from me I've never gambled or bet on hockey never gambled or bet on a sharks game never gambled or bet on any of my games and never thrown a hockey game Simp Dog, who is a big hockey fan and radio listener, said that he thinks that there's a good chance that uh, Kane didn't bet on hockey, but 
did bet on everything else and lost a fortune and that his wife was bitter that he was partying it up with their last dollars and then telling her to sell her wedding ring to pay for baby food that she may have done this as a revenge move because she was leaving him anyway and that he had chunked off all the family's money so she wanted to make it look worse but then again she could be telling the truth or the partial truth obviously the wife is very very unhappy with this whole thing and obviously she's tried to stop all the gambling and he just won't and she's probably felt helpless with the whole matter so it it is possible that two things are true that he has a gambling problem has shot off all the money and the wife couldn't stop him and at the same time he uh didn't do the terrible things that she was accusing regarding the uh San Jose Sharks and betting against them or throwing games. The league is investigating these uh, problem gamblers. It's it's uh, pretty sad what happens. And and once someone goes down this rat hole, it can be tough to pull themselves out. It seems like a combination of lavish spending and problem gambling. It, it doesn't look like it's only the gambling eating all his money away. Some of these athletes, just with that money rolling in, they just get the impression that they can just endlessly spend and gamble and the money will always still be there. And not only is that not true because their career ends, but also they can chunk off everything they have a lot quicker than they think. Simtog also thinks that he won't be banished from hockey, that she'll never be able to prove these accusations and that... uh, she will get a nice uh, divorce settlement of his future payments, but uh, that he will continue his hockey career. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number. The final topic we have is about the Rio. This is something discovered by Brandon, but since he's uh, not here right now, we will uh, discuss it anyway. The Rio has done something very weird. And there's been some guesses, but to my knowledge, no one has figured it out yet. Someone within Caesars knows, obviously, but uh, I do not know, nor has anybody else that I've asked about it. I even asked on Twitter, and uh, people don't really know the answer to this. But this is kind of a bizarre situation. I've never seen something like this before. As you probably know, the Rio is not one of the premier properties in Vegas and definitely not one of the premier properties among the uh, Caesars brand in Vegas. Caesars has a lot of hotels in Vegas, and the Rio is kind of one of the last resort places you go to if you can't get a room anywhere else or if everything else is too expensive for your taste. So if you try to book a room at a Caesars property, and you can go do this yourself right now, go to Caesars.com and click on uh, book a room, and then pick, quote, flexible dates. And uh, I'll I'll explain how to get there if you want to do this along with me. Uh, Where it says check-in, check-out, if you click on that, it'll say exact dates or flexible dates, and then it'll have a bunch of uh, months. So if you click on flexible dates, it'll just list August 2021, September 2021, etc. Just click on August 2021, and then click search. And, of course, do this for the Las Vegas market. 
So have it search for Las Vegas, Nevada, flexible dates, and you'll see every single Caesars property is available between now and August 11th. And in fact, if you did this a week ago, you would have seen that every property was available, or most of the properties were available between uh, July 31st and August 11th. Some of them were blocked off for like four nights, but starting August 5th, every single property was available through the 11th, except the Rio. Now, why would that be? And by the way, in case you think that there's something big going on in Vegas, there isn't. The room prices are actually quite reasonable. For the uh, next few days, for example, um, Bally's is uh, $60 for Thursday, $116 for Friday, $140 for Saturday. Caesars, $79 for Thursday, $143 for Friday, $199 for Saturday. Flamingo, $44 for fr- Thursday, $103 Friday, $135 Saturday. Harris, $47.95, $135. Paris, $60.113.166. Planet Hollywood, $52.111.159. Cromwell 68, 135, 183. Link 28, 92, 124. So all available and all with you know, at least somewhat reasonable prices. Remember that the Friday and Saturday are always going to be more expensive. So the Rio, nothing. Sold out, sold out, sold out, sold out. Now you'll probably see like an I there. If you click on the I, it says there are special conditions on this date. Please visit the Rio All Suite Hotel Casino calendar for booking options. That's not true. If you try to book the Rio directly instead of just searching for Las Vegas, it'll just say sold out. So it's, quote, sold out all the way until the 12th. It says fifth sold out, sixth sold out, seventh sold out, eighth sold out, ninth sold out, tenth sold out, eleventh sold out. You can book the 12th. You can start booking August 12th for $93 at the Rio, Thursday, August 12th. Okay, so why? Why is the Rio like this, and why has it been like this the previous week as well? The end of July was the same way. The very end of July, and the first 11 nights of August, you could not book the Rio. Is there tremendous demand for the Rio right now? And if so, why does that demand abruptly end on the 11th, and then you can get it for $93 on the 12th? Why is that? Why is everybody leaving the 11th? Why, why is the whole property booked up for two weeks? And then on the 12th, suddenly it's available again. So what's going on here? Well, I don't know. Never seen this before. There have been some theories thrown around. One of the theories is that it has to do with a linen shortage. There actually is a hotel linen shortage where they simply don't have enough linens. I'm not sure how this happened, but uh, this is nationwide. There's a a linen shortage where hotels just simply can't uh, put enough uh, bedding and, and towels in the rooms. So they just have to shut down certain rooms simply because they don't have enough of that stuff and can't get it. So it could be that. What some hotels are doing is they're actually saving linens by shutting down certain unpopular days during the week so they have enough linens for the weekend. So some people were theorizing maybe that's what's going on, but that doesn't explain why they're shut down for two weeks. That might explain why some of those properties were shut down from the 1st through the 4th, because those are all weekdays, August 1st through 4th, and now August 5th, which is a Thursday, then uh, you can book again at all these hotels except the Rio. But why would the Rio be closed on the weekends? 
Why are they closed on the 6th and the 7th? Why were they closed on the previous weekend in late July? I don't think that's necessarily the answer. I think something is happening at the Rio that is making it unavailable. It's possible renovations. Remember, it recently sold, so it's possible that they're doing renovations that really make it impossible for two weeks to have customers there. And they chose a relatively dead period of early August to close down. It's possible that the demand simply hasn't been there at Caesars Properties and they're trying to consolidate everybody into the other properties. In fact, maybe that's why they didn't allow reservations for these other properties for those four nights of Sunday through Wednesday. So maybe what they're doing is they're trying to uh, keep occupancy low or non-existent at certain hotels to cut costs and concentrate everybody at their other properties. I looked up and found there was a Star Trek convention, of all things, that is taking place at the Rio this August. And it, I believe it begins on August 11th. So could that have to do with it? And I would say no, because that's when the convention begins. So here's the Star Trek convention. It says the 55-year mission tour, and that's in relation to the fact that uh, Star Trek first aired in 1966, which is 55 years ago. August 11th through 15th, 2021, Rio All Suites Hotel and Casino, Las Vegas. Now, presumably, you could book a room at the Rio where this is taking place on the 11th, which is the final day they are closed. So you may say, okay, well, maybe they're making room for all the Star Trek fans. Well, maybe not, because then why can people book on the 12th, 13th, 14th, and 15th? So that doesn't make any sense. And what if you want to go to the Star Trek convention at the Rio, and what if you haven't booked your room yet? You can't get one at the 11th now? It doesn't make any sense. So I'm not sure, but definitely this doesn't start until the very last day of this weird Rio blackout. So what we're going to do here is we're going to find out. We're going to make a phone call. We're going to see what we can find out here. We're going to do some investigation live on the air. We're going to call up the Rio, and we're going to see what answers they can give us. I demand to know. You have reached the Do Voice automated attendance what? system. Please dial the extension number now or hold for assistance. What are they talking about? What kind of greeting is Thank this? Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> that, that's the Rio 777-7777 number. Did I, is that not their number anymore? Thank you for calling Harrods Las Vegas. For room reservations, please press 1. For restaurant reservations, please press 2. For box office, please press 3. For all other inquiries, please wait on the line for a hotel operator. Thank you and have a dynamic day. To be connected to the hotel operator, please press 1. Thank you for calling Harris Lust. Please hold, and the next available agent will be with you momentarily. Hello, and thank you for calling Harris Las Vegas. Our operators are busy, but your call is important to us. Please stay on the line, and someone will be with you momentarily. Thank you for calling Harris Las Vegas. This is Laura Mates 
hello, Kenan Nigel Fabersham here. Um, I'm trying to reach the Rio, and uh, I, I get a rather bizarre message when I call up. I got this um, thing about the do voice message system and um, all that uh, rot. So, um, how do I reach someone at the Rio at the given moment? So, they're a guest, sir, at the Rio? No, no, no. I wish to speak to someone at the hotel itself. It, so, are you trying to... Which departments? So there's, like, the casino, there's... Well, I, I wish to speak to someone uh, at the front desk, but actually at the front desk at the property, not just uh, someone at the call center such as yourself. But um, if, if you can't do that, maybe you can answer a question for me, because I'm rather perplexed by something. Well, what is your inquiry, sir? All right, so... um. I'm coming from across the pond. I've always wanted to stay at the Rio. I know they've um, taken away many of the features that um, individuals enjoy, but um, I've always wanted to stay there. And uh, and I see that it's the only property that shows that it is sold out. It's the only Caesars property sold out through the 11th. And um, more specifically, I'm a bit ashamed to admit this, but I'm a big Star Trek fan, all right? And so I'm coming coming into town for the... uh, I'm coming across the pond for the Star Trek convention... And that begins on August 11th, and it terminates on August 15th. Now, I see I can book the 12th through the 15th, but I can't book the bloody 11th. And I have a hard time believing that there is going to be no rooms available in the whole property on the 11th, nor are there any currently during the week, as I call you today. So, uh, what is going on at the Rio? Why are there no rooms available, and why can't I reach anyone by the phone there? This is the operator, sir. If you're trying to book a room, I can connect it to reservations, and they can check for you, sir. Uh, bollocks. That's not what I mean. I'm, I'm not... No, I, I know it shows sold out. I'm, I'm asking, can you reach anyone at the bloody Rio for me? It's it's it's, it's not rocket science. Just follows, find any bloke on the property and connect him to me. I'll be a brief moment, sir. <laughs> Hello. And I wonder which bloke they're going to find. Our operators are busy, but your call is important to us. Please stay on the line, and someone will be with you momentarily. At Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, you'll enjoy the best. Steak, hand-selected, and broiled to perfection at 8... Watch the enemy reservations. Caesar's Entertainment. No, I knew it. Please note, due to an unusually high... I, I knew it. I knew she was going to transfer me to reservation. It's usual. so predictable. We apologize for the inconvenience this may cause. To avoid waiting in queue, you can yeah, make a... Yeah, screw that. I'm, I'm not going through reservations. I'm going to get the Philippines. They're not going to know anything. I think she totally ignored Colonel Fabersham's uh, demand. He said he wants to speak to a bloke actually at the Rio and she just connects him to reservations when he said he does not want reservations. Like a, That's horrible service. That's horrible service. Anyway, uh, Brandon already tried to make this call last week and they basically gave him the same runaround. They, they would not tell him why he couldn't book at the Rio. They just kept saying, you know, why don't you book at one of our other properties? It's sold out. That, that's all they say. I, I, I don't get it. And all the explanations I've been given so far don't make any sense. It's, I don't think it's a Star Trek convention. I don't think it's because of the linen shortage. It's just weird. It's like a two-week shutdown that I can't explain. So if you guys know this, if you can reach anybody at the Rio, if you can find out, if you're a Caesars insider and you know this top-secret reason that we can't book at the Rio... Other than it being, quote, sold out. I wish I could just go down there. I, like, if I were nearby, I'd freaking go down there and see if the place is even open. I don't even know if it's open. I don't, I, and I can't call it this time 
to reach uh, like a business there. Otherwise, I, I would. Otherwise, like if there was a restaurant open there, I would try to call it and see if it's really open. But I can't even do that at this time because they're all closed anyway. And the front desk is never really the front desk. When you ask for the front desk at a Caesars property, you're getting a Vegas-based call center. That's what we just got here. And they love to just transfer you. They love to just wash their hands of you. Like, yeah, of course, this was like a semi-prank call, though we were really trying to get information. But it's not just that. Like, I I have this issue all the time when I call and I I ask for something and then they just want to get rid of me and just shove me to some other department, which I don't really want. So I guess we did not solve it. I guess I failed. I apologize. Okay, well, that's it. I, I don't have anything more. That's pretty much uh, all I got. But uh, some good material for this week, and uh, we'll be back. Now, the question is, when do we come back? Well, I don't want Wednesday night to be the uh, night of the show, because that's not really the night I want. So it's not going to be a Wednesday show, and uh, I, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but I think this is the time to move to Friday, which means that, uh, no, I'm not going to do a show this Friday, we're not going to be doing it on Friday, August 6th. Our next scheduled show will be, uh, I would say, Friday the 13th. I'm not afraid of it being bad luck. You know, I, I think I do have bad luck. I lost Trader Ruski, too. But I'm not sure if I can make that day. I might have to make it Saturday the 14th. Well, I, I don't know. I'll, I'll come up with something. Gratefulness. I'll, I'll come up with something. And it'll either be probably Friday, August 13th, or Saturday, August 14th. So we are going to have a bit more than a week before we do the show again. It's the way it is, because I want to get back to weekend shows rather than weekday shows. And since we're already at Thursday morning right now, we we might as well just let it roll over. And there's a chance I can't make Friday the 13th. In which case, I will do Saturday the 14th, of which both are movie titles. You may not know of Saturday the 14th, but that is a movie. It was a parody of Friday the 13th. And I liked it as a kid. I have a feeling if I saw it today, I wouldn't enjoy it as much. I saw this shortly after it came out. I didn't see it in the theater Saturday the 14th, but it came out in 1981. I probably saw it in like 82 on TV or something. It was on TV not too long after that. And I enjoyed this, but I probably didn't have very sophisticated tastes back in the early 80s. That's just my guess. By the way, Kari Michelson, the blonde girl, the blonde teenage daughter from Give Me a Break, she was in Saturday the 14th before she was on Give Me a Break which started in 82. And Jeffrey Tambor, who still acts today, he was in it. But it was supposed to be a spoof of not only horror movies from the 30s and 40s, but also of the Friday the 13th series. It did not get good reviews. The New York Times called it an unfunny horror film parody. But I don't know. I liked it as a 10-year-old when I saw it. Maybe that explains why it's so bad if a 10-year-old liked it. It was only 76 minutes long, which 
to me almost doesn't count as a theatrical release. That's the other problem. How can a movie be 76 minutes long? <laughs> oh, they actually had a sequel. See, that, that I didn't know. They had a sequel in 1988 called... Sunday the 15th? No, it, it, that would have been a better name. Saturday the 14th Strikes Back. <laughs> Why was it that Sunday the 15th? I think that would have been a better title. They're trying to bring in the Star Wars crowd, obviously. Yes, that's a little late for that, though, in 88. See, in 88, I would have been better at judging it as a 16-year-old. In 82, I think just anything that wasn't boring would have been of interest to me. Uh, Variety called it an unnecessary, unfunny sequel, saying that dialogue is lame and level of spoofing obvious rather than inspired. Oh, boy. I don't even know any of the names who are in this uh, Sunday the 15th, what it should have been called. I'm looking at the names. I don't recognize a single one. Well, uh, we're done here. By the way, it was made by uh, husband and wife Roger Corman and Julie Corman. I, I've heard of uh, Roger Corman, just not. I haven't heard of uh, Julie Corman. Uh, they're still alive. In fact, Roger Corman is 95 years old, and Julie Corman, the younger woman he married. When she was uh, 28 in 1970, she is no longer that young. She's now 79. You know you're a really old guy if your young wife is also ancient. Like you, you marry the much younger woman and you live long enough to see her become like super old. I wonder if 95 year. I wonder if there's like any 95 year olds who can get it up naturally. You think there are? You think there's like a single 95 year old dude who doesn't need Viagra? I don't think we have any listeners who are 95, so I don't think I'm offending anybody. But I just have to wonder, like, what what is the record for a guy being able to get it up at a late age? Like, has there ever been a hundred year old who has had sex without assistance from a pill? Like, I really don't know. Or is it even safe to have sex when you're a hundred? I don't know. I wonder these things. World records, better get on that one. Yeah, I, I should. Maybe they have already. <laughs> Maybe there already is a uh, an entry for late, latest erection in life. I, I got to think of these things. Yeah, I'm, I'm almost halfway to 100, so I have to prepare for the future. I, I have to know how long I can expect for everything to still work. Yeah, I'm not that far anymore. Too bad I can't ask Roger Corman. All right, that's it. All right, well, thank you, Trader Ruski, for coming on. I guess we didn't have Brandon this week, but we'll try to get him on next week's. Sounds good. Sorry I slept in. No problem. Okay, well, thank you, Trader Ruski. And uh, let's see here. Yeah, I, I don't know. Just check uh, twitter.com slash pokerfraudalert to get the information on when the next show will be. I'm going to try for Friday the 13th, but there's a chance I can't make it, but there's also a chance I can. I, I just have certain plans that night that are up in the air, and I'll know a little bit later if I, I can make it that night, but if I can't, it'll be the next day. There will not be another three-week delay in uh, having the show. So thank you, Trader Ruski, for joining us for the last uh, hour and a half. If you're listening right now, uh, I have to 
edit this a bit later and put it in the archives. I won't be doing that right now. Hmm. I'm looking at our live listenership numbers. They're, they're not very good right now. Now, it is 6 in the morning. And we did have a cutout of the show. We also had a long break in the middle of the night, which you won't hear in the archives, but I had to take a long break. So all these things, plus we haven't been on in a few weeks, other than that YouTube show. So all that makes sense why the live listenership isn't good, but we also have most of our listenership in the archives. It still saddens me to see these uh, low listenership numbers. Now maybe it's because it's on Thursday morning. Maybe people like the weekend... I, I don't know. I, I, I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna forget I saw this and pretend we have a million people listening. Most of you catch it in the archives anyway. And let's face it. Alrighty, that's it. Feels good to be back. I'll catch you guys next week. Twitter.com/slash Poker Fraud Alert for the announcement of the next show. Should be Friday or Saturday, the 13th or 14th. Shalom.